Around ten minutes more passed. Suddenly, I heard Mikey make a familiar alert sound. Sst, sst. I lifted up my hat and instinctively looked left over my port side quarter to the spot where I knew Axe would be covering our flank. And he was right there, rigid, in firing position, his rifle aimed straight up the mountain. I twisted around to look directly behind me. Mikey was staring wide-eyed up the hill, calling orders, instructing Danny to call in immediate backup from HQ if he could make the radio work. He saw I was on the case, looked hard at me, and pointed straight up the hill, urging me with hand signals to do the same. I fixed my Mark 12 in firing position, pulled my head back a few inches, and looked up the hill. Lined along the top were between 80 and 100 heavily armed Taliban warriors, each one of them with an AK-47 pointing downward. Some were carrying rocket-propelled grenades. To the right and to the left, they were starting to move down our flanks. I knew they could see past me, but not at me. They could not have seen Axe or Danny. I was unsure whether they had seen Mikey. My heart dropped directly into my stomach, and I cursed those fucking goat herds to hell and myself for not executing them when every military code book ever written had taught me otherwise. Not to mention my own raging instincts, which had told me to go with axe and execute them, and let the liberals go to hell in a mule cart and take with them all of their fucking know-nothing rules of etiquette in war and human rights and whatever other bullshit makes them happy. You want to charge us with murder? Well, fucking do it. But at least we'll be alive to answer it. This way really sucks. I pressed back against my tree. I was still sure they had not seen me, but their intention was to outflank us on both wings. I could see that. I scanned the ground directly above me. The hilltop still swarmed with armed men. I thought there were more than before. There was no escape by going straight up and no possibility of moving left or right. Essentially, they had us trapped, if they had spotted us. I still was unsure. And so far, not a shot had been fired. I looked up the hill again at one single tree above and to my left, maybe 20 yards away, and I thought I saw movement. Then it was confirmed, first by a turban, then by an AK-47, its barrel pointed in my general direction, though not directly at me. I tightened my grip on the trusty rifle and moved it slightly in the direction of the tree. Whoever it was still could not see me because I was in a great spot, well hidden. I kept perfectly still. That's goddamned motionless, like a marble statue. I checked with Mikey, who also had not moved. Then I checked the tree again, and this time that turban was around it. A hook-nosed Taliban warrior was peering straight at me through black eyes above a thick black beard. The barrel of his AK-47 was pointed right at my head. Had he seen me? Would he open fire? How did the liberals feel about my position? No time, I guess. I fired once, blew his head off. And at that moment, all hell broke loose. 
the Taliban unleashed an avalanche of gunfire at us, straight down the mountain from every angle. Axe flanked left, trying to cut off the downward trail, firing nonstop. Mikey was blasting away straight over my head with everything he had. Danny was firing at them, trying to aim with one hand, desperately trying to rev up the radio with the other. I could hear Mikey shouting, Danny! Danny, for Christ's sake, get that fucking thing working! Marcus, no options now, buddy! Kill them all! But now, the enemy gunfire seemed to center on our two flank men. I could see the dust and rock shards kicking up all around us. The sound of AK-47s absolutely filled the air, deafening. I could see the Taliban guys falling all along the ridge. No one can shoot like us. I stayed right where I was in my original position, and I still seemed to be taking less fire than the others. But in the next couple of minutes, they had identified my position, and the volume of fire directly at me was increasing. This was bad. Very bad. I could see Axe was acquiring his targets quicker than I was because he had an extra scope. I should have had one too, but for some reason I had not fitted it. Right now, all four of us were really amped up. We knew how to conduct a firefight like this, but we needed to cut down the enemy numbers, nail a few of these bastards real quick, give ourselves a better chance. It was hard for them to get us from directly above, which meant the flanks were our danger. I could see two of them making their way down, right and left. Axe shot one of them, but it was bad to the right. They were shooting in a kind of frenzy, but thank Christ, missing. I guess we were too, and suddenly I was taking heavy fire myself. Bullets were slamming into the tree trunk, hitting rocks all around me. The bullets were somehow coming in from the sides. I called down to Mikey. We'll take him, but we might just need a new spot. Roger that, he yelled back. Like me, he could see the speed at which they were moving up into the attack. We'd been shooting them for all of five or six minutes, but every time we cleared that ridge high above us, it filled up again. It was as if they had reinforcements somewhere over the ridge just waiting to come up to the front line. Whichever way we looked at it, they had a ton of guys trying to kill four seals. At this point, our options were non-existent. We still could not charge the top of the mountain because they'd cut us down like dogs. They had us left, and they had us right. We were boxed in on three sides, and there was never, not even for a couple of seconds, a lull in the gunfire. And we could not even see half of them or tell where the bullets were coming from. They had every angle on us. All four of us just kept banging away, cutting them down, watching them fall, slamming a new magazine into the breach, somehow holding them at bay. But this was impossible. We had to give up this high ground, and I had to get close enough to Mikey to agree on a strategy, hopefully to save our lives. I started to move, but Mikey, like the brilliant officer he was, had appreciated the situation and already called it. Fall back! Fall back? More like fall off, the freaking mountain that is, a nearly sheer drop right behind us. God knows how far down. 
But, an order's an order. I grabbed my gear and took a sideways step, trying to zigzag down the gradient. But gravity made the decision for me, and I fell headlong down the mountain, completing a full forward flip and somehow landing on my back, still going fast, heels flailing for a foothold. At least I thought I was going fast, but Murphy was right behind me. I could tell it was him because of the bright red New York City fireman's patch he'd worn since 9-11. That was actually all I saw. See you at the bottom, I yelled. But right then I hit a tree, and Mikey went past me like a bullet. I was going slower now, and I tried to take a step, but I fell again. And on I went. Catching up to Mikey now, crashing, tumbling over the ground like we were both bouncing through a pinball machine. Ahead of us was a copse of trees on a slightly less steep gradient, and I knew this was our last hope before we plunged into the void. I had to grab something, anything. So did Mikey, and I could see him up ahead, grabbing at tree limbs, snapping them off, and still plummeting downward. In a split second, I knew that nothing could save either of us. We'd surely break our backs or necks, and then the Taliban would shoot us without mercy, as we would expect. But right now, entering the copse of trees at what felt like 70 miles an hour, my mind was in overdrive. Almost everything had been ripped away from me in the fall. Everything except my ammunition and grenades. All my packs, the medical stuff, food, water, comms, phone. I'd even lost my helmet with the flag of Texas painted on it. I was damned if I wanted some fucking terrorist wearing that. I'd seen Mikey's radio aerial ripped off as we crashed downward, and that was not good. My gun strap had been ripped off me, and my rifle whipped away. The trouble was, the terrain beyond the tree cops was completely unknown to us, because we could not see it from above. If we had, we might never have jumped. The ground just swept upward and then ducked away downward, inverted, like a goddamn ski jump. I rocketed up the lip of that backslope, making about 80 knots, on my back, feet first. In the air, I made two complete backflips, and I landed again, feet first, on my back, still coming down the cliff face like a howitzer shell. And at that moment, I knew there was a god. First of all, I appeared not to be dead, which was right up there with Jesus walking on the water. But even more amazing was I could see my rifle not two feet from my right hand, as if God himself had reached down to me and given me hope. Marcus, I heard him say, you're gonna need this. At least, I think I heard him. In fact, I swear to God I heard him because this was a miracle, no doubt in my mind, and I had not even had time to say my prayers. I didn't know how far down we'd fallen, but it must have been two or three hundred yards, and we were both still going very fast. I could see Mikey up ahead, and I honestly did not know whether he was dead or alive. It was just a person crashing through the dirt and boulders, if he had not broken every bone in his body, that too was a miracle. Me? 
I was too battered to hurt, and I could still see my rifle tumbling down beside me. That rifle never strayed more than two feet from my hand throughout this death-defying fall, and I'll always know it was guided by the hand of God, because there is no other explanation. We hit the bottom, both of us landing with terrific impact, like we jumped off a goddamned skyscraper. It shook the wind out of me, and I gasped for breath, trying to work out how badly injured I was. My right shoulder hurt, my back hurt, and on one side of my face, the skin had been more or less scoured away. I was covered in blood and bruised to hell. But I could stand, which was actually a really bad idea, because then the RPGs began to arrive, landing close, and I went down again. They exploded more or less harmlessly, but sent up clouds of dust, shale, and wood shards from the trees. Mikey was next to me, maybe 15 feet away, and we picked ourselves up from the ground. He still had his rifle strapped on. Mine was resting at my feet. I grabbed it, and I heard Murphy shout through the din of explosions, You good? I turned to him, and his entire face was black with dust. Even his goddamned teeth were black. You look like shit, man, I told him. Fix yourself up. Despite everything, Mikey laughed. And then I noticed he'd been shot during the fall. There was blood pumping out of his stomach. But just then, there was a thunderous explosion from one of the grenades too close, much too close. We both wheeled around in the swirling dust and smoke, and there behind us were two large logs, actually felled trees. They were crossed over at the ends, like a pair of giant chopsticks facing up the mountain, and we turned simultaneously and sprinted for cover. We cleared the logs and crashed down behind them, safe from gunfire attack for the moment. We were both still armed and ready to fight. I took the right-hand side, Mikey center-left, guarding both the head-on approach and the flank. We could see them plainly now, swarming down the flanks of the cliff we had just crashed down. They were moving very fast, though not nearly as fast as we had. Mikey had a pretty good line on them, and mine wasn't bad. We opened fire straight at them, picking them off one by one as they moved in on us. Trouble was, there were so many, and it didn't seem to matter how many we killed, they just kept coming. I remember thinking that the 200 estimate was a lot closer than the 80 minimum we had been advised. And this must have been Charmack's work because these guys were not really marksmen, were using marginal rifles pretty recklessly, but nonetheless followed the military rules for this type of assault. They advanced down the side of the battlefield, trying to outflank their enemy, always attempting to get a 360-degree cover on their target. We were surely slowing their progress down, but we weren't stopping them. The fire never slackened for five minutes. They had sustained non-stop that opening volley, the one fired way back up the mountain when they could not see their target. 
They had blasted away at us all the way down to these logs, and they had augmented their fire with aimed rocket-propelled grenades. These guys were not being led by some mad-eyed hysteric. They were being led by someone who understood the rudiments of what he was doing. Understood them well. Too well. The fucker. And now they had us pinned down behind the logs, and as ever, the bullets were flying. But we were somehow getting the better of the exchanges. Mikey was ignoring his wound and fighting like a SEAL officer should, uncompromising, steady, hard-eyed, and professional. I could see the guys on that left flank dropping down in their tracks as they raced toward us. On my side, over on the right, the ground was just a little flatter, with trees, and there did not seem to be so many of them. Every time they moved, I shot them. It was probably clear to them that Mikey and I could not be dislodged as long as the big logs covered us. And that's when they went to their biggest barrage of RPGs yet. These damn things trailing that familiar white smoke were unleashed at us from farther up the mountain. They landed to the front and the side, but not behind, and they caused a tidal wave of dirt, rocks, and smoke showering us with the stuff, robbing us of our vision. Our heads went down, and I asked Mikey where the hell were Axe and Danny, and of course, neither of us knew. All we knew was they were up the mountain, not yet having jumped as we had. Guess Axe must have dug in and kept fighting out on the left, he said. Danny's got a better chance of radio contact high up than he would down here. We risked a look up through the gloom, and we saw a figure plummeting down the mountain just to the left of where we had fallen. Axe, no doubt. But could he survive that fall? He was on the first slope before the trees, and a second later, he hurtled over the ski jump, flipped, and crashed on down the almost sheer cliff face. The gradient saved him, as it had saved Mikey and me, the way the steep mountain saves a ski jumper, enabling him to continue down at high speed without a terminal collision with flat ground. Axe arrived in one piece, stunned and disoriented. But the Taliban could see him now, and they opened fire on him as he lay on the ground. Run, Axe! Right here, buddy! Run! yelled Murph, top of his lungs. And Axe recovered his senses real quick, bullets flying around him, and he cleared those logs and crashed into our hide, landing on his back. It's unbelievable what you can do when the threat to your own life is that bad. He took the far left, slammed a new magazine into the breach, and started fighting. Never missed a beat, hammering away at our most vulnerable point of enemy attack. The three of us just kept going, shooting them down, hoping and praying their numbers would lessen, that we had punched a hole in their assault. But it sure as hell never seemed like it. Those guys were still swarming, still firing and the noise was still deafening. The question was, where was Danny? Was that little mountain lion still fighting, still trying to make contact as he pounded away at Charmack's troops? Was he still trying to get through to HQ? None of us knew, but the answer was not long in arriving.
From high up on the right, on the main cliff face, there was a sudden, unusual movement. Someone was falling, and it had to be Danny. The flailing body crashed through the high woods and flipped at the ski jump, tumbling, tumbling all the way to the bottom, where it landed with a sickening thump. Just as we all had. But Danny never moved. Just lay there, either stunned or dead. And the folklore of the Brotherhood stood starkly before both Mikey and me. No seal was ever left alone to die on the battlefield. No seal. I dropped my rifle and cleared the log in one bound. Mikey came right after me. Axe kept firing, trying to give us cover as we ducked down and ran fast across the flat ground to the base of the cliff. Mikey was still pouring blood from his stomach, and I felt like I had a broken back, low down, base of my spine. We reached Danny together, hoisted him up, and manhandled him back to the logs, dragging him into what passed for safety around here. They fired at us from the heights all the way across that lethal ground, but no one got hit. And somehow, against truly staggering odds, we were all still going, all in one piece, except for the shot Mikey took. As the resident medic, I should have been able to help, but all my stuff had been ripped away in the fall, and there was no time to do anything except shoot these bastards who carried AK-47s and hope to Christ they'd give up, or at least run out of those RPGs. They could hurt someone if they weren't careful. Fuckers. Right then, I was confident we were going to make it. The ground fell away quite sharply behind us, but way below was our target village, and it was on flat ground with sturdy-looking houses. Cover, that was all we needed, with our enemy caught flat-footed on flat ground. We'd be all right. We'd get him. Danny fought back, cleared his head, and tried to get up. But his face was rigid. He was in terrible pain. And then I saw the blood pouring out of his hand. I've been shot, Marcus. Can you help me? He said. We've all been shot, replied Mikey. Can you fight? I stared at Danny's right hand. His thumb had been blown right off. And I saw him grit his teeth and nod, sweat streaming down his blackened face. He adjusted his rifle, banged in a new magazine with the butt of his hand, and took his place in the center of our little gun line. Then he turned to face the enemy once more. He was a bull mastiff, glaring up the mountain, and he opened fire with everything he had. Danny, Mikey, and Axe blasted that left flank while I held the right. The fire was still fierce on all sides, but we sensed there were more dead Afghans to the left than there were to the right. Murph shouted, We're going for the higher ground, this side! And with all four barrels blazing, we tried to storm that left flank, get a foothold on the steep slope, maybe even fight our way back to the top if we could kill enough of them. But they also wanted the higher ground, and they reinforced their right flank, driving down from the top anything to stop us getting that upper hand. We must have killed fifty or more of them, and all four of us were still fighting. 
I guess they probably noticed that because they were prepared to fight to the last man to hold our left, their right. There were so many of them, and we found ourselves slipping inexorably back down the hill as the turbaned warriors closed in on us, driving us back by sheer weight of numbers, sheer volume of fire. When they loosed off another battery of RPGs, we had no other option but to retreat and dive back behind the crossed logs before they blew our heads off. God only knew the size of whatever arms cache they were drawing ordnance from, but we were just finding out what a force Sharmak and his guys really were, trained, heavily armed, fearless, and strategically on the ball. Not quite what we expected when we first landed at Bagram. Back behind the logs, we kept going, mowing them down on the flanks whenever we could get a clear shot. But again, the inflexible, unswerving progress of Sharmak's forces coming down the escarpment after us was simply too overwhelming. Not so much due to the volume of fire, but because of their irresistible drive down the left and right of our position. The logs gave us good cover from the front, and not bad to 90 degrees. But once they got past that, firing from slightly behind us on both sides, well, that was the reason we jumped from the heights in the first place, risking our necks, not knowing when or even if we would land on reasonable ground. There were not enough of us to protect our flanks. We were too occupied defending our position against a head-on attack. I suppose the goat herds had told them we were only four, and Sharmak swiftly guessed we would be vulnerable on the wings. I'm guessing a dozen seals could have held and then destroyed them, but that would have been odds of around ten or eleven to one. We were only four, and that was probably thirty-five to one, which is known in military vernacular as a balls-to-the-wall situation especially as we now seemed incapable of calling up the cavalry from HQ. Right here was a 21st century version of General Custer's last stand, Little Bighorn, with turbans. But they hadn't gotten us yet, and if I had my way, they were never going to. I know all four of us thought exactly that. Our only option, however, was to get to flatter ground. And there wasn't any of that up here. There was only one way for us to go, backward and down. Straight down. Mike Murphy called it. They'll kill us all if we stay here. Jump, guys. For fuck's sake, jump. And once more, all four of us clutched our rifles, stood up, braved the flying bullets, and headed for the precipice. We leaped into the void, Mikey first, me next, then Axe, then Danny. The drop must have been about 30 or 40 feet down into a thicket of shrubs alongside a little stream. We were by no means at the base of this little escarpment, but at least we were once more on a flat bit and not clinging to some cliff face. I landed directly on top of Mikey, then Axe and Danny landed on both of us. There wasn't even time to let rip with a few curses. 
We spread out and took up firing position again, preparing once more to blast the enemy away from our flanks, where they would be sure to begin their advance in the next stage of the battle. They were clambering down the rocks to our right, and I was trying to make sure none of them made it to the bottom. My rifle felt red hot, and I just kept loading and shooting, aiming and firing, wishing to hell I still had my Texas helmet. We were trying to move into a decent position, jumping between the rocks, working our way out into open ground. But we were picking up fire now. The Taliban had seen us and were raining bullets down, firing from a prime overhead spot. We moved back against the rocks, and Danny was shot again. They hit him in his lower back, and the bullet blew out of his stomach. He was still firing, Christ knows how, but he was. Danny's mouth was open, and there was blood trickling out. There was blood absolutely everywhere. It was hot, and the stench of it was unmistakable. The cordite was heavy in the air, and the noise, which had not abated since they first opened fire, was deafening. Our ears were ringing from the blasts like we were wearing headphones. And then they opened up with the grenades again. We saw the white smoke streaking through the air. We saw them coming, winging down that canyon right onto us. And when they blew, the blast was overpowering, echoing from the granite rocks that surrounded us on three sides. It was like the world was blowing up around us, with the flying rock splinters, some of them pretty large, clattering off the cliff walls, the ricocheting bullets, the swirling dust cloud enveloping the shrapnel and covering us, choking us, obscuring everything. Murph was trying to reassess the situation, desperately trying to make the right decision despite our limited options. And let's face it, the options had not changed very much since I first slammed a bullet between that guy's eyes from behind the tree. Right now, we were not hemmed in on our flanks. Our enemy was dead ahead. That, and straight up, overhead. And that's bad. I guess the oldest military strategy in the world is to gain the higher ground. In my experience, no Taliban commander had ever ordered his men to fight from anything other than the high ground. And did they ever have it now? If we'd been in a cornfield, it would have been nothing like so dangerous, because the bullets would have hit the earth and stayed there. But we were in a granite-walled corner, and everything bounced off at about a zillion miles per hour, which is more or less the definition of a ricochet. Everything, bullets, shrapnel, and fragments, came zinging off those rocks. It seemed to us like the Taliban were getting double value for every shot. If the bullet missed, watch the hell out for the ricochet. And how much longer we could go on taking this kind of bombardment without getting ourselves killed was anyone's guess. Murph and Danny had picked up the fight on the left and were still firing, still hitting them pretty good. I was firing upward, trying to pick them off between the rocks. An axe had jammed himself into a good spot in the rocks and was blazing away at the oncoming turbines. Both Murph and I were hoping for a lull in the fire, which would signify we had killed a significant number. But that never came. What came 
were reinforcements. Taliban reinforcements. Groups of guys moving up, replacing their dead, joining the front line of this wide-ranging, large force on their home ground, armed to the teeth, and still unable to kill even one of us. We tried to take the fight to them, concentrating on their strongest positions, pushing them to reinforce their line of battle. No three guys ever fought with higher courage than my buddies up there in those mountains. And damn near surrounded as we were, we still believed we would ultimately defeat our enemy. We still had plenty of ammunition. But then Danny was shot again right through the neck, and he went down beside me. He dropped his rifle and slumped to the ground. I reached down to grab him and drag him closer to the rock face, but he managed to clamber to his feet, trying to tell me he was okay, even though he'd been shot four times. Danny couldn't speak now, but he wouldn't give in. He propped himself up against a rock for cover and opened fire again at the Taliban, signaling he might need a new magazine as his very lifeblood poured out of him. I just stood there for a moment, helplessly, fighting back my tears, witnessing a brand of valor I had never before been privileged to see. What a guy. What a friend. Murph called out to me, The only way's down, kid! As if I didn't know, I called back, Roger that, sir. I knew he meant the village, and it was true. That was our chance. If we could grab one of those houses and make a stand, we would be hard to dislodge. Four seals firing from solid cover will usually get the job done. All we needed to do was coax the Taliban down there. Although if things didn't get a whole lot better in the next few minutes, we might not make it ourselves. Chapter 8. The Final Battle for Murphy's Ridge The ground shook. The very few trees swayed. The noise was worse than any blast all day. This was one gigantic Taliban effort to finish us. We hit the deck to avoid the lethal flying debris, rock fragments, and shrapnel. Lieutenant Mike Murphy bellowed out the command, the third time he had done so in the battle. Same mountain, same command. Fall back! Axe and Marcus first! Again, he really meant fall off, and we were all getting real used to it. Axe and I sprinted for the edge, while Murph and Danny, tucked into the rocks, drew fire and covered our escape. I had no idea whether Danny could even move again, with all his wounds. Lying right along the top of the cliff was a tree trunk with a kind of hollow underneath it, as if it had been washed out by the rains. Axe, who could think quicker on his feet than most people I've ever met, made straight for that hole, because the tree trunk would give him cover as he plunged down to whatever the hell was over the goddamned cliff. The slimly built axe hit the ground like a javelin, skidded fast into the hollow, shot straight under the log and out into space. I hit the ground like a Texas longhorn and came to a grinding halt, stuck fast under the log. Couldn't go forward, couldn't go back, 
fuck me. Was this a bummer or what? The Taliban had seen me by now. I was the only one they could see, and I heard a volley of bullets screaming around me. One shot smacked into the tree just to my right. The rest were hitting the dirt and sending up puffs of dust. I heaved at the log. I heaved with all my might, but I could not move that sucker. I was pinned down. I was trying to look backward, wondering if Mikey had seen me and might try a rescue, when suddenly I saw the stark white smoke trail of an incoming RPG against the mountain. The RPG smashed into the tree trunk right next to me and exploded with a shattering blast as I tried frantically to turn away from it. I can't tell what happened next, but it blew the goddamn trunk clean in half and shot me straight over the cliff. I guess it was about 15 feet down to where Axe was moving into firing position, and I landed close. Considering I'd just been blown over the ledge like a freaking human cannonball, I was pretty lucky to be still standing. And there, right next to me on the ground, was my rifle, placed there by the hand of God himself. I reached down to pick it up and listened again for his voice. But this time, there was no noise, just one brief second of silence in my mind amid all the chaos and malevolence of this monstrous struggle for supremacy, apparently being conducted on behalf of his holy prophet, Muhammad. I was not sure whether either of them would have approved. I don't know that much about Muhammad, but by all that's holy, I don't think my own God wished me to die. If he had been indifferent to my plight, he surely would not have taken such good care of my gun, right? Because how on earth that was still with me, I will never know. That rifle had so far fought three separate battles in three different places, been ripped out of my grasp twice, been blown over a cliff by a powerful grenade, fallen almost 900 feet down a mountain, and was still, somehow, right next to my outstretched hand. Fluke? Believe what you will. My own faith will remain forever unshaken. Anyhow, I picked it up and moved back into the rocks where Axe was now picking up fire from the enemy. But he was well positioned and fighting back, blazing away on the left, the flank for which he'd fought so desperately for so long. Actually, it had been about 40 minutes, but it seemed like 10 years and we were both still going. So, for that matter, were Mikey and Danny, and somehow they had both made the leap down here to the lower level, near the stream where the Taliban assault was not quite so bad. Yet. We looked, by the way, shocking, especially Danny, who was covered head to toe in blood. Axe was okay, but badly battered, and Mikey was soaked in blood from that stomach wound. Not as bad as Danny, but not pretty. When that grenade blew me over the cliff, it probably should have killed me. But the only new injury I had sustained was a broken nose, which I got when I hit the deck semi-conscious. To be honest, it hurt like hell, along with my back, and I was bleeding all over my gear. However, I had not been seriously shot, as two of my team had. 
Axe was holding the tribesmen off, leaning calmly on a rock, firing up the hill, the very picture of an elite warrior in combat. No panic, rock steady, firing accurately, conserving his ammunition, missing nothing. I was close to him in a similar stance, and we were both hitting them pretty good. One guy suddenly jumped up from nowhere a little above us, and I shot him dead, about 30 yards range. But we were trapped again. There were still around 80 of these maniacs coming down at us, and that's a heck of a lot of enemies. I'm not sure what their casualty rate was, because both Mikey and I estimated Charmack had thrown 140 men minimum into this fight. Whatever, they were still there, and I was not sure how long Danny could keep going. Mikey worked his way alongside me and said with vintage Murphy humor, Man, this really sucks. I turned to face him and told him, we're gonna fucking die out here if we're not careful. I know, he replied. And the battle raged on, the massed wild gunfire of a very determined enemy against our more accurate, better trained response, superior concentration, and war-fighting know-how. Once more, Hundreds of bullets were ricocheting around our rocky surroundings, and once more, the Taliban went to the grenades, blasting the terrain around us to pieces. Jammed between rocks, we kept firing. But Danny was in all kinds of trouble, and I was afraid he might lose consciousness. That was when they shot him again, right at the base of the neck. I watched in horror as Danny went down, this beautiful guy, husband of Patsy, a friend of mine for four years, a guy who had always been last away while we retreated, a guy who had provided our covering fire until he couldn't stand anymore. And now he lay on the ground, blood pouring from his five wounds. And I was supposed to be a fucking SEAL medic, and I could not do a damn thing for him without getting us all killed. I dropped my rifle and climbed over the rock, running across open ground to get to him. All right, all right. No hero bullshit. I was crying like a baby. Danny was saturated in blood, still conscious, still trying to fire his rifle at the enemy. But he was in a face-down position. I told him to take it easy while I turned him over. Come on, Dan. We're gonna be all right. He nodded and I knew he could not speak and would probably never speak again. What I really remember is he would not let go of his rifle. I raised him by the shoulders and hauled him into an almost sitting position. Then, grasping him under the arms, I started to drag him backward toward cover. And would you believe, that little Iron Man opened fire at the enemy once again, almost lying on his back, blasting away up the hill while I kept dragging. We'd gone about eight yards when everything I dreaded came true. Here I was, just about defenseless, trying to walk backward, both hands full, when a Taliban fighter suddenly loomed up out of the rocks to our right. He was right on top of us, looking down, a smile on his face as he aimed that AK-47 straight at my head. Neither of us saw him in time to return fire. I just said a quick prayer and stared back at him. 
which was precisely when Axe banged two bullets right between his eyes, killed that tribesman stone dead instantly. I didn't have time to thank him because the grenades were still coming in, and I just kept trying to drag Danny to safety. And like Axe, Danny kept firing. I got him to the rock face just a few yards from Mikey, and it was clear the enemy had nearly managed to surround us for the fourth time today. We could tell by the direction of the gunfire and occasionally the RPGs. Danny was still alive and willing to fight, and Mikey was now fighting shoulder to shoulder with Axe, and they were inflicting heavy damage. I still thought we had a chance of getting out, but once more, the only option was down, toward that village and onto the flat ground. Fighting uphill, as we had been doing since this battle started, did, in the words of our mission officer, really suck. I yelled out loudly, Axe, moving! He had time to shout back, Roger that! Before they shot him in the chest. I watched his rifle fall from his grasp. He slumped forward and slipped down the rock he'd been leaning on all the way to the ground. I absolutely froze. This could not be happening. Matt Axelson, a family fixture, Morgan's best friend, a part of our lives. I started calling his name irrationally, over and over. Privately, I thought Danny was dying, and all I could see was a stain of blood gathering in the red dirt where Axe was slumped. For a brief moment, I thought I might be losing it. But then Axe reached for his rifle and got up. He leveled the weapon, got a hold of another magazine, shoved it into the breech, and opened fire again, blood pumping out of his chest. He held his same firing position, leaning against the rock. He showed the same attitude of solid Navy SEAL know-how, the same formidable steadiness, staring through his scope, those brilliant blue eyes of his scanning the terrain. When Axe got up, it was the bravest thing I ever saw. Except for Danny, except for Mikey, still commanding us after taking a bullet through his stomach so early in the battle. And now Murph was masterminding a way down the escarpment. He had chosen the route and called up Axe to follow him down. And still, the bullets were humming around us as the Taliban started their pursuit. Mikey and Axe were about 75 yards in front, and I was dragging Danny along while he did everything he could to help, trying to walk, trying to give us covering fire. It's okay, Danny, I kept saying. We just need to catch up with the others. It's gonna be all right. Right then, a bullet caught him full in the upper part of his face. I heard it hit home. I turned to help him and the blood from his head wound spilled over us both. I called out to him, but it was too late. He wasn't fighting the terrible pain anymore, and he couldn't hear me. Danny Dietz died right there in my arms. I don't know how quickly hearts break, but that nearly broke mine. And still, the gunfire never abated. I dragged Danny off the open ground, maybe five feet, 
and then I said goodbye to him. I lowered him down, and I had to leave him or else die out here with him. But I knew one thing for certain. I still had my rifle, and I was not alone, and neither was Danny, a devout Roman Catholic. I left him with God. And now I had to get back to help my team. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. To this day, I have nightmares about it. A chilling dream where Danny's still talking to me, and there's blood everywhere, and I have to walk away, and I don't even know why. I always wake up in tears, and it will always haunt me. And it's never going to go away. And now I could hear Murph yelling to me. I grabbed my rifle, ducked down, slipped and fell off a rock, then started to run toward him and Axe while they provided heavy covering fire nonstop aimed at the Taliban's rocky redoubt, maybe another 40 yards back. I reached the edge, ran almost blindly into a tree, bounced off, skidded down the slope, which was not very deep, and landed on my head right in the fucking stream. Like any good frogman, I was seriously pissed off because my boots got wet. I really hate that. Finally, I caught up with them. Axe was out of ammunition, and I gave him a new magazine. Mikey wanted to know where Danny was, and I had to tell him that Danny had died. He was appalled, completely shocked, and so was Axe. Although Mikey would not say it, I knew he wanted to go back for the body. But we both knew there was no time and no reason. We had nowhere to take the remains of a fallen teammate, and we could not continue this firefight while carrying around a body. Danny was dead. And strangely, I was the first to pull myself together. I said suddenly, I'll tell you what, we have to get down this goddamn mountain or we'll all be dead. And as if to make up our minds for us, the Taliban were again closing in, trying to make that 360-degree movement around us. And they were doing it. Gunfire was coming in from underneath us now. We could see the tribesmen still swarming, and I tried to count them as I had been trying to do for almost an hour. I thought there were now only about 50, maybe 60, but the bullets were still flying, the grenades were still coming in, blasting close, sending up dust clouds of smoke and dirt with flying bits of rock. There had never been a lull in the amount of ordnance the enemy was piling down on us. Right now, again tucked low behind rocks, the three of us could look down and see the village, one and a half miles distant, and it remained our objective. Again, I told Mikey, if we can just make it down there and get some cover, we'll take them all out on the flat ground. I knew we were not in great shape, but we were still seals. Nothing can ever take that away. We were still confident, and we were never going to surrender. If it came down to it, we would fight to the death with our knives against their guns. Fuck surrender, said Mikey and he had no need to explain further, either to Axe or me. Surrender would have been a disgrace to our community, like ringing the bell at the edge of the grinder and putting your helmet in the line. 
No one who had made it through this far to this no-man's land in the Afghan mountains would have dreamed of giving up. Remember the philosophy of the U.S. Navy SEALs. I will never quit. My nation expects me to be physically harder and mentally stronger than my enemies. If knocked down, I will get back up every time. I will draw on every remaining ounce of strength to protect my teammates. I am never out of the fight. Those words have sustained many brave men down the years. They were engraved upon the soul of every seal, and they were in the minds of all of us. Mikey suddenly said, above the rage of the battle, Remember, bro, we're never out of it. I nodded tersely. It's only about another thousand yards to flat ground. If we can just get down there, we got a chance. Trouble was, we couldn't get down there. At least, not right then. Because once more, we were pinned down. And we faced the same dilemma. The only escape was to go down. But our only defensive strategy was to go up. Once more, we had to get off this ground, away from the ricochets, back up the left flank. We were trying to fight the battle our way. But even though we were still going, we were battered half to death. I led the way back up the rocks, blasting away, shooting down anyone I could see. But they caught on to that real quick. And now they really unloaded on us. Russian-made rocket grenades coming straight down their right flank our left. The ground shook. The very few trees swayed. The noise was worse than any blast all day. Even the walls of this little canyon shook. The stream splashed over its banks. This was one gigantic Taliban effort to finish us. We hit the deck, jamming ourselves into our rocky crevasse, heads down to avoid the lethal flying debris, rock fragments, and shrapnel. As before, they did not kill anyone with this type of thunderous bombardment, and as before, they waited till the dust had cleared, and then opened fire again. Above me, I could see the tree line. It was not close, but it was nearer than the village. But the Taliban knew our objective, and as we tried to fight our way forward, they drove us back with sheer weight of fire. We'd tried against all the odds and just could not make it. They'd knocked us back again, and we retreated down, making a long, pathetic loop back the way we'd come. But once more, we landed up in a good spot, a sound defensive position, well protected by the rock face on either side. Again, we tried to take the fight to them, picking our targets and driving them back, making some ground now toward the village. They were up and screaming at us, yelling as the battle almost became close quarters. We yelled right back and kept firing. But there were still so many of them. And then they got into better position and shot Mikey Murphy through the chest. He came toward me, asking if I could give him another magazine. And then I saw Axe stumbling toward me, his head pushed out, blood running down his face, bubbling out of the most shocking head wound. They shot me, bro, he said. The bastard shot me. 
Can you help me, Marcus? What could I say? What could I do? I couldn't help except by trying to fight off the enemy. An axe was standing right in my line of fire. I tried to help him get down behind a rock. And I turned to Mikey, who was obviously badly hurt now. Can you move, buddy? I asked him. And he groped in his pocket for his mobile phone, the one we had dared not use because it would betray our position. And then Lieutenant Murphy walked out into the open ground. He walked until he was more or less in the center, gunfire all around him, and he sat on a small rock and began punching in the numbers to HQ. I could hear him talking. My men are taking heavy fire. We're getting picked apart. My guys are dying out here. We need help. And right then, Mikey took a bullet straight in the back. I saw the blood spurt from his chest. He slumped forward, dropping his phone and his rifle. But then he braced himself, grabbed them both, sat upright again, and once more put the phone to his ear. I heard him speak again. Roger that, sir. Thank you. Then he stood up and staggered out to our bad position, the one guarding our left, and Mikey just started fighting again, firing at the enemy. He was hitting them, too, having made that one last desperate call to base, the one that might yet save us if they could send help in time before we were overwhelmed. Only I knew what Mikey had done. He'd understood we had only one realistic chance, and that was to call in help. He also knew there was only one place from which he could possibly make that cell phone work, out in the open, away from the cliff walls. Knowing the risk, understanding the danger, in the full knowledge the phone call could cost him his life. Lieutenant Michael Patrick Murphy, son of Maureen, fiancé of the beautiful Heather, walked out into the firestorm. His objective was clear, to make one last valiant attempt to save his two teammates. He made the call, made the connection. He reported our approximate position, the strength of our enemy, and how serious the situation was. When they shot him, I thought mortally. He kept talking. Roger that, sir. Thank you. Will those words ever dim in my memory, even if I live to be a hundred? Will I ever forget them? Would you? And was there ever a greater SEAL Team commander, an officer who fought to the last, and as perhaps his dying move, risked everything to save his remaining men? I doubt there was ever anyone better than Mikey, cool under fire, always thinking, fearless about issuing the one option command, even if it was nearly impossible. And then the final utterly heroic act, not a gesture, an act of supreme valor. Lieutenant Mikey was a wonderful person and a very, very great SEAL officer. 
if they build a memorial to him as high as the Empire State Building, it won't ever be high enough for me. Mikey was still alive, and he carried on, holding the left. I stayed on the right, both of us firing carefully and accurately. I was still trying to reach slightly higher ground, but the depleted army of the Taliban was determined that I should not get it, and every time I tried to advance even a few yards, get even a few feet higher, they drove me back. Mikey, too, was still trying to climb higher, and he actually made it some of the way, into a rock strata above where I was standing. It was a good spot from which to attack, but defensively poor. And I knew this must surely be Mikey's last stand. Just then, Axe walked right by me in a kind of a daze, making only a marginal attempt at staying in the cover of the rocks. Then I saw the wound, the right side of his head almost blown away. I shouted, Axe, Axe, come on, old buddy. Get down there, right down there. I was pointing at the one spot in the rocks we might find protection. And he tried to raise his hand, an act of confirmation that he'd heard me. But he couldn't. And he kept walking, slowly hunched forward, no longer clutching his rifle. He was down to just his pistol. But I knew he could not hold that aim and fire. At least he was headed for cover, even though no one could survive a head wound like that. I knew Axe was dying. Mikey was still firing, but suddenly I heard him scream my name, the most bone-chilling, primeval scream. Help me, Marcus! Please, help me! He was my best friend in all the world. But he was 30 yards up the mountain, and I could not climb to him. I could hardly walk. And if I'd moved two yards out of my protected position, they would have hit me with a hundred bullets. Nonetheless, I edged out around the rocks to try to give him covering fire, to force these bastards back, give him a breather until I could find a way to get up there without getting mowed down. And all the time, he was screaming, calling out my name, begging me to help him live. And there was nothing I could do except die with him. Even then, with only a couple of magazines left, I still believed I could nail these fuckers in the turbans and somehow save him and Axe. I just wanted Mikey to stop screaming for his agony to end. But every few seconds, he cried out for me again. And every time it happened, I felt like I'd been stabbed. There were tears welling uncontrollably out of my eyes, not for the first time on this day. I would have done anything for Mikey. I'd have laid down my own life for him. But my death right here in this outcrop of rocks was not going to save him. If I could save him, it would be by staying alive. And then, as suddenly as it began, the screaming stopped. 
There was silence for a few seconds, as if even these Taliban warriors understood that Mikey had died. I moved slightly forward and looked up there in time to see four of them come down and fire several rounds into his fallen body. The screaming had stopped, for everyone except me. I still hear Mikey, every night. I still hear that scream above all other things, even above the death of Danny Dietz. For several weeks, I thought I might be losing my mind, because I could never push it aside. There were one or two frightening occasions when I heard it in broad daylight and found myself pressed against a wall, my hands covering my ears. I always thought these kinds of psychiatric problems were suffered by other people, ordinary people, not by Navy SEALs. I now know the reality of them. I also doubt whether I will ever sleep through the night again. Danny was dead. Mikey was now dead. And Axe was dying. Right now, there were two of us, but only just. I resolved to walk down to where Axe was hiding and to die there with him. There was, I knew, unlikely to be a way out. There were still maybe fifty of the enemy, perhaps by now hunting only me. It took me nearly ten minutes, firing back behind me sporadically to try to pin them down, just in case. I was firing on the wild chance that there was a shot at survival, that somehow Mikey's phone call might yet have the guys up here in time for a last-ditch rescue. When I reached Axe, he was sitting in a hollow, and he'd fixed a temporary bandage on the side of his head. I stared at him, wondering where those cool blue eyes of his had gone. The eyes in which I could now see my own reflection were blood black, the sockets filled from the terrible wound in his skull. I smiled at him, because I knew we would not walk this way again, at least not together, not on this earth. Axe did not have long. If he'd been in the finest hospital in North America, Axe would still not have had long. The life was ebbing out of him, and I could see this powerful super-athlete growing weaker by the second. Hey, man, I said, you're all fucked up. And I tried pitifully to fix the bandage. Marcus, they got us good man. He spoke with difficulty, as if trying to concentrate. And then he said, you stay alive, Marcus, and tell Cindy I love her. Those were his last words. I just sat there. And that was where I planned to stay, right there with Axe, so he wouldn't be alone when the end came. I didn't give a flying fuck what happened to me anymore. Quietly, I made my peace with God, and I thanked him for protecting me and saving my rifle, which somehow I still had. I never took my eyes off Axe, who was semi-conscious, but 
still breathing. Along with the other two, Axe will always be a hero to me. Throughout this brief but brutal conflict, he'd fought like a wounded tiger, like Audie Murphy, like Sergeant York. They shot away his body, crippled his brain, but not his spirit. They never got that. Matthew Jean Axelson, husband of Cindy, fired at the enemy until he could no longer hold his rifle. He was just past his 29th birthday. And in his dying moments, I never took my eyes off him. I don't think he could hear me any longer, but his eyes were open and we were still together. And I refused to allow him to die alone. Right then, they must have seen us, because one of those super-powerful Russian grenades came in, landed close, and blew me sideways, right out of the hollow, across the rough ground, and over the edge of the goddamned ravine. I lost consciousness before I hit the bottom, and when I came to, I was in a different hollow. And my first thought was I'd been blinded by the explosion, because I couldn't see a thing. However, after a few seconds, I gathered my wits and realized I was upside down in the freaking hole. I still had my eyesight and a few other working parts, but my left leg seemed paralyzed, and to a lesser degree, so was my right. It took me God knows how long to wriggle out onto flat ground and claw my way into the cover of a rock. My ears were zinging. I guess from the blast of the grenade, I looked up and saw I had fallen a pretty good way down, but I was too disoriented to put a number on it. The main difference between now and when I'd been sitting with Axe was that the gunfire had ceased. If they'd reached Axe, who could not possibly have lived through the blast, they might not have bothered to go on shooting. They obviously had not found me and I would have been real hard to locate upside down in the hole. But whatever, no one seemed to be looking. For the first time in maybe an hour and a half, I was apparently not being actively hunted. Aside from being unable to stand, I had two other very serious problems. The first was the total loss of my pants. They'd been blown right off me. The second was the condition of my left leg, which I could scarcely feel, but which was a horrific sight, bleeding profusely and full of shrapnel. I had no bandages, nothing medical. I had been able to do nothing for my teammates, and I could do nothing for myself, except try to stay hidden. It was not a promising situation. I was damn sure I'd broken my back and probably my shoulder. I'd broken my nose, and my face was a total mess. I couldn't stand up, never mind walk. At least one leg was wrecked, and maybe the other. I was paralyzed in both thighs, and the only way I could move was to belly crawl. Unsurprisingly, I was dazed. And through this personal fog of war, there was yet one more miracle for me to recognize. Not two feet from where I was lying, 
half hidden by dirt and shale, well out of sight of my enemy, was my Mark 12 rifle, and I still had one and a half magazines left. I prayed before I grabbed it, because I thought it might be just a mirage, and that when I tried to hold it, well, it might just disappear. But it did not, and I felt the cold steel in the hot air as my fingers clasped it. I listened again for his voice. I prayed again, imploring him for guidance. But there was no sound, and all I knew was that somehow I had to make it out to the right where I'd be safe, at least for a while. My God had not spoken again, but neither had he forsaken me. I knew that, for damned sure, I knew that. I knew one other thing as well. For the first time, I was entirely alone. Here in these Taliban-controlled hostile mountains, there was no earthly teammate for me, and my enemy was all around. Had they heeded the words of the goat herds, that there were four of us, and that right now they had only three bodies? Or did they assume I had been blown to pieces by the blast of the final Russian RPG? I had no answer to those questions. Only hope, with absolutely no one to turn to, no Mikey, no Axe, no Danny. I had to face the final battle by myself, maybe lonely, maybe desolate, maybe against formidable odds. But I was not giving up. I had only one teammate, and he moved, as ever, in mysterious ways. But I was a Christian, and he had somehow saved me from a thousand AK-47 bullets on this day. No one had shot me which was well nigh beyond all comprehension. And I still believed he did not wish me to die. And I would still try my best to uphold the honor of the United States Navy SEALs, as I imagined they would have wished. No surrender. Fuck that. When I judged I had fully gathered my senses and checked my watch, it was exactly 13.42 local time. For a few minutes, there was no gunfire, and I was beginning to assume they thought I was dead. Wrong, Marcus. The Taliban AKs opened up again, and suddenly there were bullets flying everywhere, all around, just like before. My enemy was coming up on me from the lower levels and from both sides, firing rapidly but inaccurately. Their bullets were ripping into the earth and shale across a wide range, most of them, thank Christ, well away from me. It was clear they thought I might be still alive, but equally clear they had not yet located me. They were conducting a kind of recon by fire, trying to flush me out, blazing away right across the spectrum, hoping someone would finally hit me and finish me. Or better yet, that I would come out with my hands high so the murdering little bastards could cut my head off or indulge in one of their other attractive little idiosyncrasies before telling that evil little television station Al Jazeera how they had conquered the infidels. 
I think I've mentioned my view about surrender. I rammed another magazine into the breech of my miraculous rifle and somehow crawled over this little hill, through the hail of bullets, right into the side of the mountain. No one saw me. No one hit me. I wedged myself into a rocky crevasse with my legs sticking out into a clump of bushes. There were huge rocks to both sides protecting me. Overall, I judged I was jammed into a 15-foot-wide ledge on the mountain. It was not a cave, not even a shallow cave, because it had a kind of open top way above me. Rocks and sand kept falling down on me as the Taliban warriors scrambled around above my position. But this crevasse provided sensational cover and camouflage. Even I realized I would be pretty hard to spot. They'd have to get real lucky, even with their latest policy of trying to flush me out with sheer volume of fire. My line of vision was directly ahead. I realized I couldn't move or change position, at least in broad daylight I couldn't, and it was imperative I hide the blood which was leaking from my battered body. I took stock of my injuries. My left leg was still bleeding pretty bad, and I packed the wounds with mud. I had a big cut on my forehead, which I also packed with mud. Both legs were numb. I was not going anywhere. At least, not for a while. I had no medical kit, no maps, no compass. I had my bullets, and I had my gun. And I had a decent view off my mountain, straight ahead over the canyon to the next mountain. I had no pants and no buddies, but no one could see me. I was wedged in tight, my back to the wall in every possible sense. I eased myself into a relatively comfortable position, checked my rifle, and laid it down the length of my body, aiming outward. If enough of them discovered me, I guess I'd quickly be going to join Danny, Axe, and Mikey. But not before I'd killed a whole lot more of them. I was, I knew, in a perfect position for a stubborn, defensive military action, protected on all sides, vulnerable to a frontal assault only, and that would have to be by weight of numbers. I could still hear gunfire, and it was growing closer. They were definitely coming this way. I just thought, don't move, don't breathe, do not make a sound. I think it was about then I understood how utterly alone I was for the very first time. And the Taliban was hunting me. They were not hunting for a SEAL platoon. They were hunting me, alone. Despite my injuries, I knew I had to reach deep. I was starting to lose track of time, but I stayed still. I actually did not move one inch for eight hours. As the time passed, I could see the Taliban guys right across the canyon, running up and down, seemed like hundreds of them, plainly searching scouring the mountain they knew so well, looking for me. I had some feeling back in my legs, but I was bleeding real bad and I was in a lot of pain. I think the loss of blood may have started to make me feel lightheaded. Also, I was scared to death. 
It was the first time in my entire six-year career as a Navy SEAL I had been really scared. At one point, late in the afternoon, I thought they were all leaving. Across the canyon, the mountainside cleared, everyone running hard to the right, swarms of them, all headed for the same place. At least, that's how it seemed to me across my narrow field of vision. I now know where they were going. While I was lying there in my crevasse, I had no idea what the hell was going on. But now I shall recount, to the best of my gathered knowledge, what happened elsewhere on that saddest of afternoons, that most shocking massacre, high in the Hindu Kush, the worst disaster ever to befall the seals in any conflict in our more than 40-year history. The first thing to remember is that Mikey had succeeded in getting through to the Quick Reaction Force, QRF, in Asadabad, a couple of mountain ranges over from where I was still holding out. That last call, the one on his cell phone that essentially cost him his life, was successful. From all accounts, his haunting words, My guys are dying out here. We need help ripped around our base like a flash fire. Seals are dying. That's a five-alarm emergency that stops only just on the north side of Frenzy. Lieutenant Commander Christensen, our acting CO, sounded the alarm. It's always a decision for the QRF to launch or not to launch. Eric took a billionth of a second to make it. I know the vision of us four, his buddies, his friends and teammates, Mikey, Axe, Danny, and me, fighting for our lives, hurt, possibly dead, surrounded by a huge fighting force of bloodthirsty Afghan tribesmen, flashed through his mind as he summoned the boys to action stations. And the vision of terrible loss stood stark before him as he roared down the phone, ordering the men of 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, SOAR, the fabled Night Stalkers, to get the big Army MH-47 Hilo ready, right there on the runway. It was the same one that had taken off just before us on the previous day, the one we tracked in to our ops area. Guys I've already introduced charged into position, desperate to help, cramming as much ammunition as they could into their pouches, grabbing rifles, and running for the Chinook, its rotors already screaming. My SDV Team 1 guys were instantly there. Petty Officers James Sue and Shane Patton reached the Hilo first. Then, scrambling aboard, came the massively built Senior Chief Dan Healy, the man who had masterminded Operation Red Wing, who apparently looked as if he'd been shot as he left the barracks. Then came the SEAL Team 10 guys, Lieutenant Mike McGreevy Jr. of New York, Chief Jacques Fontaine of New Orleans, Petty Officers First Class Jeff Lucas from Oregon, and Jeff Taylor from West Virginia. Finally, still shouting that his boys needed every gun they could get, came Lieutenant Commander Eric Christensen, the man who knew perhaps better than anyone that the eight SEALs in that helo were about to risk a lethal daytime insertion in a high mountain pass right into the jaws of an enemy that might outnumber them by dozens to one. 
Christensen knew he did not have to go. In fact, perhaps he should not have gone, stayed instead at his post, central to control and command. Right then, we had the skipper in the QRF, which was, at best, a bit unorthodox. But Eric Christensen was a seal to his fingertips. And what he knew above all else was that he had just heard a desperate cry for help. From his brothers, from a man he knew well and trusted. There was no way Eric was not going to answer that call. Nothing on God's earth could have persuaded him not to go. He must have known we were barely holding on, praying for help to arrive. There were, after all, only four of us. And to everyone's certain knowledge, there were a minimum of a hundred Taliban. Eric understood the stupendous nature of the risk, and he never blinked. Just grabbed his rifle and ammunition and raced to board that aircraft, yelling at everyone else to hurry. Move it, guys! Let's really move it! That's what he always said under pressure. Sure, he was a commanding officer and a hell of a good one. But more than that, he was a SEAL, a part of that brotherhood forged in blood. Even more important, he was a man. And right now, he was answering an urgent, despairing cry from the very heart of his own brotherhood. There was only one way Eric Christensen was headed. Straight up the mountain, guns blazing, command or no command. Inside the MH-47, the men of 160th Soar waited quietly, as they had done so many times before on these hair-raising air rescue ops, often at night. They were led by a terrific man, Major Steve Reich of Connecticut, with Chief Warrant Officers Chris Schirkenbach of Jacksonville, Florida, and Corey J. Goodnature of Clarks Grove, Minnesota. Master Sergeant James W. Ponder was there, with Sergeants First Class Marcus Morales of Shelbyville, Indiana, and Mike Russell of Stafford, Virginia. Their group was completed by Staff Sergeant Seamus Gore of Danville, Ohio, and Sergeant Kip Jacoby of Pompano Beach, Florida. By any standards, it was a crack army fighting force. The MH-47 took off and headed over the two mountain ranges. I guess it seemed to take forever. Those kind of rescues always do. It came in to land at just about the same spot we had fast roped in at the start of the mission, around five miles from where I was now positioned. The plan was for the rescue team to rope it down, just the same. And when the 30 seconds call came, I guess the lead guys edged toward the stern ramp. What no one knew was the Taliban had some kind of bunker back there. And as the MH-47 tilted back for the insert and the ropes fell away for the climb down, the Taliban fired a rocket-propelled grenade straight through the open ramp. It shot clean past the heads of the lead group and blew with a shattering blast against the fuel tanks, turning the helo into an inferno, stern and midships. Several of the guys were blown out and fell, some of them burning to their deaths from around 30 feet. They smashed into the mountainside and tumbled down. The impact was so violent, our search and rescue parties later found gun barrels snapped in half among the bodies.
The helicopter pilot fought for control, unaware of the carnage behind him, but certainly aware of the raging fires around and above him. Of course, there was nothing he could do. The big MH-47 just fell out of the sky and crashed with thunderous impact onto the mountainside, swayed, and then rolled with brutal force over and over, smashing itself to pieces on a long, 200-yard downward trail to extinction. There was nothing left except scattered debris when our guys finally got up there to investigate. And of course, no survivors. My close SDV Team 1 buddies, James, Chief Dan, and young Shane, were all gone. It was as well I did not know this as I lay there in my crevasse. I'm not sure I could have coped with it. It was nothing less than a massacre. Weeks later, I broke down when I saw the photographs, mostly because it was me they were all trying to rescue. As I explained, at the time, I knew nothing of this. I only knew something had happened that had caused a lot of Taliban to get very obviously excited. And soon I could see U.S. aircraft flying right along the canyon in front of me, A-10s and AH-64 Apache helicopters. Some of them were so close I could see the pilots. I pulled my PRC-148 radio out of my pouch and tried to make contact. But I could not speak. My throat was full of dirt, my tongue was sticking to the roof of my mouth, and I had no water. I was totally unable to transmit. But I knew I was in contact because I could hear the air crew talking. So I fired up my emergency distress beacon on the radio and transmitted that. They picked it up. I know they did, because I could hear them plainly. Hey, you getting that beacon? Yeah, we got it, but no further information. Then they just flew off, over to my right, where I now know the MH-47 had gone down. The trouble was, the Taliban steal those radios if they can, and they often use them to lure the U.S. helicopters down. I was unaware of this at the time, but now it's obvious to me. The American pilots were extremely jumpy about trying to put down in response to a U.S. beacon because they did not know who the hell was aiming that beacon, and they might get shot down. Which would have been, anyway, little comfort to me, lying there on the mountainside, only half alive, bleeding to death, and unable to walk. And now? It was growing dark, and I was plainly running out of options. I guessed my only chance was to attract the attention of one of the pilots who were still flying down my canyon at pretty regular intervals. My radio headset had been ripped away during my fall down the mountain, but I still had the wires, and I somehow rigged up two of my chem lights, which glow when you break them in half, and fixed them to the defunct radio wires. And then I whirled this homemade slingshot around my head in a kind of luminous buzzsaw the first moment I saw a helicopter in the area. I also had an infrared strobe light that I could fire up, and I had the laser from my rifle, which I took off and aimed at the regular U.S. flyby. 
Jesus Christ, I was a living, breathing distress signal. There's got to be someone watching these mountains. Someone's got to see me. I was using this procedure only when I actually saw a helicopter. And soon, my optimism turned to outright gloom. No one was paying attention. From where I was lying, it looked like I'd been abandoned for dead. By now, with the sun declining behind the mountains, I had almost all of the feeling back in my legs. And this gave me hope that I might be able to walk, although I knew the pain might be a bit fierce. I was getting dangerously thirsty. I could not get the clogged dust and dirt out of my throat. It was all I could do to breathe, never mind speak. I had to find water, and I had to get the hell out of this death trap. But not until the veil of darkness fell over these mountains. I knew I had to get myself out, first to water, and then to safety, because it sure as hell didn't look like anyone was going to find me. I remember Axe's final words. They still rang clearly in my mind. You stay alive, Marcus, and tell Cindy I love her. For Axe and for Danny, and above all, for Mikey, I knew I must stay alive. I saw the last long rays of the mountain sun cast their gigantic shadows through the canyon before me. And just as certainly, I saw the glint of the silver barrel of an AK-47 right across from me, dead ahead, on the far cliff face, maybe a 150 yards. It caught the rays of the dying sun twice, which suggested the son of a bitch who was holding it was making a sweep across the wall of my mountain, right past the crevasse inside of which I was still lying motionless. And now... I could see the tribesman in question. He was just standing there, his shirt sleeves rolled up, wearing a blue and white checkered vest, holding his rifle in the familiar low-slung grip of the Afghans, a split second short of raising it to the firing position. The only conclusion was, he was looking for me. I did not know how many of his buddies were within shouting range but I did know if he got a clear sight across that canyon and somehow spotted me, I was essentially history. He could hardly miss, and he kept staring across, but he did not raise his rifle. Yet. I decided this was not a risk I was prepared to take. My own rifle was loaded and suppressed. There would be little noise to attract anyone else's attention, and very carefully, hardly daring to breathe. I raised the Mark 12 into the firing position and drew down on the little man on the far ridge. He was bang in the crosshairs of my telescopic sight. I squeezed the trigger and hit him straight between the eyes. I just had time to see the blood bloom out into the center of his forehead, and then I watched him topple over the edge down into the canyon. He must have fallen 200 feet, screaming with his dying breath all the way. I was not in any way moved, except to thank God there was one less. Almost immediately, two of his colleagues ran into the precise spot where he had been standing, directly across from me. 
They were dressed more or less the same, except for the different colors of their vests. They stood there staring down into the canyon where the first man had fallen. They both carried AKs, held in the firing position, but not fully raised. I thought they might just take off, but they stood there, now looking hard across the void which separated my mountain from theirs. From where I was, they seemed to be looking right at me, scanning the cliff face for any sign of movement. I knew they had no idea if their pal had been shot, simply fallen, or perhaps committed suicide. However, I think option one was their instinct, and right now they were trying to find out precisely who had shot him. I remained motionless, but those little black eyes were looking straight at me, and I realized if they both opened fire at once on my rocky redoubt, the chances of an AK-47 bullet or bullets hitting me were good to excellent. They had to go, both of them. Once more, I slowly raised my rifle and drew a bead on an armed Taliban tribesman. My first shot killed the one on the right instantly, and I watched him tumble over the edge. The second one, understanding now there was an enemy at large, raised his gun and scanned the cliff face where I was still flat on my back. I hit him straight in the chest. Then I fired a second time in case he was still breathing and able to cry out. He fell forward without a sound and went to join his two buddies on the canyon floor, which left me all alone and thus far undiscovered. Just a few hours previously, Mikey Murphy and I had made a military judgment which cost three lives, the lives of some of the best seals I ever met. Lying here on my ledge, surrounded on all sides by hostile Taliban warriors, I could not afford another mistake. I'd somehow, by the grace of God, been spared from the consequences of the first one, made way up there on that granite outcrop which ought to be named for Mikey, our superb leader. The battle for Murphy's Ridge. Every decision I made from now on would involve my own life or death. I needed to fight my way out, and I did not give a damn how many of the Taliban enemy I had to kill in order to achieve that. The key point was, I could not make another mistake. I could take no chances. The far side of the canyon remained silent as the sun disappeared behind the high western peaks of the Hindu Kush. I figured the Taliban had probably split their search party in this particular area and that I'd gotten rid of one half. Out there somewhere in the deathly silence of the twilight, there would almost certainly be three more, looking for the one surviving American from that original four-man platoon that had inflicted such damage on their troops. The friendly clatter of the U.S. Apaches had gone now. No one was looking for me, and by far my biggest problem was water. Aside from the fact I was still bleeding and couldn't stand up, the thirst was becoming desperate. My tongue was still clogged with dust and dirt, and I still could not speak. I'd lost my water bottle on the mountain during the first crashing fall with Mikey, and it had now been nine hours since I'd had a drink. 
Also, I was still soaking wet from when I fell in the river. I understood I was very lightheaded from loss of blood, but I still tried to concentrate. And the one conclusion I reached was that I had to stand up. If a couple of those Taliban came around that corner to my left, the only way to approach me, and they had any form of light, I'd be like a jackrabbit caught in someone's headlights. My redoubt had served me well, but I had to get out of it right now. When the bodies of those three guys were found at first light, this mountain would be swarming with Taliban. I dragged myself to my feet and stood there in my boxers in the freezing cold mountain air. I tested my right leg. Not too bad. Then I tested my left, and that hurt like the devil. I tried to brush some of the shale and dirt away from where I'd packed the wound, but the shards of the shrapnel were jutting out of my thigh, and every time I touched one, I nearly jumped through the ceiling. At least, I would have if there had been one. One of my main problems was I had no handle on the terrain. Of course, I knew that the mountain reared up behind me and that I was trapped on the cliff face with no way to go except up, which, from where I stood, almost unable to hobble, was a seriously daunting task. I tested my left leg again, and at least it wasn't worse. But my back hurt like hell. I never realized how much pain three cracked vertebrae could inflict on a guy. Of course, I never realized I had three cracked vertebrae either. I could move my right shoulder, despite a torn rotator cuff, which I also didn't realize I had. And my broken nose throbbed a bit, which was kid stuff compared with the rest. I knew one side of my face was shredded by the fall down the mountain, and the big cut on my forehead was pretty sore. But my overriding thought was my thirst. I was only slightly comforted by the closeness of several mountain streams up here. I had to find one, fast, both to clean my wounds and to drink. That way I had a shot at yelling through the radio and locating an American helicopter or fighter aircraft in the morning. I gathered up my gear, radio, strobes, and laser, and repacked them into my pouch. I checked my rifle, which had about 20 rounds left in the magazine, with a full magazine remaining in the harness I still wore across my chest. Then I stepped out of my redoubt into the absolute pitch black and deathly silence of the Hindu Kush. There was no moon, and it was just starting to rain, which meant there wasn't going to be a moon in the foreseeable future. I tested the leg again. It held my weight without giving way. I felt my direction around the huge rock which had been guarding my left flank all day. And then, with the smallest, most timid strides I had ever taken, I stepped out onto the mountain. Chapter 9 Blown Up, Shot, and Presumed Dead Right behind me, I heard the soft footsteps of the chasing gunmen. There were two of them, just above me in the rocks, searching. I had only split seconds to work because they were both on me, AKs raised. I went for my grenades. 
Even in the pitch black of the night, I could feel the shadow of the mountain looming above me. I actually thought I could see it, a kind of dark force, darker than everything else, blacker than the rock walls upon which I was leaning. I knew it was a hell of a long way to the top, and I would have to move sideways like a delta crab if I was going to make it. It was also going to take me all night, but somehow I had to get up there all the way to the top. I had two prime reasons for my strategy. First, it would be flat up there. So if it came down to another firefight, I would have a good chance. No guys firing down on me. Every SEAL likes his chances of winning a fight on flat ground. The second issue was calling in help. No helicopter ever built could land safely on these steep Afghan cliffs. The only place within the mountain range where an MH-47 could put down was in the flat bowl of the fields below, where the villagers raised crops. Dope, that is. And there was no way I was going to risk hanging out near a village. I was going up, to the upper flatlands, where a helo could get in and then get out. Also, my radio reception would be better up there. I could only hope the Americans were still scouring the mountains, looking for the missing Red Wings. Meanwhile, I thought I might be dying of thirst, and my parched throat was driving me onward to water and perhaps safety. So I took my first steps, guessing I was probably going to climb around 500 feet straight up. But I'd travel a whole lot farther on the zigzag course I'd have to make up the mountain. I began my climb, out there in the dark, by moving directly upward. I jammed my rifle into my belt so I had two hands to grip. But before I'd made the first twenty feet going slightly right, I slipped badly, which was a very scary experience. The gradient was almost sheer, straight down to the valley floor. In my condition, I probably would not have survived the fall and I somehow saved myself from falling any more than about ten feet. Then I picked it up again, clawing my way up, facing the mountain, and grabbing hold of anything I could with a grip like a mechanical digger. You'd have needed a chainsaw to pry me off that cliff face. All I knew was, if I fell, I'd probably plummet several hundred feet to my death, which was good for the concentration. So I kept going, climbing mostly sideways, grabbing rocks, vines, or branches, anything for a grip. Every now and then I'd dislodge something or snap a branch that would not bear my weight, and I guess I must have made more noise than the Taliban army has ever made in mountain maneuvers. I'd been going for a couple of hours when I sensed I heard something behind me. I say sensed, because when you are operating in absolute darkness with no sight at all, everything else is heightened. All of your senses, particularly sound and smell. Not to mention the sixth one. Same one a goat or an antelope or a zebra has. The one that warns vulnerable grazing animals of the presence of a predator. Now, I wasn't that vulnerable, and I sure as hell wasn't grazing. But right then... I was in Predator Central. Those cutthroat tribal bastards were all over my case, and for all I knew, closing in on me. 
I lay flat, stock still on the mountain. And then I heard it again, the distinct snap of a twig or a branch. I estimated it was maybe 200 yards behind me. Right then, my hearing was at some kind of a peak in this ultra-quiet high country. I could have picked up the soft fart of a billy goat a mile away. Then I heard it once more, not the billy goat, the twig, and I knew for absolute certain I was being followed. Fuck. There was still no moon, and I could still see nothing. But that would not be true of the Taliban. They'd been stealing equipment from the Russians, and then the Americans, for years. Everything they had was stolen, except for what bin Laden had purchased for them. And their supplies certainly included a few pairs of NVGs. The Russians were, after all, pioneers of that particular piece of battle gear. And we knew the Mujahideen had stolen everything from them when the Soviet army finally pulled out. The presence of an unseen Afghani tracker was very bad news for me, not least for the remnants of my morale. The thought that there was a group of killers out there stalking me across this mountain, able to see me when I could not see them, well, that was a son of a bitch in any man's army. I decided to press on and hope they did not decide to open fire. When I reached the top, I'd take them out, just as soon as I could see the little bastards. First sign of light, I'd stake my position underneath some bushes where no one could see me, and then I'd deal with them as soon as they got within range. Meantime, I was so thirsty I thought I might die before that hour approached. I was trying everything. I was breaking the thinnest tree branches off and sucking at them for liquid. I sucked at the grass when I found some, hoping for a few drops of Mountain Dew. I even tried to wring out my socks to find just a taste of water. There is nothing quite so terrible as dying of thirst. Believe me, I've been there. As the night wore on, I began to hear the occasional U.S. military aircraft above the mountains, usually flying high. And when I heard one in time, I was out there, whirling my buzzsaw lights, transmitting the beacon as well as I could, still a walking distress signal. But no one heard me. It occurred to me that no one believed I was alive. And that was a very grim thought. It would be pretty hard to find me up here, even if the entire Bagram base was searching for me in these endless mountains. But if no one believed I was still breathing, well, that was probably the end for me. I experienced an inevitable feeling of utter desolation. Worse yet, I was so weakened and in such pain, I realized once and for all I was never going to make it to the top of the mountain. Actually, I might have made it, but my left leg, blasted by that RPG, was never going to stand the climb. I would just have to keep going sideways, struggling across the steep face of the mountain, sometimes down, sometimes up, and hope to get my chance. I was still losing blood, and I still could not speak. But I could hear and I could hear my pursuers, sometimes calling to each other. I remember thinking this was very strange, because they normally moved around in total silence. 
Remember those goat herds? I never heard that first one coming until he was about four feet from me. That's just the way they are, treading softly, lean, light men with no encumbrances, not even water. When those Afghans travel, they carry their guns and ammunition and nothing else. One guy carries the water for everyone, another hauls the extra ammunition, and this leaves the main force free to move very fast, very softly. They are born trackers, able to pick up a trail across the roughest ground, and they can walk right up on you. Of course, that assumes they are only after one of their own. Trying to follow a great 230-pound hulk like myself, slipping and sliding, crashing and breaking branches, causing minor avalanches on the loose ground, I must have been an Afghan tracker's dream. Even I realized my chance of actually losing them was close to zero. Maybe those calls I heard among them were not really commands. Maybe they were outbursts of suppressed laughter at my truly horrible rock-climbing abilities. Wait until it gets light, I thought. This playing field would even out real quick. That's if they didn't shoot me first, in the dark. I kept skirting around the mountain. Way below, I could see the lights from a couple of lanterns, and I thought I could see the flickering flame of a fire. That must have been the valley floor, and it gave me my first guidance as to the terrain. But not much. In fact, it gave me the impression the ground where I was standing was flat, which it really was not. I stopped for a minute to see if there was anything else down in that valley, any further sign of my enemy. But I could still see just about nothing except for the lanterns and the fire, all of them about a mile down. I gathered myself and took a step forward. And in that split second, I realized I had stepped into the void. I just fell clean off that mountain, straight down, falling through the air, not over the ground. I hit the side of the mountain with a terrific bang, knocked the breath right out of me. Then I rolled, crashing through a copse of trees, trying to grab something to slow me down. But I was moving too fast and gathering speed. I fell helplessly down a steep bit, which leveled out for a few yards and allowed me to slow down. Finally, I stopped on the edge of yet another precipice, which I sensed rather than saw. And I just lay there, gasping for breath for a good twenty minutes, scared to death I'd find myself paralyzed. But I wasn't. I could stand. I still had my rifle, although my strobe light had gone. And somehow I had to get back up to my highest point. The lower I was positioned down this mountain, the less my chance of getting rescued. I must go upward. And so, I set off again. I climbed, slipped, and scrambled for two more hours, until I thought I was more or less back to the point where I'd fallen off the mountain. It was 0200 now, and I'd been going for a long time, maybe six or seven hours. The pain was becoming diabolical, but in a way, I was relieved I still had feeling in that left leg. The Taliban army was still following me. I heard them, louder as I climbed higher, as if they'd been waiting for me. 
They were certainly a bigger force now than they had been two hours ago. I could hear them all around, more and more people searching for me, dogs barking, maybe a half mile back. By now, I could hear the river, which I knew was the same one I'd fallen in the previous afternoon, the same river on whose banks my three buddies lay dead. Thirsty as I was, I could not bring myself to go in search of its ice-cold, flowing waters gushing down the mountainside. That was the only water on this earth I could not drink. Water from the river which flowed right by the bodies of Mikey, Danny, and Axe. I had to find a different one. With no compass, only my watch, I had to revert to navigation by the stars, which mercifully were now out, the thick high banks of clouds having passed over. I found the Big Dipper and followed the long curve of its stars all the way to the right angle at the end, where the shape angles upward, pointing directly at the Pole Star. That's the North Star. We learned it in Bud's. If I turned directly toward it and held out my left arm at a right angle, that way was west, the way I was headed. I think at this point, I may have been suffering from hallucinations, that very odd sensation when you cannot really tell reality from a dream. Like most seals, I'd experienced it before, at the back end of Hell Week. But right now, I was becoming very lightheaded. I was a hunted animal, all alone in wild country, and I tried to pretend my buddies were still alive. I invented some kind of a formation, with Danny climbing out on my right flank, Axe up to the left, and Mikey calling the shots in the rear. I pretended they were there. I just couldn't see them. I think I was reaching the end of my tether, but I kept reminding myself of Hell Week. I kept telling myself this was just Hell Week all over again. I'd sucked it up then, and I could suck it up now. Whatever these bastards threw at me, I could take it. I'd come through. I might have been losing my marbles, but I was still a seal. I could not, however, deny the fact I was also becoming disheartened. For the moment, my pursuers were quiet, and I suddenly came upon a huge tree with a couple of big logs resting directly underneath it. I crawled under one of them and rested for a while just lying there, feeling damned sorry for myself. In my head, I played over and over again one of the verses of Toby Keith's country and western classic, American Soldier. I remember lying there, quietly singing the words to myself, the part that said, I might have to die, I'll bear that cross with honor. I sang those words all night. I can't tell you how much they meant to me. I can tell you it's little things like that, the words of a song which can give you the strength to go on. Nonetheless, the fact was, I had no idea what to do. It occurred to me I could just settle in right here and make it my last stand, but I quickly dismissed this as a strategy. In my mind, I was still committed to Axe's last request. You stay alive, Marcus, and tell Cindy I love her. 
hell of a lot of good it would do Cindy Axelson if I ended up shot to pieces on the slopes of this godforsaken mountain. And who then would ever know what my buddies had done? And how hard and bravely they had fought? No, it was all up to me. I had to get out and tell our story. I was comfortable and very, very tired, but thirst drove me on. Screw this, I decided, and I dragged myself up again and kept walking, hobbling, that is, making the most of this apparent expanse of flatter ground. It was just beginning to get light, around 0600. I knew that six hours from now, the sun would be in the south, but it was such a high sun out here, almost directly overhead, and it made navigation that much more difficult. I remember wondering where the hell I would be next time I saw the friendly pole star. Almost immediately, I found myself on a trail which was going my way. I could tell by the tight feel of the ground it was pretty well used, which meant I would have to move with immense care. Trails frequently traveled invariably lead to people, and before long, I saw a house up ahead, maybe even three or four. At this distance, it was hard to tell. My first thought was of a tap or a well. If I had to, I'd get into one of these primitive residences and get rid of the occupants somehow. Then I could clean up my wounds and drink. But as I grew closer, I could see there were four houses very close together. To get their water, I'd probably have to kill 20 people. And that was too much for me. I elected to keep going, praying I'd stumble upon a river or a mountain stream before much longer. Well, I didn't. The sun was up and it was growing hotter. I kept going for another four or five hours, and the hallucinations were getting worse. I kept wanting to ask Mikey what we should do. My mouth and throat had just about seized up. I could barely move my parched tongue, which was now firmly stuck to the roof of my mouth. I was afraid if I tried to move it, it would tear the skin off. I cannot describe the feeling. I had to get water. Every bone in my body was crying out for rest, but I knew if I stopped and perhaps slept, I would die. I had to keep going. It was strange, but the thirst which was killing me was also the driving force keeping me on this long, desperate march. I recall thinking there was no water this high up, and I resolved to go back down to slightly lower slopes where hopefully a stream might come cascading out of the rocks the way it does up here. Right then, the sun was burning down on me, really hot, and way above me, the high peaks were still snow-capped. Something had to be melting, for Christ's sake, and all that water had to be going somewhere. I just had to find it. Down in these lower areas, I found myself in the most beautiful green forest. So beautiful, I wondered whether it might be a mirage. There were soft ferns, deep green grasses, and tall, shady evergreens, a scene of verdant, lush mountain growth. Jesus Christ, there had to be water down here somewhere. I paused often, listening intently for the sound of a running stream. 
But there was only silence, that shattering, merciless silence of the high country, where no roads carve into the landscape, where no machines disrupt and pollute the air, where there are no automobiles or tractors, no television, radio, or even electricity. Nothing. Just nature, the way it's been for thousands of years up here in this land of truly terrible beauty and ravenous hatred. Don't get me wrong, the gradients were still very steep, and I was working my way through the forest, through the gutters of the mountain. Much of the time, I was just crawling, hands and knees, trying to ease the pain in my left leg. To be honest, I really thought I might be finished now. I was full of despair, wondering if I might black out, begging my God to help me. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That's the 23rd Psalm, of course. We think of it as the Psalm of the Seals. It is repeated at all of our religious services, all funerals. Too many funerals. I know it by heart and I clung to its message that even in death I would not be abandoned. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It was all I had just a plaintive cry to a God who was with me, but whose ways were becoming unclear to me. I had been saved from more or less certain death, and I was still armed with my rifle. But I did not know what to do anymore, except keep trying. I left the trail and once more went upward, heading for high ground again. I was listening, straining to hear the sound of the water I knew must be here somewhere. I was on a steep escarpment, hanging on to a tree with my right hand leaning out away from the cliff face. Would I ever hear the tumbling sound of a mountain stream? Or was I really destined to die of thirst up here where no American would ever find me? I kept repeating the 23rd Psalm in my head over and over, trying to stop myself from breaking down. I was scared, freezing cold, without shelter or proper clothes, and I just kept saying it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's how far I was in the prayer when I heard the water for the first time, I could not believe it. There it was, unmistakable, way below me, a brook, maybe even a small waterfall, in this pure mountain air, amid this awesome silence. That was swiftly flowing water. I had to find a way down to it. I guess I knew in that moment I was not going to die of thirst, whatever else befell me. It was just one of those moments that make your life spin right out in front of you. I thought of home, and my mom, and my dad, and my brothers and friends. 
Did any of them know about me and what had happened? Maybe they thought I was dead. Maybe someone had told them I was dead. And in those fleeting seconds, I was overwhelmed by the sadness, the heartbreaking, crushing sadness of what this would mean to my mom, the lady who always told me I was mama's angel. What I did not know at the time but learned later was that everyone thought I was dead. Back home, it was now sometime in the small hours of Wednesday morning, June 29th, and several hours previously, a television station had announced that a four-man SEAL reconnaissance team that was on a mission in the northeast mountains of Afghanistan had all been killed in action. My name was among the four. The station, like the rest of the world's media, had also announced the loss of the MH-47 helicopter with everyone on board, eight SEALs and eight members of the 160th SOAR Night Stalkers, which made 20 Special Forces dead, the worst special ops catastrophe ever. My mom collapsed. By the middle part of that Tuesday evening, People had begun to arrive at the ranch, local people, our friends, people who wanted to be with my mom and dad, just in case there was anything they could do to help. They arrived in trucks, cars, SUVs, and on motorbikes, a steady stream of families who all said damn near the same thing. We just want to be with you. Outside the door of the main house, the front yard was like a parking lot. By midnight, there were 75 people in attendance, including Eric and Aaron Rooney, from the family that owns one of the big East Texas construction corporations, David and Michael Thornberry, local land, cattle, and oil people, with their father Jonathan, Slim, Kevin, Kyle, and Wade Albright, my boyhood friends, a lot of them Aggies. There was Joe Lord, Andy McGee, Cheezer, Big Rune, my brother Opie and our buddy Sean, Trey Baker, Larry Furman, Richard Tanner, Benny Wiley, the strength coach at Texas Tech in Lubbock. Those big, tough guys were all in grade school with me. Another of our local construction moguls, Scott Whitehead, showed up. He never even knew us, but he wanted to be there. He turned out to be a tower of strength for my mom, still calls her every day. Master Sergeant Daniel, highly decorated U.S. Army, showed up in full uniform, knocked on the front door, and told my dad he wanted to help in any way he could. He still shows up nearly every day, just to make sure mom's okay. And of course, there was my twin brother, Morgan making all speed to the ranch, refusing point-blank to accept the broadcaster's fact that I was dead. My other brother, Scotty, got there first, but not being an identical twin brother to me, he could only know what he was told, not what the telepathic wavelengths told him. He was almost as devastated as Mom. My dad hit the internet, to check if there was further news or any official announcement from the SEAL HQ in Hawaii, my home base. All he found was confirmation of the MH-47 crash and four other SEALs missing in action. However, 
One of the Hawaiian newspapers was reporting the death of all four of us, at which moment I guess he believed it was true. Shortly after 2 a.m. in Texas, the SEALs began to arrive at the ranch from Coronado. Lieutenant John Jones, J.J., in company with Chief Chris Gothrow, flew in with Bosun's mate Teg Gill, one of the strongest men I know. Lieutenant David Duffield arrived from Coronado right afterward with John Owens and Jeremy Franklin. Lieutenant Josh Wynn and Lieutenant Nathan Shoemaker came in from Virginia Beach. Gunner's mate first class Justin Pittman made the journey from Florida. I should stress that none of this was planned or orchestrated. They just came, strangers mingling with friends, united, I suppose, in grief for a lost brother. And there to greet them all with my mom and dad was the mighty figure of Billy Shelton. No one had ever seen him in tears before. It's often that way with the toughest of men. Chief Gothrow immediately told my parents he did not give a damn what the media said. There was no confirmation that any of the original four-man SEAL team was dead, although it was highly likely they had not all survived. He knew about Mikey's last call. My guys are dying out here. But there was no certainty about any of it. He told Mom to have faith, told her no SEAL was dead, until there was a body. And then Morgan arrived and told them all straight out I was alive, and that was an end to it. He said he'd been in contact with me, had felt my presence. He thought I may have been injured, but I was not dead. God damn it, I know he's not dead, he said. If he was, I'd know. By now, there were 150 people in the front yard, and the local sheriffs had somehow cordoned off the entire ranch. No one could enter the property without passing through these guardians. There were police cruisers parked along the wide dirt road which leads to the house. Some of the officers were inside the perimeter fences, praying at short services conducted by two naval chaplains who had arrived from Coronado in the small hours just in case, I guess. Sometime before 0500, my mom answered the front door to see SEAL Lieutenant Andy Haffel, with his wife Christina standing there. We wanted to help any way we could, said Andy. We just got here from Hawaii. Hawaii, said mom. That's halfway around the world. Marcus once saved my life, said Andy. I had to be here. I know there's still hope. I can't explain what all this meant to Mom. She hovered somewhere between hope and total despair. But she's always said she'll never forget Andy and the long journey he and Christina made to be with our family. It began, I suppose, just as neighborly visits, interspersed with more professional arrivals from Spec Warcom. But it would turn into a vigil. No one went home. They just stayed day after day, night after night, all night, praying to God that I was still alive. When I think about it these many months later, I'm kind of overwhelmed. That much love, that much caring, that much kindness to my parents, 
and I think about it, all of it, every day, and I still have no idea how to express my gratitude, except to say I know the door of our home is open to each and every one of them, no matter the hour or the circumstance, for all the days of my life. Meantime, back up the goddamned mountain, unaware of the mighty gatherings still building at home, I was listening to the distant flow of water, hanging on to the tree, leaning out, wondering how to get down there without killing myself in the process. That's when the Taliban sniper shot me. I felt the sting of the bullet ripping into the flesh high up at the back of my left thigh. Christ, that hurt really hurt, and the impact of the AK bullet spun me around, knocked me into a complete backflip clean off the fucking mountain. When I hit, I hit hard, but face down, which I guess didn't do my busted nose a lot of good, and opened up the gash on my forehead. Then I started rolling, sliding very fast down the steep gradient, unable to get a grip, which may have been just as well because these Taliban bastards really opened up on me. There were bullets flying everywhere, pinging and zinging into the ground all around me, ricocheting off the rocks, slamming into the tree trunks. Jesus Christ, this was Murphy's Ridge all over again. But it's a lot harder to hit a moving target than you might think, especially one traveling as quick as I was, out of control, racing between rocks and trees and they kept missing. Finally, I came to a stop in a flatter area, and of course, my pursuers had not made the downward journey nearly as fast as I had. I had had a decent start on them, and to my amazement, I had come to little harm. I guess I missed all the obstacles, and the earth beneath me was softish and loose-packed. Also, I still had my rifle, which to my mind was a bigger miracle than Our Lady of Lourdes. I began to crawl, going for cover behind a tree and trying to assess the enemy positions. I could see one guy, the nearest of them, just standing and pointing at me, yelling at two others who were out to the right. Before I could make any kind of a decision, they both opened fire on me again. I did not have much of a shot at them, because they were still maybe a hundred yards up the cliff face, and the trees were shielding them. Trouble was, I could not stand properly, and aiming the rifle was a problem, so I decided to make a break for it, on my hands and knees, and wait for a better spot to take them out. I crawled, not fast, but steady, over terrible terrain, full of little hills and dipping gullies, it could hardly have been better country for a fugitive, which I now was, except I could not walk down the gullies, and I sure as hell couldn't get down those steep slopes on all fours, not having been born a freaking snow leopard. So every time I reached one of those small precipices, I just threw myself straight off and hoped for a reasonable landing. I did a lot of rolling, and it was a long, bumpy, and painful ride but it beat the hell out of getting shot up the ass again. I kept it up for about 45 minutes, crawling, rolling, and falling, staying out in front of my pursuers, gaining ground on the downward falls, losing it again as they ran up on me. And nowhere on that snaking route down the hills 
did I find a decent spot to get rid of the gunmen who were hunting me down. The bullets kept flying, and I kept moving. But finally, I hit some flatter ground, and all around me were big rocks. I decided this would be Marcus's last stand. Or theirs, one way or another. Although I did not know exactly how many of them there were. I remember thinking, now, how the hell would Morgan get out of this? What would he do? And it gave me strength, the massive strength of my seven minutes older brother. I decided that in this position, he'd wait till he saw the whites of their eyes. No mistakes. So I crawled behind this big rock, checked my magazine, then flipped off the safety catch of my Mark 12 and waited. I heard them coming, but not until they were very, very close. They were not together, which was unnerving, because I could not account for them all. But I could see the spotter now, the guy who was literally tracking me down, not trying to shoot me. He didn't even carry a rifle. His job was to locate me and then call the others to bring fire down on me. Cheeky little prick. But it's the Afghan way. This Charmack was an excellent delegator. One guy carries the water, another the extra ammunition, and the marksmen don't have to spend their time searching the terrain. They have a specialist to do this. This particular specialist was not having much trouble tracking me, probably because I was leaving tracks like a wounded grizzly, scuffing up the ground and bleeding like a stuck pig from both my forehead and my thigh all over the shale. I moved carefully on my knees around the rock, now with my rifle raised, and there was the Taliban spotter standing right in front of me, not ten feet away. But he had not spotted me. In that instant, I fired, dropped him dead in his tracks, and the force of the bullet knocked him backward with blood pumping out of his chest. I think I got him straight through the heart, and I heard him hit the deck. But simultaneously, right behind me, I heard the soft footsteps of the chasing gunman. I turned around, and there were two of them, just above me in the rocks, searching. I had only split seconds to work because they were both on me, AKs raised. Fuck, I could get one, but not both. I went for one of my grenades, ripped out the pin, and threw it straight at them. I think they got a couple of shots away, but not in time to get me before I plunged back behind the rock. This was up close and personal, not five feet between us. I was just imploring the Lord to let my grenade explode, and it did. Blasting the two Afghans to smithereens, splitting rocks, sending up a sandstorm of earth and sand. Me? I just kept my head well down and hoped to Christ there were no more of them. It was around this time I began to black out a little. Not from the blast of the grenade, just a general blacking out situation. Everything was catching up with me. And as I lay there waiting for the debris to stop falling out of the sky, I started to feel pretty rotten. Dizzy, unsure of myself, shaky. I think I hung around down there behind the rock for a few minutes before I ventured out, still crawling, trying to see if the other Taliban guys were following. But there was nothing. 
Obviously, I had to get away from here, because that explosion from the grenade must have attracted some attention somewhere. I sat there for a few more minutes, marveling at the silence, and pondered the world. And the conclusion I reached was I needed to learn to fight all over again. Not like a Navy SEAL, but like a secretive Afghan mountain man. At least, if I planned to stay alive. The last hour had taught me a few major lessons, the main one being I must gain the ability to fight alone, in direct contrast to everything I had ever been taught. Seals, as you now know, fight in teams, only in teams, each man relying entirely on the others to do exactly the right thing. That's how we do it. Fighting as one in a team of four, or maybe ten or even twenty, but always as one unit, one mind, one strategy. We are instinctively always backing up, always covering, always moving to plug the gap or pave the way. That's what makes us great. But up here, being hunted down all alone? This was entirely another game. And first, I had to learn to move like an Afghan mountain man, stealthily, staying out of sight, making no sound, causing no disturbance. Of course, we had learned all that back in California, but not on the heightened scale which was required up here, against a native enemy even more stealthy, quiet, and unseen than we are. Crawling around on all fours was not going to help. I had to concentrate, work myself into the correct military position before I pounced on my prey. I had to conserve ammunition, make certain I was going to kill before I carried out the deed, and above all, try to stay out of sight and not betray myself by lumbering around like the wounded grizzly I was. I resolved that when I next had to strike out against my enemy, it would be with our customary deadly force, always ensuring I held the element of surprise. Those are the tactics that invariably win conflicts for the truly ruthless underdog like the Mujahideen, Al-Qaeda, and, from now on, me. I dragged myself back up onto my hands and knees. I listened carefully, like an eager hound dog turning my head sideways to the wind. Nothing. Not a sound. Maybe they'd given up, or perhaps they considered I was probably dead. Either way, I was out of there. With my rifle jammed in my belt, I began moving west, toward the water. It was still way below me, and since I was trying to avoid falling down this freaking mountain again, I would zigzag my way down the steep slopes until I found it. I've long lost count of the distance, but it felt like three or four miles, crawling along, resting, praying, hoping, trying my best, just like Hell Week. I think I did black out two or three times. But finally, I heard the waterfall. I heard it hissing in the afternoon sun, tumbling off a high rock and into a deep pool before running down to the lower levels of the stream. Somehow I arrived right on top of that waterfall, maybe 20 feet above the flow. It really was beautiful, 
the sun glinting on the surface, and all around it the trees on the mountain, high above the valley, on the edge of which was an Afghan village, way, way below me, maybe a mile. For the first time, for as long as I could remember, no one was trying to hunt me down. I could hear nothing, I could see no one, everything seemed tranquil. I'd plainly taken out the scouting party, because if there'd been anyone sneaking along behind me, I'd have heard it, believe me. I might not yet move like a tribesman, but I had developed the hearing of one. I'd been without water for so long, I figured another half a minute would not make much difference, and so I pulled out my rifle scope to take a look down at the village from this excellent vantage point. I forced myself up, hanging on to a rock with my left hand right above the water. The view from there was outstanding, and I could see the village, its upper houses clinging to the mountain, built right into the rock face by guys who were obviously craftsmen. It was like something out of a child's picture book, like the home of the Wicked Witch or something, gingerbread houses on a big rock candy mountain. I put the scope away, and not daring to look at the state of my left leg, I took a step forward, trying to find a spot where I could begin to slide down on my backside to the waiting ice-cold pool below me. That's when that left leg finally gave way. Perhaps it was the newly shot part, or maybe the blown-up parts, or just the tendons which could take no more strain but that leg buckled and flung me forward really badly. I twisted and fell headlong downward, sliding over loose, smooth ground, shale and sand, gaining speed rapidly, tumbling over, feet in the air, sometimes digging the toes of my boots in, fighting for a foothold. Any hold would be fine. I rocketed straight past that lower pool and kept right on going. I can't even imagine the speed I was going, but I could see it was a hell of a long way to the bottom, and I could not stop. Up ahead of me was a sapling, and I lunged at it as I shot headlong past, trying to get a hold of anything to slow me down. My fingers closed on its thin, whippy trunk, and I tried to pull myself up. But I was just going too fast, and it flipped me right over and landed me on my back. For a fleeting moment, I thought I was dead. Didn't make much difference whether I was dead or alive. My battered body just kept going for almost a thousand feet. Then the mountain kind of swerved, and I went with it, tumbling and sliding for another 500 feet to what was more or less the bottom of that escarpment. I landed in a heap feeling like I'd broken every bone in my body. I was out of breath, blood was trickling down my face from the cut on my forehead, and I generally felt just about as sorry for myself as it's possible to be. You're probably not going to believe this, but my rifle was again right beside me. And once more, it was the thirst that saved me. Instead of just lying there, a blood-stained heap in the hot afternoon sun, I thought of that water. Now right above me. At least it had been when I'd flashed past it a few moments ago. I knew I had to climb back up there or die. So 
I grabbed my rifle and began the long crawl to the drink that should restore my life. I scrambled and slipped over the loose ground, and I am certain by now you have comprehended what a truly horrible mountaineer I am. I can only plead the gradient. It was unbelievably steep, not quite sheer, but almost. A great rock climber would probably have taken full gear in order to scale it. Personally, I'm not sure which I was worse at, going up or falling down, but it was 200 feet to that water. It took me two more hours. I blacked out twice, and when I reached it, I plunged my head in, just to free up my tongue and throat. Then I washed my burning face, cleaned the gash just below my hairline, and tried to get the blood to wash off the back of my leg. I couldn't tell whether the sniper's bullet was still lodged in there or not. All I knew was I needed to drink a lot of water, and then try to attract attention and get to a hospital. Otherwise, I did not think I would survive. I decided to move up a few yards to where the water was lapping off a rock and splashing into a small pool. I lowered my head and drank. It was the sweetest water I had ever tasted. And I was just getting into this real luxury when I noticed there were three guys standing right above me, two of them with AKs. For a moment, I thought I was hallucinating. I stopped drinking, and I remember I was talking to myself, just mumbling, really, flicking between reality and dream. Then I realized one of them was yelling at me, shouting something I was supposed to understand, but in my befuddled state, I just couldn't get it. I was like a badly wounded animal, ready to fight to the end. I understood nothing, not the hand of friendship, not the possibility of human decency. The only sensation I could react to was threat, and everything was a threat. Cornered, scared, suddenly afraid of dying, ready to lash out at anything. That was me. The only thought I had was, I'll kill these guys, just give me my chance. I rolled away from the pool and held my rifle in my get-ready position. Then I began to crawl away over the rocks, braced all the time for a volley of AK bullets to rip into me and finally finish me off. But I reasoned I had no choice. I would have to risk getting killed by these guys before I could hit back. Dimly, I recall that first character was still yelling his head off, literally screaming at me. Whatever the hell he was saying seemed irrelevant but he sounded like the outraged father of one of the many Afghani tribesmen who'd been removed from the battlefield by the men seconded to SEAL Team 10. Probably by me. As I made my way slowly, painfully, almost blindly to the bigger rocks up ahead, it did cross my mind that if these guys really wanted to shoot me, they could have done it by now. In fact, they could have done it any time they wanted. But the Taliban had been hunting me down for too long. All I wanted was cover and a fair position from which to strike back. I flicked off the safety catch on my rifle and kept crawling, straight into a dead end surrounded by huge boulders on all sides. This was it, Marcus's last stand. 
and slowly I half-rolled, half-turned around to face my enemy once again. The problem was, right here, my enemy had kind of fanned out. The three guys somehow had gotten above me and yet surrounded me, one to the left, one to the right, and one dead ahead. Christ, I thought. I've only one hand grenade left. This is trouble. Big trouble. Then I noticed there was even bigger trouble out in the clearing. There were three more guys moving up on me, all armed with AKs slung over their backs, and they too fanned out and somehow climbed higher. But they positioned themselves behind me. No one fired. I raised my rifle and drew down on the one who was doing the screaming. I tried to draw a bead on him, but he just moved swiftly behind a huge tree, which meant I was aiming at nothing. I swung around and tried to locate the others, but the blood from my forehead was still trickling down my face, obscuring my vision. My leg was turning the shale beneath me to a dark red. I no longer knew what the hell was happening, except that I was in some kind of a fight, which I was very obviously about to lose. The second three guys were moving down the rocks in rear of me, quickly, easily, right on top of me. The guy behind the tree was now back out in the open and still yelling at me, standing there with his rifle lowered, I guess demanding my surrender. But I couldn't even do that. I just knew that I desperately needed help or I was going to bleed to death. Then I did what I never thought I would do in the whole of my career. I lowered my rifle. Defeated. My whole world was spinning out of control in more ways than one. I was fighting to avoid blacking out again. I just lay there in the dirt, blood seeping out, still clutching my rifle, still, in a sense, defiant, but unable to fight. I had no more strength. I was on the edge of consciousness, and I was struggling to understand what the screaming tribesman was trying to communicate. American, okay, okay. Finally, I got it. These guys meant me no harm. They just stumbled on to me. They weren't chasing me and had no intention of killing me. It was a situation I was relatively unused to this past couple of days. But the vision of yesterday's goat herds was still stark in my mind. Taliban, I asked. You Taliban? No Taliban, shouted the man, who I assumed was the leader, and he ran the edge of his hand across his throat, saying once more, No Taliban. From where I was lying, this looked like a signal that meant death to the Taliban. Certainly he was not indicating that he was one of them or even liked them. I tried to remember whether the goat herds had said no Taliban and I was nearly certain they had not. This was plainly different. But I was still confused and dizzy, uncertain, and I kept on asking, Taliban? Taliban? No, no, no Taliban. I guess if I'd been at my peak, I'd have accepted this several minutes ago, before Marcus's last stand and all that. But I was losing it now. I saw the leader walk up to me. He smiled and said his name was Sarawa. 
He was the village doctor. He somehow communicated in rough English. He was thirty-ish, bearded, tall for an Afghan, with an intellectual's high forehead. I recall thinking, he didn't look much like a doctor to me, not wandering around on the edge of this mountain like a native tracker. But there was something about him. He didn't look like a member of Al-Qaeda either. By now, I'd seen a whole lot of Taliban warriors, and he looked nothing like any of them. There was no arrogance, no hatred in his eyes. If he hadn't been dressed like a leading man from murder up the Khyber Pass, he could have been an American college professor on his way to a peace rally. He lifted up his loose white shirt to show me he had no concealed gun or knife. Then he spread his arms wide in front of him. I guess the international sign for, I am here in friendship. I had no choice but to trust him. I need help, I said, uttering a phrase which must have shed an especially glaring light on the obvious. Hospital. Water. Huh? said Sarawa. Water, I repeated. I must have water. Huh? said Sarawa. Water, I yelled, pointing back toward the pool. Ah, he exclaimed, hydrate. I could not help laughing, weakly. Hydrate. Who the hell was this crazy-assed tribesman who knew only long words? He called over a kid who had a bottle. I think he went and filled it with fresh water from the stream. He brought it back to me, and I kept chugging away, glugging down the water, two good-sized bottles of it. Hydrate, said Sarawa. You got that right, pal, I confirmed. At which point we began to converse in that no-man's-land of language, the one where no one knows hardly a word of the other's native tongue. I've been shot, I told him, and showed him my wound, which had never really stopped bleeding. He examined it and nodded sternly, as if he understood the clear truth that I badly needed medical attention. Heaven knows how severely my left leg would be infected. All the dirt, mud, and shale I'd inflicted on it couldn't have done it much good. I told him I was a doctor too, thinking it might help somehow. I knew there would likely be savage retribution for a non-Taliban village sheltering an American fugitive, and I was praying they would not just leave me here. I wish to hell I still had some of my medical gear with me, but that was lost a lifetime ago on the mountain with Mikey, Axe, and Danny. Anyway, Sarawa seemed to believe I was a doctor, although he seemed equally certain he knew where I'd come from. With a succession of signals and a very few words, he conveyed to me he knew all about the firefight on the mountain, and he kept pointing directly at me as if to confirm he absolutely knew I had been one of the combatants. The tribal bush telegraph up here must be fantastic. They have no means of fast communications, no phones, cars, nothing. Just one another, goat herds wandering the mountainside, passing on the necessary information. And here was this Sarawa who had presumably been miles away from the action, informing me about the battle which I had helped fight the previous day. 
He patted me reassuringly on the shoulder and then retreated into a kind of conference with his fellow villagers while I talked to the kid. He had only one question, and he had a lot of trouble asking it, trying to make an American understand. In the end, I got his drift. Were you really the lunatic who fell down the mountain? Very far, very fast, very funny? All my village saw you do it. Very big joke. Ha, ha, ha. Jesus Christ. I mean, Muhammad, or Allah, whoever's in charge around here. This kid really was from a gingerbread village. Sarawa returned. They gave me some more water, and again he checked over my wound. Didn't look one bit happy, but there were more important things to discuss than the state of my backside. I did not, of course, realize this, but the decision Sarawa and his friends were making carried huge responsibilities and possibly momentous consequences. They had to decide whether to take me in, whether to help me, shelter me, and feed me. Most important, whether to defend me. These people were Pashtuns, and the majority of the warriors who fought under the banner of the former rulers of Afghanistan, plus a vast number of bin Laden's al-Qaeda fighters, were members of this strict and ancient tribe, almost 13 million of whom live right here in Afghanistan. That steel core of the Taliban sect, that iron resolve and deadly hatred of the infidel, is unwaveringly Pashtun. The backbone of that vicious little tribal army is Pashtun. The Taliban moves around these mountains only by the unspoken approval and tacit permission of the Pashtuns, who grant them food and shelter. The two communities, the warriors and the general mountain populace, are irrevocably bound together. The Mujahideen fighting the Russians were principally Pashtun. Never mind. No Taliban. I knew the background. These guys might be peace-loving villagers on the surface, but the tribal blood ties were wrought in iron. Faced with an angry Taliban army demanding the head of an armed American serviceman, you would essentially not give a second-hand billy goat for the Americans' chances. And yet, there was something I did not know. We're talking Low-K Warkawal, an unbending section of historic Pashtunwali tribal law as laid out in the hospitality section. The literal translation of Low-K Warkawal is giving of a pot. I did mention this briefly when I outlined the Pashtun tribal background much earlier, but this is the part where it really counts. This is where the old low-key worker wall gets shoved into context. Right here, while I'm lying on the ground, bleeding to death, and the tribesmen are discussing my fate. To an American, especially one in such terrible shape as I was, the concept of helping out a wounded, possibly dying man is pretty routine. You do what you can. For these guys the concept carried many onerous responsibilities. Loke means not only providing care and shelter, 
It means an unbreakable commitment to defend that wounded man to the death. And not just the death of the principal tribesman or family who made the original commitment for the giving of a pot. It means the whole damned village. Loke means the population of that village will fight to the last man, honor-bound, to protect the individual they have invited in to share their hospitality. And this is not something to have a chit-chat about when things get rough. It's not a point of renegotiation. This is strictly non-negotiable. So, while I was lying there thinking these cruel, heartless bastards were just going to leave me out here and let me die, they were in fact discussing a much bigger life-or-death issue. And the lives they were concerned with had nothing to do with mine. This was Loke, boy, spelled with a big L. No bullshit. For all I knew, they were deciding whether to put a bullet through my head and save everyone a lot of trouble. But by now, I was drifting off, half asleep, half alert, and the distinction was minimal. Sarua was still talking. Of course, it occurred to me that these men might be just like the goat herds, loyal spies for the Taliban. They could easily take me in and then send their fastest messengers to inform the local commanders they had me, and I could be picked up and executed anytime they wanted. I wished fervently this was not the case, and though I thought I understood Sarawa was a nice guy, I couldn't know the truth about him. No one could, not under those circumstances. Anyway, there was nothing much I could do about it, except maybe shoot them all and a fat chance I would have had of getting away. I could hardly move. So I just waited for the verdict. I kept thinking, what would Morgan do? Is there any way out of this? What's the correct military decision? Do I have any options? Not so you'd notice. My best chance of living was to try and befriend Sarawa, try somehow to ingratiate myself with his friends. Disjointed thoughts were blundering through my mind. What about all the death there had been in these mountains? What if these guys had lost sons, brothers, fathers, or cousins in the battle against the seals? How would they feel about me, an armed, uniformed member of the U.S. military, staging various gun battles, blowing Afghanis up on their very own tribal lands? I obviously didn't have any answers, nor could I know what they were thinking. But it couldn't be good. I knew that. Sarawa came back. He sharply ordered two men to raise me up, one of them under each of my arms to give me support and lift me off the ground. He ordered another to lift my legs. As they approached me, I took out my last grenade and carefully pulled the pin, which placed that little bastard right in firing mode. I held it in one hand, clasped across my chest. The tribesmen did not seem to notice. All I knew was, if they tried to execute me or tie me up or invite their murderous Taliban colleagues in, I would drop that thing right on the floor and take the whole fucking lot of them with me. They lifted me up, 
and slowly we began to head down to the village. I did not understand, not then, but this was the biggest break I'd had since the battle for Murphy's Ridge first started. These friendly Pashtun tribesmen had decided to grant me Loke. They were committed to defend me against the Taliban until there was no one left alive. Chapter 10 An American Fugitive Cornered by the Taliban Then I found a piece of flinty rock on the floor of the cave, and lying painfully on my left side, I spent two hours carving the words of the Count of Monte Cristo onto the wall of my prison. God will give me justice. Sarawa and his friends did not attempt to take away my rifle. Yet, I carried it with me in one hand while they slowly lifted me down the steep track to the village of Sabre, a distance of around 200 yards and home to perhaps 300 households. In my other hand, I clutched my last grenade, no pin, ready to take us all to eternity. It was a little after 1600, and the sun was still high. We passed a couple of local groups, and both of them reacted with obvious astonishment at the sight of an armed, wounded American holding his rifle but being given help. They stopped and they stared, and both times I locked eyes with one of them. Each time he stared back, that hard glare of pure hatred with which I was so familiar, it was always the same a gaze of undisguised loathing for the infidel. They were, of course, confused, which was not altogether surprising. Hell, I was confused. Why was Sarawa helping me? The worrying part was Sarawa seemed to be swimming against the tide. This was a village full of Islamic fanatics who wanted only to see dead Americans. Up here in these lawless mountains, the plan to smash New York's Twin Towers had been born. At least, those were my thoughts. But I underestimated the essential human decency of the senior members of this Pashtun tribe. Sarawa and many others were good guys who wished me no harm, and neither would they permit anyone else to do me harm. Nor would they kowtow to the bloodlust of some of their fellow mountain men. They wanted only to help me. I would grow to understand that. The hostile, wary looks of the goat herds on the trail were typical, but they did not reflect the views of the majority. We continued on down to the top house in Sabre. I say top house because the houses were set one above the other right into the almost sheer face of the mountain. I mean, you could step off the trail and walk straight on to the flat roof of a house. You had to descend farther to reach the front door. Once inside, you were more or less underground in a kind of man-made cave of mud and rocks with a plain dirt floor, obviously built by craftsmen. There were rock stairs going down to another level, where there was another room. This, however, was an area best avoided since the villagers were likely to keep goats in there. And where there are goats, there is goat dung. All over the place. 
The smell is fiendish, and it pervades the entire dwelling. We arrived outside this house, and I tried to let them know I was still dying of thirst. I remember Sarawa handed me a garden hose with a great flourish, as if it had been a crystal goblet, and turned on a tap somewhere. I replaced the pin in my hand grenade, a process deeply frowned upon by the U.S. military, and stuck it safely in the battle harness I still wore. Now I had two free hands again, and the water was very cold and tasted fabulous. Then they produced a cot from the house and set it up for me, four of them raising me up and lowering me carefully onto it, under the supervision of Sarawa. Above me, I could see U.S. warplanes screaming through the high mountain sky. Everyone except me was pointing up at them. I just stared kind of wistfully, wondering when the hell they would come for me. By now, the entire population of Sabre was surrounding my cot, watching as Sarawa went to work. He carefully cleaned the wounds to my leg, confirming what I had suspected, that there was no bullet lodged in my left thigh. Indeed, he located the bullet's exit hole. Christ, I'd been bleeding from both places. No wonder I didn't have much blood left. Then he took out a small surgical instrument and began pulling the metal shrapnel out of my leg. He spent a long time getting rid of every shard from that RPG he could find. That, by the way, hurt like hell. But he kept going. And then he cleaned it all again, thoroughly, applied antiseptic cream, and bound me up. I just lay there, totally exhausted. Pretty soon, I guess around six o'clock, they came back and moved me inside, four of them carrying the cot. They gave me clean clothes, which was the best thing since my first drink of water. They were soft Afghan garments, a loose shirt and those baggy pants, unbelievably comfortable. I felt damn near human. Actually, they gave me two sets of clothes, identical, white for daytime, black for night. The only hitch came as I changed from my battered U.S. battle dress, really only my cami top, into the tribal garments. My shoulders still ached like the devil, and they had to give me a hand. And when they saw the somewhat extravagant tattoo I have on my back, a half of a seal trident, Morgan has the other half, they damn near fainted. They thought it was some kind of warlike tribal emblem, which I suppose it was. And then they thought I might be the devil incarnate, and I had to keep telling them I was a doctor, anything to stop them believing I was a special warrior from the U.S. Armed Forces, a man who sported a symbol of a powerful voodoo on his back, which was surely evil and would definitely one day wipe them all out. Happily, I managed to win that argument, but they were real pleased that I now had my shirt on, and they pulled down my sleeve to cover my upper arm where a part of the design was visible. By the time they began to leave, they were smiling, and I had become, for the rest of my stay in the village, and I suppose far beyond, Dr. Marcus. 
My final request was to be taken out to the communal head for a pee. And they took me, but made me adopt the traditional Afghan body position for this operation. I remember falling over backward, which made them all laugh helplessly. However, they carried me back safely to my cot, still giggling, and I suddenly realized with horror they had removed my rifle. I demanded to know where it was, and the tribesmen tried hard to explain they needed to take it away, loke or no loke, because if the Taliban ever did get into this room, they would not believe I was a wounded doctor, not with a sniper rifle like that. Loke or no loke. At that stage, I did not understand them, and anyhow, there was little I could do about it. So I just cast it from my mind, and I lay there in the fading light when they finally left me entirely alone. I had had water, and I'd eaten some of that flatbread they bake in the east. They had offered me a dish full of warm goat's milk, into which I was supposed to dip it, but the combination was without doubt the worst tasting sensation I'd ever had. I damn near threw up, and I asked them to take the milk away, telling them it was against my religion. I thus tackled that hard, awful bread, bone dry. But I was grateful, and I tried to make that clear. Hell, I could have been dead up the mountain. But for them, I would have been. And now, once again, I was alone. I stared around me, looking for the first time at my surroundings. A thick, loose-woven Afghan carpet covered the floor, and colored cushions were placed against the wall. There were carved hanging ornaments, but no pictures. There was glass in the windows, and below this house I could see others had thatched roofs. They were definitely skilled builders up here but I was uncertain where the raw materials came from, the rocks, glass, and straw. Inside my room, there was one very large, locked wooden box. In there, I learned, were the most valued possessions of every member of the household. And there was not much, trust me on that. But what they had, they seemed prepared to share with me. I'd been given a couple of blankets, and as the night drew in, I discovered why. The temperature plummeted from the searing heat of the day straight into the thirties. I noticed there was also an old iron wood stove in one corner of the room, where I later learned they baked bread every day. The system up here is for the two main houses, like this one, to do the baking for everyone, and the bread is then distributed. I lay there wondering where all the smoke went when they lit the stove, since there was no chimney. But that was a discovery yet to come. Answer? Nowhere. That wood smoke stayed right in my bedroom. I drifted into a half-sleep, my wounds still throbbing, but thankfully not becoming infected. Hoo-yah-sorrow, right? The door to my new residence was quite thick, but ill-fitting. It would keep out the wind and the rain, but the guys had to give it a mighty shove to open it. I'd already noticed that, and I knew no one could enter the room without waking me. So I had no need to sleep on high alert. 
What happened next, however, took me by surprise. The door gave way to a kick that shattered the silence. I opened my eyes in time to see eight armed Taliban fighters come barging into the room. The first one came straight over to my cot and slapped me across the face with all his force. That really pissed me off, and he was a very lucky boy that I could not move and was effectively a prisoner. If he'd even thought about putting his hands on me when I was fit, I'd have ripped his fucking head off. Little prick. I knew they were Taliban because of their appearance. Very clean-cut, manicured beards, clean teeth, hands, and clothes. They were well-fed and could speak broken English. None of them was very big, maybe around five feet eight on average, and they all wore those old Soviet leather belts, the ones with the red star in the middle of the buckle. They wore Afghan clothes, but each one had a different colored vest. Every man carried a knife and a Russian pistol jammed into his belt. Everything made in Moscow. Everything stolen. There was nothing I could get my hands on to defend myself. I had no rifle, no grenade, just my own personal badge of courage, the lone star of Texas on my arm and chest. I needed some of that courage because these bastards laid into me, kicking my left leg and punching my face and upper body, beating me to hell. I didn't give that much of a shit. I can suck this kind of crap up like I've been trained. Anyway, they didn't have a decent punch among them. Essentially, they were all very lucky boys, because in normal circumstances, I could have thrown any one of them straight through the freaking window. My main worry was they might decide to shoot me or tie me up and march me off somewhere, maybe over the border to Pakistan, to film me and then cut off my head on camera. If I thought for one moment that was their intention, it would have been bad news for all of us. I was hurt, but not so bad as I was making out, and I was formulating a fallback plan. Up above me in the rafters, I could see a four-foot-long iron bar, just resting there. Could I get it if I stood up? Yes. In a life-or-death situation, I'd grab that bar, carefully select the most violent of them, and smash it right through him. He'd never get up again. Then I'd lay into the front two, taking them entirely by surprise. At the same time, using the bar, I'd ram the whole group into a corner, crushing them together as per standard SEAL combat strategy, making it impossible for anyone to draw down on me, pull a knife, or get out. I'd probably have to obliterate the skulls of another couple of them before using one of those Russian pistols to finish anyone still alive. Could I have done it? I think so. My buddies back in SEAL Team 10 would have been mighty disappointed in me if I'd failed. My absolute fallback position would have been to kill them all, grab their weapons and ammunition, then barricade myself in the house until the Americans came to get me. The problem was, where would all this get me in the short term? What was the point of being a badass seal the way some guys would be? The house was surrounded by more Taliban, all of them with AKs. I saw those guards come in and then go out again. 
Some of the little creeps were right outside the window. Anyway, the entire sprawl of the village of Sabre was surrounded by the Taliban. Sarawa had told me so, and it beat me why I'd been left alone unless they knew, unless they were indoctrinated, unless I really was in the hands of off-duty Taliban warriors. But the guys at my bedside were not off-duty. They were right on my case, demanding to know why I was there, what the American planes were doing, whether the United States was planning an attack on them, who was coming to rescue me. Good question, right? I knew that right now discretion was, by a long way, the better part of valor, because my objective was simply to try and stay alive, not to get into a brawl with knife-wielding tribesmen, or worse, get myself shot. I kept telling them I was just a doctor, out here to help with our wounded. I also told them a huge lie, that I had diabetes. I was not a member of the special forces, and I needed water, which they ignored. The main trouble was, strangely, my beard, because they knew the U.S. Army did not permit beards. Only the U.S. Special Forces allows that. I managed to persuade them I needed to go outside, and they gave me this one single opportunity, one last desperate try to slip away. But I could not move fast enough, and they just dragged me back inside, threw me on the ground, and beat me even more seriously than they had before. Broke the bones in my wrist. That hurt, and I've since needed two operations to correct it. By now they had lit their lanterns, maybe three of them, and the room was quite light. And their inquisition went on for maybe six hours, yelling and beating, yelling and kicking. They told me my buddies were all dead, told me they'd already cut everyone's head off, and that I was next. They said they had shot down an American helicopter, killed everyone. They were just full of bravado, shouting, boasting, they would, in the end, kill every American in their country, and then some. We will kill you all! Death to the Satan! Death to the infidel! They pointed out with huge glee that I was their main infidel, and I had mere moments to live. I took a sidelong glance at that iron bar, perhaps my last hope, but I told them nothing, stuck to my guns, kept on telling them I was only a doctor. At one stage, one of the village kids came in, about 17 years old. I was pretty certain he had been in one of the groups I'd passed on the way down here. And he had what I now call the look, that sneering hatred of me and my country. The Taliban guys let him come in and watch them knocking me around. He really liked it and I could tell they regarded him as one of us. He was allowed to sit on the bed while they kicked at the bandage on my left thigh. He just loved it, kept running the edge of his hand over his throat and laughing. Taliban, hey, Taliban. I'll never forget his face, his grin, his triumphant stare, and I kept looking right up at that iron bar. The kid, too was a very lucky boy. Then my interrogators found my rifle laser sight and my camera 
and wanted to take pictures of one another. I showed them how to use the laser to achieve their pictures, but I showed them the wrong way around and told them to stare into the beam with their naked eye. I guess the last favor I did them was to blind the whole fucking lot of them, because that beam would have burned their retinas right out. Sorry, guys, that's show business. Right after that, must have been around midnight, a new figure entered the room, accompanied by two attendants. I knew this was the village elder, a small man with a beard, a man who commanded colossal respect. The Taliban immediately stood up and stepped aside as the old man walked to the spot where I was lying. He kneeled down and offered me water in a little silver cup, gave me bread, and then stood up and turned on the Taliban. I was not certain what he was saying, but I found out later he was forbidding them to take me away. I think they knew that before they came, otherwise I'd probably have been gone by then but there was no mistaking the authority in his voice. It was a small, quiet voice, calm, firm, and no one spoke while he spoke. No one interrupted either. They hardly said a word while this powerful little figure laid down the law, tribal law, I guess. When he left, he walked out into the night very upright, the kind of posture adopted by men who are unused to defiance. You could spot him a mile off, kind of like an Afghan instructor Reno. Christ, what if he could see me now? Upon the departure of the village elder, six hours after they had arrived at around 0100, the Taliban suddenly decided to leave. Painful eyes, I hoped. Their leader, the chief talker, was a thin character, almost a head taller than all the rest. He led them outside, and I heard them walk off, moving softly up to the trail which led out of Sabre and into the mountains. Once more, I was left, bleeding badly and very bruised, eternally grateful to the village elder, drifting off into a form of half-awake sleep, scared, really scared those bastards would somehow come back for me. Bang! Suddenly, there went that door again. I nearly jumped out of my new Afghan nightshirt with fright. Were they back with their execution gear? Could I get up and fight again for my life? But this time it was Sarawa, and I had to ask myself, who was he really? Had he tipped someone off? Was he in the clutches of the Taliban? Or had they just come for me and broken in when no one was looking? I still had not been informed of the concept of loke, possibly because they had no way to inform me, and anyway, I had no choice but to trust them. It was my only shot at survival. Sarawa was carrying a small lantern, accompanied by a few of his friends. I sensed them, but could not really see in the pitch dark not in my condition in this flickering light. Three of the villagers lifted me off the floor and carried me toward the door. I remember seeing their silhouettes on the mud walls, sinister, shadowy figures wearing turbans. Honestly, it was like something out of Arabian Nights. 
Big Marcus being hauled away by Alibaba and his 40 thieves to meet the fucking genie. I could not, of course, know they were acting on the direct orders of the village elder who had told them to get me out of there in case the Taliban decided to ignore the ancient rules and take me by force. Once outside, they doused the light and set up their formation. Two guys to walk in front with AK-47s and one guy in the rear, also carrying an AK. The same three guys as before carried me, Sarawa included, and began to walk out of the village, downward, along a trail. We traveled for a long way, the guys walking for more than an hour, maybe even two, and they walked tirelessly, like Bushmen or Bedouins. In the end, we headed down a new trail all the way to a river, I guess the same one where I'd met them, by the waterfall on a higher reach. I must have been a complete dead weight, and not for the first time, I was amazed by their strength. When we reached the river, they stopped and adjusted their grip on me. Then they walked straight into it, and in near total silence, carried me across, in the darkness of this moonless night. I could hear the water rippling past, but nothing more as they waded softly through it. On the other side, they never broke stride and now began to make their way up a steep gradient through the trees. It was lush and beautiful in the daylight. I'd seen it, and even in this cold night, I could feel its soft, dark green isolation, heavy with ferns and bushes. Finally, we reached what I took to be a cave set deep into the mountainside. They lowered me to the ground, and I tried to talk to them, but they could not see my signals or understand my words, so I drew a blank. But I did manage to make Sarawa understand I suffered from diabetes and required water at all times. I guess the dread of dying of thirst remained uppermost in my mind, and right then I knew I could not get down to that river. Not by myself. They carried me to the back of the cave and set me down. I think it was around 0400 when we got there. It was Thursday, June 30th. They left me with no food, but they did come up with a water container, an aged Pepsi bottle, actually, the most evil-smelling piece of glass on this planet. I thought it must have been used for goat shit in a previous life, but it was all I had, a bottle from a sewer, but filled with water. I was afraid to put it to my lips, in case I contracted typhoid, somehow I held it above my face and poured its contents into my mouth like one of those Spanish guys tending their bowls, or whatever they do. I had no food or weapon, and Sarawa and his guys were on their way out. I was terrified they'd never come back and had just made a decision to dump me. Sarawa told me he'd be back in five minutes, but I was not sure I could believe him. I just lay there on the rocky floor in the dark, all alone, shivering in the cold, uncertain of what would befall me next. In the remains of that night, I fell to pieces, finally lost my mind and sobbed hopelessly out of pure fear, offering no further resistance to anything. I thought I could not take it any longer. Rena would have kicked my ass for sure and certain. Hopefully on the right side, not the left. 
I kept on thinking of Morgan, crazily trying to communicate with him, trying to get my thought waves tuned in with his, begging God to let him hear me. And soon it began to get light. Sorrowa had been gone for over two hours. Jesus Christ, they dumped me out here to die. Morgan didn't know where I was or whether I was dead or alive, and my SEAL buddies had given me up for dead. My brain would have been racing, but for the fact that I had suddenly been attacked by a tribe of big black Afghan ants, and that really got my attention. I might have given up, but I was fucked if I was going to be eaten alive by these little sons of bitches. I got myself raised up and laid into them with my Pepsi bottle. Most of them probably died from the smell, but I killed enough to beat them off for a while. And the hours ticked by. Nothing. No Pashtun tribesmen, no Sarawa, no Taliban. I was getting desperate. The ants were trickling back, and I no longer had the strength to mount a full assault on them. I went into selective killing mode, going for the leaders with my Pepsi bottle. Then I found a piece of flinty rock on the floor of the cave, and lying painfully on my left side, I spent two hours carving the words of the Count of Monte Cristo onto the wall of my prison. God will give me justice. I wasn't sure I quite believed it anymore. He'd been out of touch for some time now, but I was still alive, just, and maybe there was help on the way. He works in awful, mysterious ways. Still, even my rifle was gone now, like most of my hope. I was just beginning to drift off again, maybe a little before 0800, when the place seemed to come alive. I could hear the little bells around the necks of the goddamned goats, and they seemed to be above me. When sand and rocks started raining down on me, I realized there was no roof to my cave. I was open to the sky. I could hear those goat hooves pounding away up there somewhere, and the sand kept pouring down on me. The good news was it buried the ants, but I was trying to stop it getting in my eyes, and so I turned face down, shielding my eyes with my hands, my right wrist aching like hell from that Taliban gun butt. Suddenly, to my complete horror, I saw the barrel of an AK-47 easing round the corner of the rock which guarded my left side. I couldn't hide, I couldn't even take cover, and I sure as hell couldn't fight back. The barrel kept coming, then the rest of the rifle, the hands, and the face. The face of one of my buddies from Sabre, grinning cheerfully. I was in such shock, I could not even bring myself to call him a crazy prick, which he plainly was. But he brought me bread, and that appalling goat's milk, and filled my water bottle, the one from the sewer. Half an hour later, Sarawa came, five hours after he said he would. He looked at my bullet wound and gave me more water. Then he posted a guard at the entrance to my roofless cave. The guard was thirty-ish and, like the rest of them, whip-thin and bearded. He sat on a rock a little way above my entrance, his AK-47 slung over his shoulder. I kept drifting off, lying there on the floor, and every time I came awake, 
I leaned out to see if the guard was still there. His name was Norzamund, and he always smiled real friendly and gave me a wave. But we could not speak, no common words. He came down once to fill my water bottle, and I tried to get him to share his with me. No dice. So I lifted the evil Pepsi bottle and splashed the water directly into my mouth. Then I chucked it to the back of the cave. Next time Norzamund brought water, he went back and found the goddamn thing and filled it yet again. I was alone in the late afternoon, and I saw the goat herds come by a couple of times. They never waved or made contact, but neither did they betray my position. If they had, I do not believe I would be here. Even now, I'm not sure whether Loke works for a guy who's left the village. Norzamund had left me some fresh bread, for which I was grateful. He went home shortly after dark, and for several hours, I saw no one. I tried to stay calm and rational, because it seemed Sarua and his men were intent on saving me. Even the village elder was plainly on my side. That's nothing to do with my charm, by the way. That's strictly Loki. I sat there by myself all through that long evening and into the night. June 30th became July 1st. I checked my watch around midnight so I knew when that happened. I tried not to think of home, and my mom and dad tried not to give in to self-pity. But I knew it was around 3 p.m. back home in Texas, and I wondered if anyone had the slightest clue about how much trouble I was in, and whether they realized how badly I needed help. What I definitely did not know was that there were now well over 200 people gathered at the ranch. No one went home. It was as if they were willing a hopeless situation to become hopeful, as if their prayers for me could somehow be answered, as if their presence could somehow protect me from death, as if they believed that if they just stayed in place, no one would announce I had been killed in action. Mom says she was witnessing a miracle. She and Dad were serving three meals a day to every person on that ranch, and she never knew where the food came from. But it kept coming. Big trucks from a couple of food distributors were arriving with steaks and chicken for everyone, maybe 200 meals at a time, no charge. Local restaurants were trucking stuff in, seafood, pasta, hamburgers. There was Chinese food for 50, then for 60. Eggs came, sausage, ham, and bacon. Dad says the barbecues never went out. Everyone was there to help including the Herzog family, big local cattle ranchers, churchgoers, patriots, ready to step up for a friend in need. Mrs. Herzog showed up with her daughters and without asking, just went to work cleaning the place up. And they did it every day. The Navy chaplains made everyone recite the 23rd Psalm, just like I was doing. During the open-air services, everyone would stand up and solemnly sing the Navy hymn. Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm hath bound the restless wave, who bidst the mighty ocean deep, its own appointed limits keep.
And of course, they always ended with the special verse exclusively for the Navy SEALs, the everlasting anthem for Spec War Calm. Eternal Father, faithful friend, be quick to answer those we send in brotherhood and urgent trust on hidden missions dangerous. Oh, hear us when we cry to thee for seals in air, on land, and sea. People just slept whenever and wherever they could. We have a large wood guest house at the entrance to the property, and people just went in there. The seals came into the house and slept where they could, on beds, on sofas, in chairs, wherever. And every three hours, there was a telephone call patched in directly from the battlefield in Afghanistan. It was always the same. No news. No one ever left Mom alone, but she was beside herself with worry. As June turned into July, many were beginning to lose faith and believe I was dead, except for Morgan, who would not believe it and kept saying he'd been in communication mentally. I was hurt, but alive. Of that, he was certain. The SEALs also would not even consider the possibility that I was dead. He's missing in action, MIA. That was their belief. And until someone told them different, that's all they would accept. Unlike the stupid television station, right? They thought they could say any damn thing they felt like, true or not, and cause my family emotional trauma on a scale only a community as close as we are could possibly understand. Meanwhile, back in the cave, Norzamund came back with two other guys, again frightening the life out of me. It was about 0400 on Friday, July 1st, and they had no lantern. They communicated with whispers and hissing signals for silence. Once more, they lifted me up and carried me down the hill to the river. I tried to throw the foul-smelling water bottle away, but they found it and brought it right back. Guess there was a heavy shortage of water bottles in the Hindu Kush. Anyway, they looked after that bottle like it was a rare diamond. We crossed the river and turned up the escarpment, back to the village. It seemed to take a real long time, and at one point, I flicked on the light on my watch, and they almost went wild with fury. No, 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 Dr. Marcus, Taliban, Taliban. Of course, I didn't know what they were talking about. The light was tiny, but they kept pointing at it. I soon realized that light was an acute danger to all of us, that the village of Sabre was surrounded by the Taliban, waiting for their chance to capture or kill me. My armed bearers had the same Pashtun upbringing and knew the slightest flicker of a light, no matter how small, was unusual out here on the mountain and could easily attract the attention of an alert watchman. I switched that sucker off real quick, and one of my guys, walking out in front with his AK, had some English. He came back to me and whispered, Taliban see light, they shoot you, Dr. Marcus. Finally, we reached high ground, and I picked up the word helicopter, and right here, I thought someone might be coming to rescue me. But it was just a false alarm. Nothing came. I stretched out on the concrete, and sometime before dawn, 
Sarawa showed up with his medical bag and attended to my leg. He removed the blood-soaked dressings, washed out the wounds, and applied antiseptic cream and fresh bandages. Then, to my astonishment, he produced some insulin for the diabetes I didn't have. Guess I was a better liar than I thought, and I obviously had to take it. The stuff I do for my country. Unbelievable, right? They moved me into a house up there near the top of the village, and soon after I arrived, I met my first real friend, Mohammed Gularb, the 33-year-old son of the village elder and the resident police chief. Everyone called him Gularb, and his position in the community was very strong. He made it clear the Taliban were not going to take me while he had anything to do with it. He was an extremely nice guy, and we became good friends, or as close to good friends as it's possible to be when the language barrier is almost insurmountable. Mostly, we tried to communicate about families, and I understood he had a wife and six children, and God knows how many cousins and uncles. Conveying news about my identical twin brother was a tough one, so we just settled for brother mainly because Gularb unfailingly thought Morgan was me, like a lot of other folk have done down the years. Gularb had a friend with him who was also a solid man, plainly an appointed relief guard. Between them, they never left me alone. By this time, I knew why. The village was entirely embarrassed when the Taliban had crept in here, armed to the teeth, and conducted an interrogation regardless of the wishes of the people. Those warriors had been on the verge of causing the ultimate retribution under the laws of Loke, which would have obliged the village to go to war to the last man on my behalf. I did not yet comprehend the full implications of Loke, but I knew it was important, and that I would not be surrendered. And now I had a full-time guard detail in my room. This did not prevent other visitors from coming in, and my first on that morning in my new house was a little boy, maybe eight or nine years old. He sat on the edge of my cot and tried to teach me a Muslim prayer, Lala e lala, Muhammad del la sulala. I pretty soon got the hang of it and repeated it with him. He was thrilled, clapped his hands and laughed, and charged out through the door to round up a posse of other kids. Gularb tried to inform me that the repetition of that prayer meant that I was now a Muslim and almost immediately the first little boy came racing back into the room with all his buddies, about twenty of them, all eager to pray with the new Texan convert. I tried to explain I was a doctor, and they understood this pretty quickly, started saying over and over, Hello, Dr. Marquez, laughing like hell and falling about like kids do. I could tell they really liked me and I borrowed a marker pen one of them had and wrote each of their names in English on their arms. Then I let them write their names on mine. We exchanged words for ears, nose, and mouth, then for water, uba, and for walk, dukari, both of which I found useful. In the end, they left, 
But other local tribesmen came in to speak to Gularb, and I began, with his encouragement, to converse with the guys who walked the goats, the men who would understand distance. Slowly, during the course of the day, we established there was a small American base two miles away. They pointed out the window directly at a mountain, which looked like a spare part from the Rockies. It towered above us, a great wall of granite that would have caused a mountain goat to back off. Over there, Dr. Marcus, far side, one of them managed to say. And since I probably could not have reached the window, never mind the mountain, I put that plan on the back burner for the moment. They had been referring to the village of Monaghy in the district of Monrogai, where I knew the U.S. military had some kind of an outpost. But it was out of the question right now. I couldn't get there or anywhere else until my leg improved. Nonetheless, the goat herds had some good information about the terrain and the distances to various villages and U.S. bases. These guys walk around the mountains for a living. Local knowledge, that's key to every serving seal, especially one who was planning a kind of soft jailbreak, like me. With the goat herds, I was able to work out that from the scene of the original battlefield, where the others died, on that terrible night of June 28th, I had traveled around seven miles, four walking, three crawling. Seven miles. Wow. I couldn't believe that. But these herders knew their land, and they, like everyone else, knew all about the battle for Murphy's Ridge, where it had been fought, and the very bad losses sustained by the Taliban. You should... Dr. Marcus, you shoot? Me? Shoot? Never. I'm just a wandering doctor trying to look after my patients. But I was real proud of traveling seven miles over the mountain in my beat-up condition after the battle. I took my ballpoint pen and marked distances, drew maps, made diagrams of the mountains on my right thigh. When that got a little crowded, I had to use my left. Shit, that hurt. That really hurt. At noon, the kids came back for prayers, bringing with them several adults, clearly eager to meet the new American convert, no longer an infidel. We prayed together to Allah, kneeling, painfully in my case, on the floor, after which we all shook hands, and I think they welcomed me to their prayers. Never told him, of course, I slipped in a quick one to my own god while I was at it, respectfully wondering, if it was all right with him, whether I could get my rifle back anytime soon. They all came back for afternoon prayers at 1700 and again at sunset. The little kids, my first friends, had to leave for bed right after that, but I remember they all came and hugged me before they left and not having mastered goodbye or good night yet, they repeated their first American phrase again and again as they left the room. Hello, Dr. Marcus. The older kids, the young teenagers, were allowed to stay and talk with me for a while. Gularb helped them to communicate, and we parted as friends. The trouble was, 
I was getting sick now, and I was beginning to feel pretty ropey. Not just the pain of my wounds, but kind of like flu, only a bit worse. When the kids had finally left, I received a visit from the village elder himself. He brought me bread, gave me fresh water, then sat down for maybe three hours while we discussed, as best we could, how I could get to an American base. It was clear I was a major problem to the village. Threats were already being received from the Taliban, informing the villagers how urgent it was for their cause that I be surrendered to them immediately. The old man imparted this to me, but took the view I was in no shape to travel, and that it would simplify matters for a member of his Pashtun tribe to make the journey on foot to the big U.S. base at Asadabad and inform them of my whereabouts. I had no clue at the time he was preparing to make the journey himself, some 30 to 40 miles alone in the mountains. He asked me to write out a letter for him to take to Asadabad. I wrote, this man gave me shelter and food and must be helped at all costs. At the time, I was under the distinct impression that he and I were going to make the journey together, possibly with an escort and a few guys to help carry me. Departure time was set for 1930, right after evening prayers. But I had misunderstood. The old man had no intention of traveling with me, correctly reasoning I'd be a far greater nuisance on such a trek over the mountains than I would be lying here. Also, if the Taliban found out we'd gone, we would be highly susceptible to ambush. I never saw him again, to thank him for his kindness. I waited all afternoon and half the night for him to come and have me collected, but of course he never did. I remember being hugely disappointed, not for the first time, that more definite plans were not being formulated for my evacuation. At one point during the evening, the tribal leaders came and had a meeting in my room. They just sat on the floor and talked, but they brought me back the little silver cup I'd had in the first house, and they poured me several cups of that chai tea they drink, and I think grow on a small scale up here. The ceremony included sweet candy, which you eat while you drink your tea, and that tasted great after my enforced diet of very, very dry baked flatbread. Gularb stayed with me and was cheerful as ever, but he either could not or would not answer questions about his father and his immediate plans. I think the tribal leaders felt it was better for me not to know. Classified, Pashtun style, FYO and all that. The work of the elder was information provided on a need-to-know basis only. I was getting used to operating outside the loop. Everyone's freaking loop, that is. Gularb spent much of the evening trying to explain to me the complex threads that hold together the Pashtun tribes and Al-Qaeda, still working in conjunction with the Taliban army. The United States had been busy trying to clear all of them the hell out of Afghanistan for four years, but with only limited success. The jihadists seemed to have some kind of hammerlock on tribal loyalties, 
using a whole spectrum of mafia-style tactics, sometimes with gifts, sometimes with money, sometimes promising protection, sometimes with outright threats. The truth is, however, neither al-Qaeda nor the Taliban could function without the cooperation of the Pashtun villages. And often, deep within the communities, there are old family ties and young men who sympathize with the warlike mentality of the Taliban and al-Qaeda chiefs. Kids barely out of grade school, joke, they don't have grade schools up here, are drawn toward the romantic cutthroats who have declared they'll fight the American army until there is no one left. I guess there's something very alluring about that to some kids. You can see these potential Taliban recruits in any of the villages. I've seen dozens of them, too young to have that much hate and murder in their eyes and hearts. Christ, one of the little bastards had sat on my bed urging eight armed men to torture me. Nice. He couldn't have been more than 17. But there is another side to this. Sabre was obviously governed wisely by Gularb's father, and there was a sense of law and order and discipline in an essentially lawless land. Al-Qaeda effectively owns great swaths of land in Kunar province, which had now been my home for the better part of three months. And this is mostly because of the terrain. I mean, how the hell do you impose national government on a place like this, with no roads, no electricity, no mail, little communication, where the principal industry is goat's milk and opium? The main water company is a mountain stream, and all freight is moved by mule cart, including the opium. You're whistling Dixie. It's never going to happen. Al-Qaeda are running around in broad daylight, mostly doing what the heck they want, until we show up and chase the little pricks back over the border to Pakistan, where they stay for about ten minutes before launching their next foray into these tribal mountains, which their ancestors have ruled for centuries. These days, there are less gifts and a lot more fear. The Taliban is a ruthless outfit, with instincts about killing their enemies, which have barely changed in two thousand years. They should somehow by now have frightened the bejesus out of my buddy Gularb and his father, but they had not succeeded, so far as I could see. There's just something unbreakable about them all, a grim determination to follow the ancient laws of the Pashtuns, laws which may yet prove too strong even for the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. But from where I was sitting, in the smoky main room of one of Sabre's high houses, talking to the village cop, that's not the way the tide was running. And until the United States decides to wield a very large stick up here in support of the elected government of the people in Kabul, I'm not looking for any serious change real soon. The enemy is prepared to go to any lengths to achieve victory, terrorizing its own people if necessary, and resorting to barbaric practices against its enemy, including decapitating people, or butchering them. We are not allowed to fight them on those terms, and neither would we wish to. However, 
we could fight in a much more ruthless manner, stop worrying if everyone still loved us. If we did that, we'd probably win in both Afghanistan and Iraq in about a week. But we're not allowed to do that. And I guess we'd better start getting used to the consequences and permit the American liberals to squeak and squeal us to ultimate defeat. I believe that's what it's called when you pack up and go home when a war fought under your own civilized terms is unwinnable. We're tougher, better trained, better organized, better armed, with access to weapons which cannot be resisted. The U.S. armed forces represent the greatest fighting force this world has ever seen, and we keep getting our butts kicked by a bunch of illegal thugs who ought to be eliminated. Look at me, right now in my story, helpless, tortured, shot, blown up, my best buddies all dead. And all because we were afraid of the liberals back home, afraid to do what was necessary to save our own lives. Afraid of American civilian lawyers. I have only one piece of advice for what it's worth. If you don't want to get into a war where things go wrong, where the wrong people sometimes get killed, where innocent people sometimes have to die, then stay the hell out of it in the first place. Because that's what happens. In all wars, down all the years of history, terrible injustices, the killing of people who did not deserve to die. That's what war is. And if you can't cope with it, don't do it. Meantime, I was stuck in the house waiting for the old man to show up, when he was already miles away walking through the mountains, the thirty or so miles to Asadabad. Once, I wandered outside when no one was looking, and I tried to find him, but he seemed to have gone missing. Even then, I never dreamed that little old guy was walking to Asadabad by himself. I couldn't really tell, but I sensed something was making my guys jumpy. And about ten or eleven o'clock that night, we moved. They had just brought me fresh water and bread, which I consumed gratefully, and then I was instructed to pack up and leave. By this time, my leg was a little better, even though it hurt, and with some assistance, I was able to walk. We made our way in the dark down to a different house and stepped off the trail directly onto the roof. We had some kind of a sheet, and the three of us laid down close together for warmth. It was very, very cold but I guess they felt there was some danger if I'd remained in my old spot. Maybe they had suspicion of someone in the village, worry that someone had tipped off the Taliban as to my precise whereabouts. But whatever, these guys were taking no chances. If Taliban gunmen burst into my old house, they would not find me. I was up here on the freaking roof, huddled with Gularb and his buddy, freezing to death, but safe, and once more I was amazed by the silence, that mountain silence. There was not one single sound in the entire village of Sabre, and for a Westerner, that's really hard to imagine. Gularb and his pal made no sound. I could scarcely hear them breathing. Whenever we did anything, they were always telling me, shh, 
when I had thought I was being silent as the grave. It's another world up here, so quiet it defies the logic of Western ears. Maybe that's why no one has ever conquered these high lands of the Afghan tribesmen. I slept on and off through the night up there on the roof. Once I dared to change position, and you'd have thought I'd set off a fire alarm from the reaction of my new friends. Shh, Dr. Marcus, quiet. It just showed how jumpy they were, how nervous of the hushed killers of the Taliban army. At dawn, we packed up and returned to the house. I wanted to sleep some more, but there was a big tree right outside the window that had a view down the mountain, and in that tree lived the world's loudest rooster. That sucker could have awakened a graveyard, and he did not give a damn about dawn, first light and all that. He let it fly right after midnight and never let up. There were several times when, if it had come to a straight coin toss between taking out Charmack or the rooster, I could easily have spared Charmack. The tribal chiefs came back again around 0700 to conduct their early morning prayers in my room. Of course, I joined them in reciting the bits I had learned, and then, when the adults left, the door flew open and a whole bunch of kids came charging through the door, shouting, Hello, Dr. Marcus. They never knocked, just came tumbling in, grabbing me and hugging me, and it went on intermittently throughout the day. Sarawa had left his medical bag in my room, and I fixed up their cuts and scrapes, and they taught me bits of their language. Those kids were great. I'll never forget them. By that Saturday morning, July 2nd, I was still in a lot of pain. My shoulder, back, and leg were often killing me. Gularb knew this, and he sent an old man from the village to see me. He came with a plastic pouch containing tobacco opium, which looks like green bread dough. He gave me the pouch, and I took a pinch of the stuff, put it in my lip, and waited. I'm here to tell you that was a miracle. The pain slowly vanished, completely. It was the first time I'd ever done drugs, and I loved it. That opium restored me, set me free. I felt better than I had since we all fell down the mountain. What with the Muslim prayers and now my becoming a devotee of the local dope, I was drifting into the life of an Afghan peasant. Hoo-yah, gularb, right? The old man left the bag with me, and it helped me get through the next hours more than I can say. When you've lived through a lot of pain for a few days, the relief is terrific. For the first time, I understood the power of that drug, which is, of course, the one the Taliban and Al-Qaeda feed to suicide bombers before they obliterate themselves and everyone else within range. There's nothing heroic about suicide bombers. They're mostly just dumb, brainwashed kids stoned out of their minds. Outside the house, I could see the U.S. helicopters flying overhead, Black Hawk 60s and MH-47s obviously looking for something, hopefully me. I knew from what the Taliban had said that one of our helos was down. 
but not, of course, who had been on board, that eight more of my buddies from Alpha Platoon were dead, including Shane Patton, James Sue, and Chief Healy. I also did not know that neither Mikey's, Danny's, nor Axe's body had been found, and that the Helos were circling the area trying to pick up any trace of the original four who had set off on the ill-fated Operation Red Wing. The air crew did not know whether any of us were alive or dead. And back home, the media were vacillating between dead and missing, whichever made the best story on that day, I guess. Didn't help any in East Texas, I can say that. Anyway, when I saw those helos, I charged outside. I took off my shirt and waved it over my head, yelling, Here I am, guys! I'm right here! It's me, Marcus! Right here, guys! But they just flew off, leaving me a somewhat forlorn figure, standing outside the house, trying to put on my shirt, and wondering again whether anyone would ever come and rescue me. In the fullness of time, I understood the quandary for the American military. Four SEALs fighting for their lives had made one final communication that we were dying up here. Since then, there had been neither sight nor sound of the four of us. Militarily, there were several possibilities, the first being we were all now dead. The second was we were all still alive. The third was there were survivors, or at least a survivor, and they were somewhere on the loose, possibly wounded, in steep country where there is almost no possibility of making a safe landing in any aircraft. I guess the last possibility was that we had been taken prisoners and that in time there would be either a ransom note demanding an enormous cash payment or a television film showing us first as prisoners and then being executed. The last option was unlikely when the missing were Navy SEALs. We don't habitually get captured. Either we kill our enemy or our enemy kills us. SEALs don't put their hands up or wave white flags period. The command post knew that back in Asadabad or Bagram. They would not have been expecting a communique from the Taliban saying SEALs had been captured. There's an old SEAL motto, never assume a frogman's dead unless you find his body. Everyone knows that. The most likely scenario, aside from all dead, was that one or more of the Red Wings was hurt, out of communication, and unable to make contact. The problem was location. Where were we? How could we be found? Plainly, the Taliban were not saying a thing. Therefore, they had no prisoners. Equally, the missing SEALs weren't saying anything. Dead? Probably, wounded in action and still holding out in the mountains, out of contact? As the days went by, this must have seemed increasingly less likely. By now, Gularb had told me that his father had departed to walk to Asadabad alone. All my hopes rested in the soft tread of this powerful, yet tiny old man. Chapter 11. 
Reports of my death greatly exaggerated. He literally dragged me into a standing position, and then he was running and trying to make me keep up with him, and he kept shouting, signaling again and again, Taliban, Taliban are here, in the village, run, Dr. Marcus, for God's sake, run! Gularb had now become the principal figure in my life. He called the security shots, made sure I had food and water, and was, in my mind, the link between us and his father as the old man toiled through the mountains to Asadabad. The Afghani policeman betrayed no sign of stress, but he did reveal to me that a letter had been received earlier from the commander of the Taliban forces. It was a written demand that the villagers of Sabre hand over the American immediately. The demand came from the rising officer of the Taliban army in the northeast, the firebrand Commodore Abdul, right-hand man to Sharmak, and a character who plainly saw himself as some kind of eastern Che Guevara. His reputation was apparently growing as an ambush leader and as an officer who was expert at bringing in new recruits through the passes. I never knew, but it would not have surprised me to learn he had been in the front line of the army that confronted the team on the ridge. Though I have no doubt the strategy was planned by the senior man, Sharmak, who had done so much damage already. They did not, however, phase Gularb. He and his father had replied that it made no difference how bad the Taliban wanted the American, they were not going to get him. When Gularb told me, he made a very distinct, brave, dismissive gesture, and he spent some time trying to convey his personal position. They can't frighten me. My village is well armed, and we have our own laws and rights. The Taliban need our support a lot more than we need theirs. He was a gallant and confident man, at least on the surface. But I noticed he took no chances when there was any kind of suggestion the Taliban were coming in. I guess that's why we ended up sleeping on the roof. Also, he had not the slightest interest in a reward. I offered to give him my watch in return for his unending decency to me. I implored him to take my watch, because it was all I had to offer. But he always refused to accept it. As for money, what use could that have been to him? There was nothing to spend it on, no shops, the nearest town miles and miles away, a journey that had to be made on foot. A couple of the sneering kids did ask for money, teenagers, maybe 16 or 17-year-olds, but they were planning to join the Taliban and leave Sabre to fight for freedom. Gularb told me he had no intention of leaving here, and I understood that. He was part of the fabric of the village. One day, he would be the village elder. His family would grow up here. It was all he had ever known, all he had ever wanted. This very beautiful corner of the Hindu Kush was where he belonged. What use was money to Mohammed Gularb of Sabre? The last of the kids had left my room, and I was lying there contemplating the world, when there was a kick on the door that nearly took it off its hinges. 
No one kicks a door in quite like that except a Taliban raiding party. That was all I could imagine. But around here, where doors don't fit, a good bang with your sandal is about the only way to get the son of a bitch open, short of a full-blooded shoulder charge. But the sudden shock of a door being kicked in about five feet from your head is a nerve-wracking experience. And I'm neurotic about it to this day, because the sound of the crash on the door is the sound I heard before I was tortured. It sometimes dominates my dreams. I wake up sweating, a tremendous crash echoing in my mind. And no matter where I am, I need to check the door lock before I can sleep again. It's pretty goddamned inconvenient at times. Anyway, this was not the Taliban. It was just my own guys opening the door, which must have been shut firmly by the kids. I restarted my heart, and my room stayed kind of quiet until mid-morning, when the door catapulted open with a violent bang that shook the goddamned mountain, never mind the room. And once more, I almost jumped out of my Afghan jumpsuit. And this time, they were shouting at me. I could not understand what, but something had broken out. Things were on the move. Jesus Christ, I had to steady this group down. There were adults and kids all mixed up, and they were all yelling the same thing. Parachute! Parachute! Parachute, Dr. Marcus! Come quick! I made my way outside aching to high heaven all the way. I resolved to have another shot of that opium soon as I returned. But for now, it was all eyes upward, straight at the clear, blue, cloudless skies. What could we see? Nothing. Whatever had landed was down. And I stood there trying to make them understand I needed to know if there had been a man on the end of that parachute, and if so, how many parachutes there had been. Was this a drop zone for my buddies to come right in and get me? The upshot of this was also nothing. The tribesmen simply could not understand me. The kids who I detected were the ones who had actually spotted the parachute, or parachutes, were just as mystified. All the hours of study we had done together had come to nothing. There was a sudden conference, and most of the adults upped and left. I went back in. They returned maybe 15 minutes later and brought with them all my gear, which they had hidden away from the eyes of the Taliban. They gave me back my rifle and ammunition, my H gear, that's my harness, and in its pocket, my PRC-148 inter-squad radio, the one for which I'd lost the little microphone earpiece. It still had its weakish battery and its still operational emergency beacon. I was aware that if I grabbed the bull by the horns and went right outside and let rip with this communications gear, I would once more be a living, breathing distress signal, which the Americans might catch from a cruising helo. On the other hand, the Taliban, hidden all around in the hills, could scarcely miss me. I found this a bit of a dilemma. But the rearmament guys of Sabre also brought me my laser and the disposable camera. I grabbed my rifle and held it like you might caress a returning lover. This was the weapon God had granted me. And, so far as I could tell, 
still wanted me to have. We'd traveled a long way together, and I probably deserved some kind of an award for mountain climbing, maybe the Grand Prix Hindu Kush presented to Sherpa Marcus. Sorry, forget all that. I meant mountain falling. The Grand Prix Hindu Crash awarded unanimously to Sherpa Marcus the Unsteady. Outside, I put on my harness, locked and loaded the rifle, and prepared for whatever the hell might await us. But with my harness back, I was not yet done with the kids. That harness contained my notebook, and we had access to the village ballpoint pen. I marched them back into the house and carefully drew two parachutes on the page. I drew a man swinging down from the first one. On the second one, I drew a box. I showed both pictures to the kids and asked them, which one? And about 20 little fingers shot forward, all aimed directly at the parachute with the box. Beautiful. I had intel. There had been some kind of a supply drop. And since the local tribesmen do not use either aircraft or parachutes, those supplies had to be American. They also had to be aimed at the remnants of my team. Everyone else was dead. I was that remnant. I asked the kids exactly where the chutes had dropped, and they just pointed to the mountain. Then they got into gear and raced out there, I guess to try and show me. I stood outside and watched them go, still a bit baffled. Had my buddies somehow found me? Had the old man reached Asadabad? Either way, it was one hell of a coincidence the Americans had made a supply drop a few hundred yards from where I was taking cover. The mountains were endless, and I could have been anywhere. I went back into the house to rest my leg and talk for a while with Gularb. He had not seen the parachute drop, and he had no idea how far along the road his father had journeyed. In my mind, I knew what every active combat soldier knows, that Napoleon's army advanced on Moscow at one mile every 15 minutes, with full packs and muskets. That's four miles an hour, right? That way, the village elder should have made it in maybe 11 hours. Except for two mitigating factors. One, he was about 200 years old, and two, from where I stood, the mountain he was crossing had a gradient slightly steeper than the Washington Monument. If the V.E. made it by Ramadan 2008, I'd be kinda lucky. One hour later, there it goes again. Bang! That goddamn door went off like a bomb. Even Gularb jumped, but not as high as I did. In came the kids, accompanied by a group of adults, they carried with them a white document, which must have looked like a snowball in a coal mine up here where the word litter simply does not exist. I took it from them and realized it was an instruction pamphlet for a cell phone. Where the hell did you get this? I asked them. Right out there, Dr. Marcus, right out there. Everyone was pointing at the mountainside, and I had no trouble with the translation. Parachute? I said, yes, Dr. Marcus, yes, parachute. 
I sent them right out there again, trying to make it clear that I needed the mountainside searched for anything like this, anything that might have come in on the parachutes. My guys don't drop cell phone pamphlets, but they might have been trying to drop me a cell phone and the pamphlet just came with it. Either way, I could not find out for myself, so I had to get the guys to do it for me. Gularb stayed, but the others went with the kids, like a golf crowd fanned out to look for Tiger's ball in deep rough. Gularb and I settled down. We had a cup of tea and some of those delicious little candies, then lounged back on our big cushions. Suddenly, bang! The door nearly cannoned off its hinges. I shot tea all over the rug, and in came everyone again. This time they had found a 5590 radio battery and an MRE, meal ready to eat. The guys must have thought I was starving. Correct, but the battery did not fit my PRC-148 radio, which sucked because if it had, I could have fired up a permanent distress signal straight into the sky above the village. As things were, I had no idea if my present weak radio beacon would reach much higher than the rooftops. I had no need to interrogate the kids further. If there had been anything else out there on the mountain, they'd have found it. There obviously wasn't. Whatever the drop had contained, the Taliban had beaten the kids to it. The one bit of reverse good news was they clearly had the cell phone or phones and they would probably try to use them. And the entire U.S. electronic surveillance system in the province of Kunar would be listening, ready to locate the caller. But then I noticed something which made my blood boil. Almost every one of the kids had been battered. They had bruises on their faces, cut lips, and bloody noses. Those little pricks out there had beaten up my kids, punched them in their faces to stop them getting the stuff from the drop. There is no end to the lengths these people will go to to win this war. And I'll never forget what they did to the kids of Sabre. I spent the rest of the day patching them up. All those brave little guys trying not to cry. I nearly wiped out the entire contents of Sarawa's medical bag. Whenever I hear the word Taliban, I think of that day first. More strategically, it did seem the American military believed there was at least one SEAL still alive down here. The question was, what now? No one wanted to risk sending in another MH-47 helicopter, since the Taliban seemed to have become very adroit at knocking them down. Mind you, they have had a lot of practice, right back from when they were using those old Stinger missiles to knock the Russians out of the sky. And we all knew the danger point was landing, when the ramp was down, ready for an insert. That's when the mountain men aimed the RPGs straight in the back to explode right in the fuel tank area. And I guess the U.S. flight crews could never be sure of any Afghan village who might be in it, what weapons they had, and how skilled they might be at using them.
I knew they'd need a pretty good aerial group to soften the place up before they could come in and get me. And I was desperate to give them some kind of a guide. I rigged up my radio emergency beacon to transmit through the open window. I had no idea how much battery I had left, so I just turned it on, aimed it high, and left it there on the window ledge, hopefully pinpointing my whereabouts to any overhead flights by the Air Force or the Night Stalkers. To my surprise, U.S. reaction happened a whole lot quicker than I thought it would. That afternoon, the U.S. Air Force came thundering in, dropping 1,200-pound bombs on the mountainside beyond the village, right where the Taliban had picked up the stuff from the parachute drop. The blasts were incredible. In my house, well, I thought the whole building was coming down. Rocks and dust cascaded into the room. One of the walls sustained a major structural fault as blast after blast shook the mountain from top to bottom. Outside, people were screaming as the bombs hit and exploded. Thatched roofs were blown off. There was a dust storm outside. Mothers and kids were rushing for cover. The tribesmen were at a complete loss. Everyone had heard of American air power, but they had not seen it firsthand like this. In fact, none of the bombs, I guess by design, hit Sabre. But they came close damned close, all around the perimeter. There must have been a big lesson right here, and a very simple one. If you allow the Taliban and Al-Qaeda to make camp in and around your village, no good can possibly come of it. However, that wasn't much comfort to my villagers as they tried to clean up the mess, rebuild walls and roofs, and calm down frightened kids, most of whom had had a very bad day, and all because of me. I looked out at the havoc around me and felt the most terrible sadness. And Gularb understood what I was feeling. He came over and put his arm around me and said, Ah, Dr. Marcus, Taliban very bad. We know. We fight. Jesus. Just what I need, a brand new battle. We both retreated into the house and sat down for a while, trying to plot a course for me which would cause the least possible trouble to the farmers of Sabre. It seemed apparent that my presence here was causing a more and more threatening attitude from the Taliban. And the last thing I wanted was to cause pain and unhappiness among these people who had sheltered me. But my options were narrow, despite the Americans being, it seemed, hot on my trail. One of the main problems was that Gularb's father had not made contact with us, because there was no way he could, and we had no way of knowing whether he had made it to a military base. The Taliban were probably not overwhelmingly thrilled at being bombed by the U.S. Air Force, and had probably sustained many casualties out there on the mountain. It occurred to both Gularb and me that the word revenge might not be far from the curled lips of these hate-filled Muslim fanatics, and that I might be the most convenient target. 
That meant a major problem and probably loss of life for the people of Sabre. Gularb himself was under pressure since he'd received that threat from the Taliban. He had a wife, children, and many relatives to think about. In the end, the decision made itself. Clearly, I had to leave, just to keep the village from becoming a battleground. Loke had worked well, but we both wondered if its mystical tribal folklore could hold out indefinitely in the face of the wounded and somewhat embarrassed Taliban and Al-Qaeda fighters. The U.S. bombardment of the mountainside had, for a while, raised my hopes and expectations. After all, here were my own guys swooping over these tribesmen from the Middle Ages, hitting them hard with high-tech modern ordnance. That's got to be good, right? But not everything's good. Retribution against me and my protectors was now uppermost in my mind. I think it was the tight-fisted old oil baron, John Paul Getty, who once observed that for every plus that takes place in this world, there is somewhere, somehow, a minus. He got that right. The question was, where should I go? And here, my options were very limited. I could never make the long walk to the base at Asadabad, and anyhow, that would seem inane, since the village elder was either in there or very nearly. And the only place of refuge close by was the U.S. outpost at Monaghy, two miles away over a very steep mountain. I did not relish the plan, and neither would the guys who would need to assist me on the journey. But so far as Gularb and I could tell, there was nothing else we could do except hunker down and prepare for a Taliban attack. And I really did not want to put anyone through that. Especially the kids. We thus resolved that I should walk with him and two others over the mountain to the village of Monaghy, which sounds Irish, but is strictly Pashtun and is cooperative with the U.S. military. The plan was to wait until long after dark and then slip out into the high pastures around 11 o'clock, stealthily passing right under the noses of the probably sleeping Taliban watchmen. I could only hope my left leg would stand up to the journey. I'd lost a ton of weight, but I was still a very big guy to be half-carried by a couple of slender Afghan tribesmen, most of whom were five foot eight and a hundred ten pounds soaked to the skin. But Gularb did not seem too worried, and we settled down to wait out the long, dark hours before eleven, when we would make our break. Night fell, quite abruptly, as it does up here in the peaks when the sun finally slips behind them. We lit no lanterns, offering no clue to the Taliban. We just sat there in the dark, sipping tea and waiting for the right moment to leave. Suddenly, from right out of the blue, there was the most colossal thunderstorm. The rain came swiftly, lashing rain, driving sideways over the mountain. It was rain like you rarely see, the kind of stuff usually identified with those hurricanes they keep replaying on the Weather Channel. It belted down on the village of Sabre. 
All windows and doors were slammed tight shut because this was monsoon rain driving in right across the country from the southwest. No one would have set foot outside home because that wind and rain would have swept anyone away, straight off the mountain. Outside, great gushes of water cascaded down the steep main trail through the village. It sounded like we were in the middle of a river, the water racing past the front door. An area like this cannot, of course, flood, not up here, because the gradient is far too steep to hold water. But it can sure as hell get wet. We had a rock and mud roof that was sound, but I did wonder how some of the households down below us were getting along. Everything here is communal, including the cooking, so I guess everyone was just crowded in together in the undamaged houses, out of the rain. Up above us, the mountaintops were lit up by great bolts of forked lightning, ice blue in color, jagged electric neon in the sky. Thunder rolled across the Hindu Kush. Gularb and I got down close to the thick rock wall at the back of the room because our own house was by no means watertight. But the rain was not driving through the gaps in the rocks and mud. Our spot was dry, but we were still deafened and dazzled by this atrocity of nature raging outside. That level of storm can be unnerving, but when it goes on for as long as this one, you become accustomed to its fury. Every time I looked out the window, the lightning flashed and crackled above the highest peaks but occasionally it illuminated the sky beyond our immediate range of hills. And that was just about the creepiest sight you've ever seen, like the wicked witch of the Kush was about to come hurtling through the sky on a broomstick. Lightning out in front, naked and violent, is one thing, but similar bolts hidden from view, turning the heavens into a weird electric blue, made a landscape like this look unearthly, enormous black summits, stark against the universe. It was a forbidding sight for a wounded warrior more used to the great flat plains of Texas. But slowly I became used to it, and finally fell into a deep sleep, flat out on the floor. Our departure time of 2300 came and went, and still the rain lashed down. Midnight came, and with it, a new calendar date, Sunday, July 3rd, which this year would be the midpoint of the 4th of July weekend, a time for celebration all over the USA, at least in most parts, except for those in profound mourning for the lost special forces. While I was sitting out the storm, the mood back home on the ranch, according to Mom, was very depressed. I had been missing in action for five days. The throng gathered in our front yard now numbered almost 300. They had never left, but the crowd was growing very solemn. There was still a police cordon around the property, the local sheriffs had been joined by the judges, and the state police were busy providing personal escorts in the form of cruisers to accompany the SEALs on their twice-daily training runs, 
front and rear. Attending the daily prayers were local firemen, construction men, ranchers, bookstore owners, engineers, mechanics, teachers, two charter boat fishing captains. There were salesmen, mortgage brokers, lawyers from Houston, and local attorneys. All of them fighting off my demise in the best way they knew how. Mom says the whole place was lit up all night by the lights from the automobiles. Someone had brought in porta cabins, and there seemed little point in people going anywhere. Not until they knew whether I was still alive. According to Mom, they separated into groups, one offering prayers every hour, others singing hymns, others drinking beers. Local ladies who had known Morgan and me all our lives were unable to hold back their tears. All of them were in attendance for only one reason, to comfort my parents if the worst should be announced. I don't know that much about other states because my experience in California has been strictly sheltered in the Spec Warcom compound. But in my opinion, that nearly week-long vigil carried out in an entirely impromptu manner by the people of Texas says a huge amount about them, their compassion, their generosity, and their love for their stricken neighbors. Mom and Dad did not know all of them by any means, but no one will ever forget the single-minded purpose of their visits. They just wanted to help in any way they could, just wanted to be there, because one of their own was lost on the battlefield, far, far away. And as the weekend wore on, no stars and stripes were flying. I guess they were not sure whether to raise them to half-mast or not. My dad says it was obvious people were becoming disheartened. The sheer regularity of the signal by phone from Coronado, no news. The grimness of the media announcing stuff like, hope is fading for the missing Navy SEALs. Seems like those early reports of the death of all four will be proved accurate. Texas family mourns their loss, Navy still refusing to confirm SEALs' deaths. It beats the hell out of me. In the military, if we don't know something, we say we don't know and proceed to shut up until we do. Some highly paid charlatans in the media think it's absolutely fine to take a wild guess at the truth and then tell a couple of million people it's cast iron fact, just in case they might be right. Well, I hope they're proud of themselves because they nearly broke my mom's heart. And if it had not been for the stern authority of Senior Chief Petty Officer Chris Gothrow, I think she might have had a nervous breakdown. That morning, he found her in the house, privately crying. And right then, Senior Chief Gothrow stepped in. He stood her up, turned her around, and ordered her to look him straight in the eye. Listen, Holly, he said, Marcus is missing in action. That's MIA in our language. That's all. Missing means what it says. It means we cannot, at present, locate him. It does not mean he's dead. And he's not dead until I tell you he's dead. Understand? We do not have a body. 
but we do have movement on the ground. We cannot tell right now who it is or how many there are, but no one, repeat, no one in Spec Warcom believes he is dead. I want you to understand that clearly. The austere words of a professional must have hit home. Mom rallied after that, aided and comforted by Morgan, who still claimed he was in contact with me and that whatever else was happening, I was not dead. There were now 35 SEALs on the property, including Commander Jeff Bender, Admiral McGuire's public relations officer, and a fantastic encouragement to everyone. Navy SEAL Chaplain Trey Vaughn from Coronado was a spiritual pillar of strength. Everyone wanted to talk to him, and he dealt with it all with optimism and hope. When the mood was becoming morbid and there were too many people in tears, he would urge them to be positive. Stop that crying right now. We need you. We need your prayers. And Marcus needs your prayers. But most of all, we need your energy. No giving up, hear me? No one will ever forget Trayvon. There were also two naval chaplains from the local command who just showed up out of nowhere. Chief Bruce Mysex, the Navy recruiter boss from Houston, who'd known me a long time, turned up and never left. As the days had worn on, shipments of seafood started to arrive from the Gulf ports to the south. Fresh shrimp, catfish, and other white fish. One lady brought an enormous consignment of sushi every day. And families who had spent generations in the South stuck hard by that old Southern tradition of bringing covered dishes containing pots of chicken and dumplings to a funeral. Dad thought that was a bit premature, but there were a lot of people to feed, and he assumed a loose command of the cooking. Everyone was grateful for everything. He says it was strange, but there was never any question of anyone going home. They were just going to stay there, for better or for worse. Meanwhile, back in the freaking thunderstorm, more than 30 pounds lighter than when I first set off on this mission, I was sleeping like a child. Gulab said at 0300 it had been raining for nearly six hours without ever slowing up. I was out to the world, the first time I had slept soundly for a week, oblivious to the weather, oblivious to the Taliban. I slept right through the night and woke up in broad daylight after the rain. I checked my watch and rounded on Gularb. I was supposed to be in Montague, for Christ's sakes. Why the hell hadn't he made sure I was? What kind of a guide was he, allowing me to oversleep? Gularb was sanguine, and since we were growing very efficient at communicating, he was able to tell me he knew it was the first time I had been able to sleep for a long time, and he thought it would be better to leave me. Anyway, he said, we could not possibly have gone out in that weather because it was too dangerous. The overnight walk to Monaghy had been out of the question. One way and another, I took all this pretty badly. I actually stormed out of the house, racked by yet another disappointment. 
After the helicopters that never came, Sarawa's sudden vanishing while I was in the cave, the village elder taking off without me, and now the trip to Monaghy in ruins. Christ, could I ever believe a goddamned word these people said? I'd been asleep for so long, I decided to indulge myself in a luxurious and prolonged pee. I walked outside wearing my harness and a very sour expression, temporarily forgetting entirely that I owed my life to the people of this village. I left my rifle behind and walked slowly down the steep hill, which was now as slippery as all hell because of the rain. At the conclusion of this operation, I took myself up the hill a little way and sat down on the drying grass, mainly because I did not wish to be any ruder to Gularb than I already had been, but also because I just wanted to sit alone for a while and nurse my thoughts. I still considered my best bet would be to find a way to get to the nearest American military base, and that was still Monaghy. I stared up at the towering mountain I would have to cross, the rain and dew now glinting off it in the early morning sun, and I think I visibly flinched. It really would be one heck of a climb, and my leg was aching already, not at the thought of it, but because I'd walked a hundred yards. Bullet wounds tend to take a while to heal up. Also, despite Sarawa's bold efforts, that leg was, I knew, still full of shrapnel, which would not be much of a help toward a pain-free stroll over the peak. Anyway, I just sat there on the side of the mountain and tried to clear my mind, to decide whether there was anything else I could do except sit around and wait for a new night when Gularb and the guys could assist me to Monaghy. And all the time, I was weighing the possibility of the Taliban coming in on some vengeful attack in retribution for yesterday's bombardment. The fact was, I was a living, breathing target, as well as a distress signal. There sat the mighty Sharmak, with his second-in-command, Commodore Abdul, and a large, trained army, all of them, with essentially nothing else to do except kill me. And if they managed to make it into the village and hit the house I was staying in, I'd be lucky to fend them off and avoid a short trip to Pakistan for publicity and execution. Christ, those guys would have loved nothing more in all the world than to grab me and announce to the Arab television stations they had defeated one of the top U.S. Navy SEAL teams. Not just defeated, wiped them out in battle, smashed the rescue squad, blown up the helicopter, executed all survivors, and here they had the last one. The more I thought about it, the more untenable my position seemed to be. Could the goat herds of Sabre band together and fight shoulder to shoulder to save me? Or would the brutal killers of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, in the end, get their way? It was odd, but I still did not realize the full power of that locay. No one had fully explained it to me. I knew there was something, but that ancient tribal law was still a mystery to me. I stared around the hills, but I could see no one outside of the village. 
Gularb and his guys always behaved as if the very mountainside was alive with hidden danger, and while he did not, in my mind, make much of an alarm clock, he had to be an expert on the bandit country which surrounds his own sabre. It was thus with rising concern that I saw Gularb racing down the hill toward me. He literally dragged me into a standing position and then pulled me down the trail leading to the lower reaches of the village. He was running and trying to make me keep up with him, and he kept shouting, signaling again and again, Taliban, Taliban are here in the village. Run, Dr. Marcus, for God's sake, run. He pushed his right shoulder up under my left arm to bear some of my fast-dwindling weight, and I half hobbled, half ran, half fell down the hill. Of course, by my own recent standards, this was like a stroll on the beach. I suddenly realized we might have to fight, and I'd left my rifle back in the house. I had my ammunition in the harness, but nothing to fire it with. And now it was my turn to yell, Gularb, Gularb, stop, stop, I don't have my gun. He replied something I took to be Afghan for what a complete fucking idiot you've turned out to be. But whatever had put the fear of God into him was still right there, and he had no intention of stopping until he had located a refuge for us. We ducked and dived through the lower village trails until he found the house he was looking for. Gularb kicked the door open, rammed it shut behind him, and helped me down onto the floor. And there I sat unarmed, largely useless, and highly apprehensive about what might happen in the next hour. Gularb, without a word, opened the front door and took off at high speed. He went past the window like a rocket, running hard up the gradient, possibly going for the Hindu Kush all-comers 100 meters record. God knows where he was going, but he'd gone. Three minutes later, he kicked open the door and came charging back into the house. He was carrying my rifle as well as his own AK-47. I had 75 rounds left. I think he had more in his own ammunition belt. Gravely, he handed me the Mark 12 sniper rifle and said simply, Taliban, Dr. Marcus, we fight. He looked more serious than I'd ever seen him. Not afraid, just full of determination. Up on that mountain, when he had first seen me, Sarawa had made the decision with his buddies that I, a wounded American, should be granted locay. The doctor knew perfectly well from the first moment by that gushing mountain river that the situation might ultimately come to this, even if I didn't. It was a decision that, right from the start, had affected everyone in the village. I think most people had accepted it, and it had obviously been endorsed by the village elder. I'd seen a few angry faces full of hatred, but they were not in the majority. And now the village chief of law and order, Mohammed Gularb, was prepared to stand by that unspoken vow his people had given to me. He was doing it not for personal gain, but out of a sense of honor that reached back down the generations, 2,000 years of Pashtunwali tradition. You will defend your guest to the death. I watched Gularb carefully as he rammed a new magazine into his AK. 
This was a man preparing to step right up to the plate. And I saw that light of goodness in his dark eyes, the way you always do when someone is making a brave and selfless action. I thanked Gularp and banged a new magazine into my rifle. I stared out the window and assessed the battlefield. We were low down on almost flat terrain, but the Taliban's attack would be launched from the higher ground, the way they always preferred it. I wondered how many other rock and mud houses in Sabre were also shielding men who were about to fight. The situation was serious, but not dire. We had excellent cover, and I didn't think the enemy knew precisely where I was. So far as I could see, the battle for Murphy's Ridge represented a two-edged sword. First of all, the tribesmen could be seething with fury about the number of their guys killed in action by Mikey, Axe, Danny, and me. This might even mean a suicide bomber, or an attack so reckless they'd risk any number of warriors just to get me. I wasn't crazy about either option. On the other hand, they might be slightly scared at the prospect of facing even one of that tiny American team that had wiped out possibly 50% of a Taliban assault force. Sure, they knew I was wounded, but they also knew I would be well-armed by the villagers, even if I had lost my own rifle. I guessed they would either throw everything at me, the hell with the expense, or take it real steady fighting their way through the village house by house until they had Gularb and me cornered. But an impending attack requires quick, expert planning. I needed to operate fast and make Gularb understand our tactics. He immediately gave way to my experience, which made me think he had never quite accepted my story about being a doctor. He knew I'd fought on the ridge, and right now, he was ready to do my bidding. We had two areas to cover, the door and the window. It wouldn't have been much good if I'd been blasting away through the window at Taliban down the street when a couple of those sneaky little bastards crept through the front door and shot me in the back. I explained it was up to Gularb to cover the entrance, to make sure I had the split second I would need to swing around and cut them down before they could open fire. Ideally, I would have preferred him to issue an early warning that the enemy was coming. That way, I might have been able to get into the shadows in the corners and take him out maybe six at a time instead of just gunning down the leader. Ideally, I would have liked a heavy piece of furniture to ram in front of the door just to buy me a little extra time. But there was no furniture, just those big cushions which were obviously not sufficiently heavy. Anyway, Gularb understood the strategy and nodded fiercely, the way he always did when he was sure of something. Okay, Marcus, he said, and it did not escape me. He dropped the doctor part. When battle began, Gularb would man the end of the window that gave him the best dual view of the door. I would concentrate on whatever frontal assault might be taking place. I'd need to shoot steadily and straight, wasting nothing, just like Axe and Danny did on the mountain while Mikey called the shots. I tried to tell Gularb to stay calm and shoot straight, nothing hysterical, 
That way we'd win, or at worst, cause a disorderly Taliban retreat. He looked a bit vacant. I could tell he was not understanding, so I hit him with an old phrase we always use before a conflict. Okay, guys, let's rock and roll. Matter of fact, that was worse. Gularb thought I was about to give him dancing lessons. It might have been funny if the situation had not been so serious. And then we both heard the opening bursts of gunfire high up in the village. There was a lot of it, too much. The sheer volume of fire was ridiculous, unless the Taliban were planning to wipe out the entire population of Sabre. And I knew they would not consider that, because such a slaughter would surely end all support from these tribal villages up here in the mountains. No, they would not do that. They wanted me, but they would never kill another hundred Afghan people, including women and children, in order to get me. The Taliban and their al-Qaeda cohorts were mercilessly cruel, but this Ben Sharmak was not stupid. Besides, I detected no battlefield rhythm to the gunfire. It was not being conducted with the short, sharp bursts of trained men going for a target. It came in prolonged volleys, and I listened carefully. There was no obvious return of fire, and right then, I knew what was happening. These lunatics had come rolling out of the trees into the village, firing randomly into the air and aiming at nothing the way they often do, all jumping up and down and shouting, Death to the infidel! Stupid pricks. Their loose objective is always to frighten the life out of people. And right now, they seem to be succeeding. I could hear women screaming, children crying, but no return of fire from the tribesmen of Sabre. I knew precisely what that would sound like, and I was not hearing it. I looked at Gularb. He was braced for action, leaning in the window with me, one eye on the front door. We both clicked our safety catches open. Up above, we could still hear the screaming, but the gunfire subsided. Little sons of bitches were probably beating up the kids, which might have inspired me to get right back up there and take on the whole jihadist army single-handed. But I held back, held my fire, and waited. We waited for maybe 45 minutes, and then it was quiet, as if they had never been here. That unseen village calm had returned. There was no sense of panic or sign of injured people. I left it to Gularb to call this one. Taliban gone, he said simply. What happens now, I asked him. Bagram? Gularb shook his head. Bagram, he said. Then he signaled for the umpteenth time, Helicopter will come. I rolled my eyes heavenward. I'd heard this helicopter crap before, and I had news for Gularb. Helicopter no come, I told him. Helicopter come, he replied. As ever, I could not really know what Gularb knew or how he had discovered what was happening. But right now, he believed the Taliban had gone into the house where I had been staying and found I was missing. No one had betrayed me, 
and they had not dared to conduct a house-to-house search for fear of further alienating the people, and, in particular, the village elder. This armed gang of tribesmen, who were hell-bent on driving out the Americans and the government, could not function up here in these protective mountains entirely alone. Without local support, their primitive supply line would perish, and they would rapidly begin to lose recruits. Armies need food, cover, and cooperation, and the Taliban could only indulge in so much bullying before these powerful village leaders decided they preferred the company of the Americans. That's why they had just evacuated Sabre. They would still surround the village, awaiting their chance to grab me, but they would not risk causing major disruption to the day-to-day lives of the people. I'd been here for five nights now, including the night in the cave, and the Taliban had crossed the boundaries of Sabre only twice, once for a few hours of violence late in the evening, and once just now for maybe an hour. Gularb was certain they had gone, but he was equally certain we could not dare go back to the house. It was almost ten in the morning by now, and Gularb was preparing to leave and take me with him, once more, out into the mountains. It had passed midnight back in Texas, and the vigil at our ranch continued. The media was still voicing its opinion that the SEAL team was dead, and the latest call from Coronado had been received. There was still no news of me. They all knew there would be another call at 0400, and everyone waited out there in the hot July night, their hopes diminishing, according to Mom, as the hours ticked by. People were starting to speculate how I could possibly have survived if no one at the American base knew where I was. But news was really scarce, except for the part some members of the media invented. And people were beginning to lose heart. Except, apparently, for Morgan and the other SEALs, none of whom would even consider I was dead. At least, that's what they always told everyone. M.I.A., they kept repeating. M.I.A. He's not dead till we say he's dead. Morgan continued to tell everyone that he was thinking about me, and I was thinking about him. He was in contact, even if no one else was and Senior Chief Gothrow kept a careful eye on my mom in case she disintegrated. But she remembers that night to this day and how there were people growing sadder by the minute, and how the SEALs held it all together, the chaplains, the officers, the non-coms, some ordering, some imploring, but asking everyone to keep the faith. Marcus needs you! Chaplain Trayvon told this large and disparate gathering, and God is protecting him. And now, repeat after me the words of the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Solemnly, some of the toughest men in the U.S. Armed Forces stood shoulder to shoulder with the SEAL chaplain, each of them thinking of me as an old and 
I hope, trusted friend and teammate. Each of them, at those moments, alone with his God. As I was with mine, half a world away. At 0400, the call came through to the ranch from Coronado. Still no news. And the SEALs started the process all over again, encouraging, sharing their optimism, explaining that I had been especially trained to withstand such an ordeal. If anyone can get out of this, it's Marcus, Chaplain Vaughn said, and he'll feel the energy in your prayers, and you will give him strength, and I forbid you to give up on him. God will bring him home. Out there in the dry summer pastures, surrounded by thousands of head of cattle, the words of the United States Navy hymn echoed into the night. There were no neighbors to wake. Everyone for miles around was in our front yard. Mom says everyone was out there that night. Again, nearly 300. And the policemen and the judges and the sheriffs and all the others joined Mom and Dad and the Iron Men from Speckwarcom, just standing there, singing at the top of their lungs, Oh, hear us when we cry to thee. For seals in air, on land, and sea. Back in Sabre, Gularb and I were making a break for it. Clutching our rifles, we left our little mud and rock redoubt in the lower street and headed farther down the mountain. Painfully, I made the 200 yards to a flat field which had been cultivated and recently harvested. It was strictly dirt now, but raked dirt as if ready for a new crop. I had seen this field before, from the window of House 2, which I could just see maybe 350 yards back up the mountain. I guess the field was about the size of two American football fields. It had a dry rock border all around. It was an ideal landing spot for a helicopter, I thought, certainly the only suitable area I had ever seen up there. It was a place where a pilot could bring in an MH-47 without risking a collision with trees or rolling off a precipice or landing in the middle of a Taliban trap. For a few moments, I considered riding a large SOS in the dirt, but Gularb was anxious, and he half-carried, half-manhandled me out of the field and back onto the lush mountain slopes. And there, he found me a resting place at the side of the trail where I could take cover under a bush. And this carried a bonus, because the bush contained a full crop of blackberries. And I lay down there in the shade, luxuriously eating the berries, which were not quite ripe, but tasted damn good to me. It was very quiet again now and my trained sniper's ear, honed perhaps better than ever before, detected no unusual sound in the undergrowth. Not a snapped twig, not an unusual rustling in the grass. No unusual shadow behind a tree. Nothing. We waited there for a short while before Gularb stood up and walked a little way, then turned and whispered, We go now. I got hold of my rifle and twisted onto my right side, ready to heave myself upward, a movement that this week had taken a lot of concentration and effort. 
I don't know why it happened, but something told me to look up, and I cast my eyes to the slope behind us. And right there, sitting very quietly, his gaze steady upon me and betraying nothing, was Sharmak, the Taliban leader, the man I had come to capture or kill. I'd seen only a grainy, not very good photograph of him, but it was enough for me. I was certain it was him. And I think he knew I knew. He was a lean character, like all of them, forty-ish, with a long, black, red-flecked beard. He wore black Afghan garb, a reddish vest, and a black turban. I seem to recall he had green eyes, and they were filled with a hatred which would have melted a U.S. Army tank. He stared right through me and spoke not one word. I noticed he was unarmed, and I tightened my grip on the Mark 12 and very slowly turned it on him until the barrel was aimed right between his eyes. He was not afraid. He never flinched, never moved, and I had a powerful instinct to shoot that bastard dead right here on the mountain. After all, it was what I had come for, that or capture him, and that last part wasn't going to happen. Sharmak was surrounded by his army. If I'd shot him, I would not have lasted 20 seconds. His guys would have gunned down both me and Gularb, and then, minus their beloved commander-in-chief, probably would have massacred the entire village, including the kids. I considered that, and rejected shooting him. I also considered that Sharmak was clearly not about to shoot me. The presence of Gularb made it a complete standoff, and Sharmak was not about to call in his guys to shoot the oldest son of Sabre's village elder. Equally, I did not feel especially inclined to commit suicide. Everyone held their fire. Sharmak just sat there, and then Gularb nodded to the Taliban boss, who I noticed made an infinitesimal incline of his head, like a pitcher acknowledging a catcher's signal. And then Gularb walked slowly across to talk to him, and Sharmak stood up, and they turned their backs on me and moved farther up the mountainside out of my sight. There was only one subject they could possibly be discussing. Would the people of Sabre now agree to give me up? and I could not know how far Gularb and his father would still go to defend me. I just slumped back under the blackberry bush, uncertain of my fate, uncertain what these two mountain tribesmen would decide, because each of them, in his way, had so far proved to be unbending in his principles. The relentless killer, a man who saw himself as the warrior savior of Afghanistan, now in conference with the village cop, a man who seemed prepared to risk everything just to defend me. Chapter 12 228! It's 228! In her mind, there could be only one possible reason for the call. They'd found my body on the mountain. A voice came down the line and demanded, Is the family assembled? 
They were gone for five minutes, and they came back together. Ben Sharmack stood for a few moments, staring at me. And then he climbed away back to his army. Gularb walked down the hill to me and tried to explain Sharmack had handed him a note that said, either you hand over the American or every member of your family will be killed. Gularb made his familiar dismissive gesture, and we both turned and watched the Taliban leader walking away through the trees. And the village cop offered me his hand, helped me to my feet, and once more led me through the forest, half lifting me down the gradients, always considerate of my shattered left leg, until we reached a dried-up riverbed. And there we rested. We watched for Taliban sharpshooters, but no one came. All around us in the trees, their AKs ready, were familiar faces from Sabre, ready to defend us. We waited for at least 45 minutes, and then, amid the unholy silence of the mountain, two more guys from my village arrived. It was obvious they were signaling for us to leave right now. Each of them gave me support under my arms and led me up through the trees on the side of this steep escarpment. I have to admit, I no longer knew what was going on, where we were going, or what I was supposed to be doing. I realized we could not go back to the village, and I really did not like the tone of that note Gularb had shoved in his pocket. And here I was, alone with these tribesmen, with no coherent plan. My leg was killing me, I could hardly put it to the ground, and the two guys carrying me were bearing the whole of my weight. We came to a little flight of rough rock steps cut into the gradient. They got behind pushing me up with their shoulders. I made the top step first, and as I did so, I came face to face with an armed Afghani fighter I had not seen before. He carried an AK-47 held in the ready-to-fire position, and when he saw me, he raised it. I looked at his hat, and there was a badge containing the words which almost stopped my heart. Bush for president. He was Afghan special forces, and I was seized by panic because I was dressed in the clothes of an Afghan tribesman, identical to those of the Taliban. But right behind him, bursting through the undergrowth, came two U.S. Army Rangers in combat uniform, rifles raised, the leader, a big black guy. Behind me, with unbelievable presence of mind, Gularb was roaring out my bud's class numbers he'd seen on my trident voodoo tattoo. Two, two, eight! It's two, two, eight! The Ranger's face suddenly lit up with a gigantic smile. He took one look at my six-foot-five-inch frame and snapped, American? I just had time to nod before he let out a yell that ripped across the mountainside. It's Marcus, guys! We got him! We got him! And the ranger came running toward me and grabbed me in his arms, and I could smell his sweat and his combat gear and his rifle, the smells of home, the smells I live with. American smells. I tried to keep steady, not break down, mostly because seals would never show weakness in front of a ranger. Hey, bro, I said. It's good to see you. 
By this time, there was chaos on the mountain. Army guys were coming out of the forest from all over the place. I could see they were really beat up, wearing battered combat gear, all of them with several days' growth of beard. They were covered in mud, unkempt, and all grinning broadly. I guessed, correctly as it happened, they'd been out here searching for my team since early last Wednesday morning. Hell, they'd been out all night in that thunderstorm. No wonder they looked a bit disheveled. It was Sunday now, and Jesus, was it great to hear the English language again. Just the everyday words, the diverse American accents, the familiarity. I'm telling you, when you've been in a hostile, foreign environment for a while, with no one to whom you can explain anything, being rescued by your own kind, tough, confident, organized guys, professional, hard-trained, armed to the teeth, ready for anything, bursting with friendship. Well, it's a feeling of the highest possible elation. But I wouldn't recommend the preparation for such a moment. They moved into action immediately. An army captain ordered a team to get me up out of the forest, onto higher ground. They carried me up the hill and sat me down next to a goat pen. U.S. Corpsman Travis instantly set about fixing up my wounds. He removed the old dressings which Sarawa had given me and applied new antiseptic cream and fresh bandages. He gave me clean water and antibiotics. By the time he'd finished, I felt damn near human. The atmosphere was unavoidably cheerful, because all the guys felt their mission was accomplished. All Americans in combat understand that feeling of celebration, reflecting, as we all do, that so much could have gone wrong. So much we had evaded by our own battlefield know-how so many times. It could have gone either way. These rangers and green berets were no different. Somehow, in hundreds of square miles of mountainous terrain, they'd found me alive. But I knew they did not really understand the extreme danger we were all in. I explained to them the number of Taliban warriors there were out here, how many there had been against us on Murphy's Ridge, the presence of Sharmak and his entire army so close, maybe watching us. No, forget that, most certainly watching us. We were all together, and we would make a formidable fighting force if attacked. But we would be badly outnumbered, and we were now all inside a Taliban encirclement not just me. I debriefed them as thoroughly as I could, first of all explaining that my guys were all dead, Mikey, Axe, and Danny. I found that especially difficult, because I had not told anyone before. There had been no one for me to report to, definitely no one who would understand what those guys meant to me, and the gaping hollow they would leave in my life for the rest of my days. I consulted my thighs, where I still had my clear notes of routes, distances, and terrain. I showed them the areas where I knew the Taliban were encamped, helped them mark up their maps. Here, here, and here, guys, that's where they are. The fact was, the bastards were everywhere, all around us, waiting for their chance. 
I did have a feeling that Sharmak might have grown wary of facing heavy American firepower head on. He'd had half his army wiped out on the ridge by just four of us. There were a lot more of us now gathered around the goat pens while Travis did his number. I asked the ranger captain how many guys he had, and he replied, we're good, 20. In my view, that was probably a bit light, since Sharmak could easily be back to his full strength of maybe 150 to 200 warriors, reinforced by Al-Qaeda. We got gunships, Apache 64s standing by, he said. Whatever we need, we're good. I stressed once more that we were undoubtedly surrounded, and he replied, Roger that, Marcus. We'll act accordingly. Before we left, I asked them how the hell they'd found me, and it turned out to be my emergency beacon in the window of the little rock house in the mountain. The flight crews had picked it up when they were flying over and then tracked it back to the village. They were pretty certain the owner of that PRC-148 radio was one of the original SEAL team, but had to consider the fact it might have been stolen by the Taliban. They did not, however, think it had been operated by Afghan tribesmen in this instance, and they thought it unlikely the beacon had been switched on and aimed skyward by guys who had not the slightest idea what it was for. They thus reasoned that one of the seals was right down there in that village, or in any event, pretty damned close. So the guys just closed in on me somehow moving their own dragnet right past the Taliban dragnet. And suddenly, there I was, dressed up like Osama bin Laden's second-in-command, arms wrapped around a couple of tribesmen like we were three drunks falling up the hill, the village policeman right behind yelling, eight. Led by Gularb, we set off for the village and moved back into my second house, the one where we'd sat out the storm? The army threw a security perimeter all the way around Sabre, and they carried me up past that big tree and into the main room. I noticed that rooster was right there in the tree. He was quiet for a change, but the memory of him still made me want to blow his freaking head off. The guys rustled up some tea, and we settled down for a detailed debriefing. It was noon in Sabre, and in attendance was a very serious group of army personnel, from captains on down, mostly rangers and green berets. Before we started, I was compelled to tell them I had hoped to be rescued by the SEALs, because now I'd definitely have to put up with a lot of bullshit from them, telling me, see that? The SEALs get in trouble, and they gotta send for the army to get them out, like always. That got a loud cheer, but it did not disguise my eternal gratitude to them and what they had risked to save me. They were really good guys and took total control in the most professional way. First, they radioed into base that I had been found, that I was stable and unlikely to die, but regretfully, the other three team members had died in action. I heard them confirm they had me safe, but that they were still in a potentially hostile Afghan village, and that we were surrounded by Taliban and Al-Qaeda troops. They were requesting evacuation as soon as night fell. 
The debriefing went on for a long time, as I tried to explain details of my actions on and off the battlefield. And all the time, the kids kept rushing in to see me. They were all over the place, hanging onto my arm, their own arms around my neck, talking, shouting, laughing. The adults from the village also came in, and I had to insist they could stay, especially Sarawa, who had reappeared, and Gularb, who had never left. I owed my life to each of them. So far, no one had found the bodies of Mikey, Danny, and Axe, and we spent a long time going over satellite photographs for me to pinpoint the precise places they had died. The army guys had some data on the battle, but I was able to fill in a lot of stuff for them, especially to explain how we had fallen back under Mikey's command and then kept falling back how we never had any option but to establish our defense farther down the mountain, always farther down. I recounted how Axe had held our left flank with such overwhelming gallantry, and how Danny shot so many times, kept firing, trying to hold our right flank until his dying breath, and how in the end, there were just too many of them, with too much firepower, too many of those big Russian-made grenades, the ones that finally blew Axe and me clean out of the battle. Taliban casualties had been, of course, high. It seemed everyone knew that. I think all of us in that little room, including Gularb, thought the Taliban would not risk another frontal assault on the Americans. And so we waited until the sun began to slip behind the mountains. And I said goodbye to all the kids, several of whom were crying. Sarawa just slipped quietly away. I never saw him again. Gularb led us down to the flat field at the base of the village. And with the comms up and running, we waited it out. The ranger security guard was in formation around the perimeter in case the Taliban decided to give it one last shot. I knew they were out there, and I never took my eyes off that mountain slope as we all sat there, around 20 army personnel and maybe 10 villagers, the guys who had stuck by me from the beginning. We all sat in the dark, backs to the stone wall, looking at the field, just waiting. Way over the high horizon, shortly before 2200, we could hear the unmistakable distant beat of a big U.S. military helicopter clattering in over the mountains. We saw it circling, far away from the slopes where I believed the main Taliban and Al-Qaeda forces were camped. And then, suddenly, Gularb grabbed my arm, hissing, Marcus, Marcus, Taliban! I stared up at the escarpment, and there in the darkness I could see white lights moving quickly across the face of the mountain. Taliban, Marcus, Taliban. I could tell Gularb was really uneasy, and I called over the army captain and pointed out the danger. We all reacted instantly. Gularb, who was unarmed, grabbed my rifle, and he and two of his buddies helped me climb the wall and jump down the much deeper drop on the other side. Several of the villagers ran like hell up the hill to their rocky homes. Not Gularb. 
He took up position behind that wall, aiming my sniper rifle straight at the enemy on the hillside. The Army comms guys moved into action, calling in the United States Air Armada we knew was out there, fighter bombers and helicopters, ready to attack that mountain if there was even a suggestion the Taliban might try to hit the incoming rescue helo. I considered it was obvious that they were planning one last offensive, one last-ditch attempt to kill me. I grabbed a pair of NVGs and took up my position as spotter behind the wall, trying to locate the mountain men, trying to nail them once and for all. We could still see the rescue helo way out in the distance when the U.S. armed forces, who'd plainly had it up to their eyeballs with this fucking Ben Sharmack, finally let it rip. They came howling across those pitch-black crevasses and blasted the living hell out of those slopes. Bombs, rockets, everything they had. It was a storm of murderous explosive. No one could have lived out there. The lights went out for the Taliban that night. All those little white beams, their fires and lanterns, everything went out. And I just crouched there, calling out the information to the comms guy next to me, identifying Taliban locations, the stuff I'm trained to do. I was standing up now with a smile on my face, watching my guys pulverize those little bastards who beat up my kids and killed my teammates. Fuck them, right? It was a grim smile, I admit, but these guys had chased me, tortured me, pursued me, tried to kill me about 400 times, blown me up, nearly kidnapped me, threatened to execute me. And now my guys were sticking it right to them. Beautiful. I saw a report confirming 32 Taliban and Al-Qaeda died out there that night. Not enough. The shattering din high in the Hindu Kush died away. The U.S. air offensive was done. The landing zone was cleared and made safe, and the rescue helo came rocketing in from the south. The Green Berets were still in communication, and they talked the pilot down into the newly harvested village opium field. I remember the rotors of the helo made a green bioluminescent static in the night air. And I could hear it dropping down toward us, an apparition of howling U.S. air power in the night. It was an all-encompassing, shattering, deafening din, thundering rather than echoing between the high peaks of the Hindu Kush. No helicopter ever smashed the local sound barriers with more brutality. The eerie silence of those mountains retreated before the second decibel onslaught of the night. The ground shuddered, the dust whipped up into a sandstorm, the rotors screamed into the pure mountain air. It was the most beautiful sound I ever heard. The helo came in slowly and put down a few yards from us. The loadmaster leaped to the ground and opened the main door. The guys helped me into the cabin, and Gularb joined me. Instantly, we took off, and neither of us looked out at the blackness of the unlit village of Sabre. Me, because I knew we could not see a thing, 
Gularb because he was uncertain when he would pass this way again. The Taliban threats to both himself and his family were very much more serious than he had ever admitted. He was afraid of the helicopter and clung to my arm throughout the short journey to Asadabad, and there we both disembarked. I was going on to Bagram, but for the moment, Gularb was to stay on this base, out there in his own country, and assist the U.S. military in any way he could. I hugged him goodbye, this rather inscrutable tribesman who had risked his life for me. He seemed to expect nothing in return, and I had one more shot at giving him my watch. But he refused, as he had done four times in the past. Our goodbye was painful for me, because I had no words in his language to express my thanks. I'll never know, but perhaps he too would have said something to me if he'd only had the words. It might even have been warm or affectionate, like, well, noisy bastard, footsteps like an elephant, ungrateful son of a gun, or what's the matter with our best goat's milk, asshole? But there was nothing that could be said. I was going home, and he may never be able to go home. Our paths, which had crossed so suddenly and so powerfully in a life-changing encounter for both of us, were about to diverge. I boarded the big C-130 for Bagram, back to my base. We touched down on the main runway at 2300, exactly six days and four hours since Mikey, Axe, Danny, and I had occupied this very same spot, lying here on this ground, staring up at the distant snow-capped peaks, laughing, joking, always optimistic, unaware of the trial by fire which awaited us high in those mountains. Less than a week. It might have been a thousand years. I was greeted by four doctors and all the help I could possibly need. There was also a small group of nurses, at least one of whom knew me from my volunteer work in the hospital. The others were stunned at the sight of me, but this one nurse took one look at me, standing at the top of the ramp, and burst into tears. That's how terrible I looked. I'd lost 37 pounds. My face was scoured from the crash down Mountain One. My broken nose needed proper setting. I was racked with pain from my leg. My smashed wrist hurt like hell, and so did my back, as it will when you've cracked three vertebrae. I'd lost God knows how many pints of blood. I was white as a ghost, and I could hardly walk. The nurse just cried out, Oh, Marcus, and turned away, sobbing. I declined a stretcher and leaned on the doctor, ignoring the pain. But he knew. Come on, buddy, he said. Let's get you on the stretcher. But again, I shook my head. I'd had a shot of morphine, and I tried to stand unassisted. I turned to the doc and looked him in the eye, and I told him, I walked on here, and I'm walking off, by myself. I'm hurt, but I'm still a seal, and they haven't finished me. I'm walking. The doctor just shook his head. He'd met a lot of guys like me before, 
and he knew it wouldn't do a damn bit of good arguing. I guess he understood the only thought I had in my mind was, what kind of a seal would it make me if they had to help me off the plane? No, sir, I won't agree to that. And so I entered my home base once more, moving very slowly down the ramp under my own steam until I touched the ground. By this time, I noticed two other nurses were in tears, and I remember thinking, thank Christ Mom can't see me yet. Right about then, I think I caved in. The doctors and nurses ran forward to help me and get me stretchered into a van and directly to a hospital bed. The time for personal heroics had passed. I'd sucked up every goddamn thing this fucking country could throw at me. I'd been through another hell week to the tenth power. And now, I was saved. Actually, I felt particularly rough. The morphine was not as good as the opium I'd been given. And every goddamned thing hurt. I was met formally by the SEAL's skipper. Commander Kent Pirro, who was accompanied by my doctor, Colonel Carl Dickens. He came with me in the van, Commander Pirro, a very high-ranking SEAL officer who had always remembered my first name, ever since the day we first met. He sat beside me, gripping my arm, asking me how I was. I recall telling him, Yes, sir, I'm fine. But then I heard him say, Marcus, and he shook his head. And I noticed this immensely tough character, my boss's boss, had tears streaming down his face, tears of relief, I think, that I was alive. It's funny, but it was the first time in so long that I was with someone who really cared about me. The first time since Mikey and Axe and Danny had died and I found it overwhelming, and I broke down right there in the van, and when I pulled myself together, Commander Pero was asking me if there was anything I needed, because no matter what it was, he would get it. Yes, sir, I replied, drying my eyes on the sheet. Do you think I could get a cheeseburger? The moment I was secured in Bagram, they made news of my rescue available. I had been in the hands of the U.S. military for some hours, but I know the Navy did not want anyone to start celebrating until I was well and truly safe. The call went around the world like a guided missile. Bagram, Bahrain, SATCOM to SPECWARCOM Coronado, direct phone link to the ranch. The regular call had come in on time at around one that afternoon and they were expecting another no-news update at four. But now the phone rang at three, early. And according to my dad, when Chief Guthrow came outside and walked through the crowd to collect my mom, telling her there was a call from Coronado, she almost fainted. In her mind, there could be only one possible reason for the call, and that was the death of her little angel. That's me. Chief Guthrow half carried her into the house, and when they arrived at the bedroom where the phone was installed, the first thing she saw was Morgan and my other brother Scotty with their arms around each other, sobbing uncontrollably.
Everyone thought they knew the military. There could be only one reason for the early call. They'd found my body on the mountain. Chief Guthrow walked my mom to the phone and informed her that whatever it was, she had to face it. A voice came down the line and demanded, Chief, is the family assembled? Yes, sir. Mr. and Mrs. Luttrell. Yes, whispered mom. We got him, ma'am. We got Marcus. And he's stable. Mom started to collapse right there on the bedroom floor. Scotty moved swiftly to save her from hitting it. Lieutenant J.J. Jones bolted for the door, stood on the porch, and called for quiet. Then he shouted, They got him, guys! Marcus has been rescued! They tell me the roar which erupted over those lonely pastures way down there in the back country of East Texas could have been heard in Houston, 55 miles away. Morgan says it wasn't just your average roar. It was spontaneous, deafening, everyone together, top of their lungs, a pure outpouring of relief and joy for mom and dad and my family. It signaled the conclusion of a five-day vigil in which a zillion prayers had been offered by God-fearing folk. They understood in that split second after the announcement that those prayers had been asked and answered. For them, it was a confirmation of faith, of the unbreakable hope and belief of the SEAL chaplain Trayvon and all the others. Immediately, they raised the flag, and the stars and stripes fluttered in the hot breeze. And then the SEALs linked arms with my family and my friends and my neighbors, people who they might never see again, but to whom they were now irrevocably joined for all the days of their lives, because no one according to mom, could ever forget that one brief moment they shared, that long-awaited moment of release, when fears and dreads were laid to rest. I was alive. I guess that's all it took. And all these amazing guys, with hearts as wide as the Texas prairies, burst suddenly into song. God bless America, land that I love. That's Mrs. Herzog and her daughters, Billy Shelton, Chief Guthrow, Mom and Dad, Morgan and Scotty, Lieutenant Andy Haffel and his wife, Christina, Eric Rooney, Commander Jeff Bender, Daniel, the Master Sergeant, Lieutenant J.J. Jones, and all the others I already mentioned. Five days and five nights they'd waited for this. And here I was, safe in a hospital bed 8,000 miles away, thinking of them, as they were thinking of me. Matter of fact, at the time, I was just thinking of a smart-ass remark to make to Morgan, because they'd told me I was about to be patched through to my family on the phone. I guessed Morgan would be there, and if I could come up with something sufficiently slick and nonchalant, he'd know for sure I was good. Of course, it wasn't as important to talk to him as it was to speak to Mom. Morgan and I had been in touch all along, the way identical twins usually are. Right around this time, I was assigned a minder, Petty Officer First Class Jeff Della Penta, SEAL Team 10, who would never leave my side. And remember, 
Damn near everyone on the base wanted to come and have a chat. At least, that's how it seemed to me. But Jeff was having none of it. He stood guard over my room like a German shepherd, taking the view that I was very sick and needed peace and rest. And he, PO1 Jeff, was going to make good and sure I got it. Doctors and nurses? Fine. High-ranking SEAL commanders? Well, okay, but only just. Anyone else? Forget it. Jeff Delapenta turned away generals, told him I was resting, could not be disturbed under any circumstances whatsoever. Strict orders from his doctors. Sir, it would be more than my career's worth to allow you to enter that room. I spoke privately to my family on the phone and refrained from mentioning to mom that I had now contracted some kind of Afghan mountain bacteria that attacked my stomach like Montezuma's revenge gets you in Mexico. I swear to God, it came from that fucking Pepsi bottle. That sucker could have poisoned the population of the Hindu Kush. Didn't stop me loving that first cheeseburger, though. And as soon as I was rested, the real intensive debriefing began. It was right here that I learned, for the first time, of the full ramifications of Loke, that the people of Sabre were indeed prepared to fight for me until no one was left alive. One of the intel guys told me those details, which I had suspected, but never knew for sure. These debriefing meetings revealed sufficient data to pinpoint precisely where the bodies of my guys were lying and I found it really difficult. Just staring down at the photographs, reliving, as no one could ever understand, the place where my best buddy fell, torturing myself, wondering again if I could have saved him. Could I have done more? That night, for the first time, I heard Mikey scream. On my third day in the hospital, the bodies of Mikey and Danny were brought down from the mountains. They were unable to find Axe. I was told this, and later that day, I dressed, just in shirt and jeans, so Dr. Dickens could drive me out for the ramp ceremony, one of the most sacred seal traditions, in which we say a formal goodbye to a lost brother. It was the first time anyone had seen me outside of my immediate entourage, and they probably received a major shock. I was scrubbed and neat, but not much like the Marcus they knew. And I was ill from my brutal encounter with that goddamned Pepsi bottle. The C-130 was parked on the runway, ramped down. There were around 200 military personnel in attendance when the Humvees arrived bearing the two coffins, each draped with the American flag and all of them snapped to attention instantly, no commands, as the seals stepped forward to claim their brothers. Very slowly, with immense dignity, they lifted the coffins high, and then carried the bodies of Mikey and Danny the fifty yards to the ramp of the aircraft. I positioned myself right at the back, and watched as the guys carefully bore my buddies on their first steps back to the United States. 
A thousand memories stood before me, as I guess they would have done to anyone who'd been at Murphy's Ridge. Danny, crashing down the mountain, his right thumb blown off, still firing, shot again and again and again, rising up as I dragged him away, rising up to aim his rifle at the enemy once more, still firing, still defiant, a warrior to his last breath. And here he comes, in that polished wood coffin. Out in front was the coffin that carried Mikey Murphy, our officer who had walked out into the firestorm to make that last call on his cell phone, the one that placed him in mortal danger, the one chance he believed to save us. Gunned down by the Taliban right through the back, blood pouring out of his chest, his phone in the dust, and he still picked it up. Roger that, sir. Thank you. Was anyone ever braver than that? I remember being awestruck at the way he somehow stood up and walked toward me, tall and erect, and carried right on firing until they finally blew half his head away. Marcus, this really sucks. He was right then, and he was still right at this moment. It did suck. As they carried Mikey to the plane, I tried to think of an epitaph for my greatest buddy, and I could only come up with some poem written by the Australian Banjo Patterson, I guess for one of his heroes, as Mikey was mine. He was hard and tough and wiry, just the sort that won't say die. There was courage in his quick, impatient tread and he bore the badge of gameness in his bright and fiery eye and the proud and lofty carriage of his head. That was Lieutenant Michael Patrick Murphy precisely. You can trust me on that. I lived with him, trained with him, fought with him, laughed with him, and damn near died with him. Every word of that poem was inscribed for him. And now they were carrying him past the crowd, past me, and suddenly my senior commanders came over and told me it would be fitting for me to stand right by the ramp. So I moved forward and stood as rigidly to attention as my back would allow. The chaplain moved up the ramp, and as the coffins moved forward, he began his homily. I know it was not a funeral, not the one their families would attend back home in the States. This was our funeral, the moment when we, his other family, all serving overseas together, would say our final goodbyes to two very great men. The voice of the priest out there on the edge of the aircraft hold was soft. He stood there speaking in praise of their lives and asking one last favor from God, to let perpetual light shine upon them. I watched as around 70 people, seals, rangers, and green berets, filed forward and walked slowly into the aircraft, paused, saluted with the greatest solemnity, and then disembarked. I stayed on the ground until last of all, 
And then I, too, walked slowly forward up the ramp to the place where the coffins rested. Inside, beyond the seal escort to the coffins, I saw a very hard combat veteran, Petty Officer Ben Saunders, one of Danny's closest friends, weeping uncontrollably. Ben was a tough mountain boy from West Virginia, expert tracker and climber, kind of spiritual about the wild lands. And now he was pressed against the bulkhead, too upset to leave, too broken up to go down the steps. He was SDV team too, same as Danny. I knelt down by the coffins and said my goodbye to Danny. Then I turned to the one that contained Mikey, and I put my arms around it, and I think I said, I'm sorry. I'm just so sorry. I don't really remember it very clearly, but I remember how I felt. I remember not knowing what to do. I remember thinking how Mikey's remains would soon be taken away, and how some people would forget him, and others would remember him slightly, and a few would remember him well, and I know with affection. But the death of Mikey would affect no one as it would affect me. No one would miss him in the way that I would, and feel his pain and hear his scream. No one would encounter Mikey in the small hours, in their worst nightmares, as I would, and still care about him, and still wonder if they had done enough for him, as I do. I stepped out of the aircraft and walked unaided to the bottom of the steps. Dr. Dickens met me and drove me back to the hospital. I stood there and listened for the C-130 to take off, to hear it roar off the runway and carry Mikey and Danny westward into the setting sun a few miles closer to heaven. And the words from a thousand memorial services flickered through my mind, age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. Right here in bed in Bagram, Afghanistan, I was conducting my own military service for my two fallen buddies. My new worry was Axe. Where was he? Surely he could not have lived. But the guys could not find him, and that was bad. I'd pinpointed that hollow where we both had rested and waited for death while the unseen Taliban rained fire down on us from behind the rocks and finally blew us both across the open ground to oblivion. I'd survived, but I had not been shot five times like Axe, and I knew to the inch where he was last time I saw him. I talked to the guys again, and the SEAL command was not about to leave him up there. They were going in again this time with more intel, if possible, more searchers, and more local guidance. I suggested they find the village elder from Sabre, if he was still in residence, because he, of all people, could surely lead them to the dead seal. I learned right then from the intel guys that the gentleman I referred to was the headman of all the three villages we had observed. 
He was a man hugely revered in the Hindu Kush, because this is a culture that does not worship youth and cheap television celebrity. Those tribesmen treasure, above all things, knowledge, experience, and wisdom. We did contact him immediately, and a few days later, the same old man, Gularb's father, my protector, walked through the mountains again for maybe four or five miles. This time he was at the head of an American SEAL team, the Alpha Platoon, which contained many of my buddies, Mario, Corey, Garrett, Steve, Sean, Jim, and James. No last names. Active special ops guys, right? There was also a group from Echo Platoon. All day they tramped over the steep mountainside, and they took extra water and food with them, in case it took longer. But this time they were not coming back without axe. No, sir. We never leave anyone alone. The elder hardly spoke one word to them, but he walked directly to the exact place where the body of Matthew Jean Axelson was lying. His face had been blasted by close-range gunfire in that quaint, old-fashioned way the Taliban have when they find a mortally wounded American. By the way, if anyone should dare to utter the words Geneva Convention while I'm writing this, I might more or less lose control. Anyway, they found Axe, with the bullets the Taliban rifles had emptied into his face as he lay dying, just as they had done to Mikey. But Axe was in a different place from where I thought. I know we were both blown out of the hole by the RPG because I went over the precipice. But Axe was a few hundred yards even farther away. No one quite knows how he got there. Axe still had three magazines left for his pistol when the grenade hit us. But when they found him, he was on the last one. And that could mean only one thing. Axe must have fought on, recovering consciousness after the blast and going for those bastards again, firing maybe 30 more rounds at them. Must have driven them mad. I guess that's why, when he inevitably succumbed to his most shocking injuries, they had accorded him that barbaric tribal finale. I used to think Audie Murphy was the ultimate American warrior. I'm not so sure about that, not now, not anymore. And it upsets me more than I can say thinking what they did in the end to Mikey and Axe. It upsets Morgan so bad, no one can even mention Axe's name without him having to leave the room. I guess you had to know him to understand that. There were not many like Matthew Axelson. Well, by the time they brought Axe down, I was gone. They flew me out on the night of July 8th in a big military Boeing, the C-141, on a long journey to Germany. Jeff Della Penta accompanied me, never left my side once. And there, I checked into the regional medical center at the U.S. Air Force Base at Landstuhl, up near the western border with France, about 55 miles southwest of Frankfurt. 
I was there for about nine days, recovering and receiving treatment for my wounds and therapy for the healing bones in my back, shoulder, and wrist. But that Pepsi bottle bug wouldn't budge from my stomach. It showed major resistance for long months and made it hard to regain my lost weight. But I came through it and finally left Germany for the 4,000-mile ride back to the USA. This time, Lieutenant Clint Burke, my swim buddy in Buds, accompanied me, along with Dr. Dickens. Clint and I have been closest friends forever, and the journey passed pretty quickly. We traveled in a C-17 cargo plane, upstairs in first class. Well, nearly, but in seats. It was great, and we touched down nine hours later in Maryland. Then the Navy hitched a ride for us in a Gulfstream private jet owned by a senator. And I guess I arrived back in some style to San Antonio Airport, Texas, which stands almost 200 miles west of Houston, right along Route 10 and over the Colorado River. Back home, I guess there had been some talk that I might be taken on to San Diego, but apparently Morgan just said, you can forget all about that. He's coming home, and we're going to get him. They saddled up the family suburban, Morgan and my kid brother Scotty, plus the SEALs Lieutenant J.J. and J.T., and they set off across the Lone Star State to collect the brother they had been told by the media was dead. I couldn't believe it when I saw them all waiting there when my private jet landed. There were a few tears from all of us, just tears of happiness, I guess, because they had all lived with the darkest of threats, that we would not see one another ever again. I have to say, the thought had also crossed my mind a few times as well. But mostly, I remember the laughter. Jesus, you look awful, said Morgan. Mom will have a nervous breakdown when she sees you. It reminded me of what I'd said to Axe when he'd been fatally wounded on the mountain. Hey, man, you're all fucked up. It's just the way we talk to each other. Remember, Morgan was a seal, and his words, even to his twin brother, were tempered with humor, like all of our words among ourselves. One day it could be Morgan trapped on the mountain and me waiting for him beside myself with worry and fear for his life. I recall he did tell me he loved me, though, and so did Scotty. And that meant a lot to me. In the absence of Commander Pero, Scotty rustled up a bag full of cheeseburgers for the five-hour journey home, and we guffawed our way across Texas, me making light of my ordeal, telling them it wasn't much, really, none of them believing me. I guess it's impossible to look as bad as I did when it wasn't much, really. But we had some fun, and in the end, I told them a few of the bits that were on the serious side of horrendous. Morgan wept like a child when I told him about Axe. We all went pretty quiet while that was happening, because there were no words which could comfort him, nothing that could ever be said to ease his sadness. In my view, nothing ever will. Same with me and Mikey. Eventually, we ran into our little corner of East Texas. 
Everyone pulled together as we drove down that wide, red dirt road to the ranch, the home I thought I might never see again. Those big oaks still towered over the place, and Dad's dogs came running out to meet us, barking like hell, with Emma unusually out in the lead, wagging her tail as if she knew something the others didn't. Mom predictably broke down at the sight of me, because I was still more than 30 pounds lighter than when she last saw me. And I guess I still looked pretty ill. I never told her about the goddamned typhoid-laden Pepsi bottle. A ton of people were there, from all around the neighborhood, to greet me. I didn't know at the time that these people had formed the bedrock of the five-day prayer vigil that had taken place on the property while I was missing a vigil to which no one had been invited and no one knew if anyone else would be there. A vigil born of pure friendship and concern, which started with such melancholy prophecies of doom and tenuous hopes, but ended on the sunlit uplands of answered prayers. I could scarcely believe it when I heard what had happened. And yet, Standing right before me was the cast-iron evidence of the love those Texans must have had for me, and for what I had tried to do on behalf of my country. It came in the form of a brand new stone house, standing across a new paved courtyard, maybe twenty feet from the main house. It was two floors high, with a wide, timbered upper deck around the bedrooms, which abutted a tall, stone-walled shower, custom-made for me. Inside, the house was perfectly decorated, carpeted, and furnished with a big plasma television. How the hell did that get here? I asked Mom. And what she then told me blew me away. It started with a visit, after the vigil had ended, from a marvelous Texan landowner called Scott Whitehead. He was just one of so many who came to see my parents and express his delight that I had been found. He'd never, by the way, met any of the family before. And before he went, he explained he had a close friend who owned a construction company in Houston and wondered if there was anything Marcus might like when he came home. Mom explained how I had always wanted a little space of my own, where I could, well, chill, as the late Shane Patton would undoubtedly have expressed it, and perhaps a small extension off my lower floor bedroom might be really nice. She was thinking rock bottom price, and maybe she and dad could manage that. Next thing that happened, she said, two of the biggest trucks she'd ever seen came rolling into the drive, accompanied by a crane and a mechanical digger, a couple of architects, site engineers, and God knows what else. Then, Mom says, a team of around 30 guys working 24 hours a day in shifts over three days built me a house. Scott Whitehead just said he was proud to have done a small favor for a very great Texan. Christ, he meant me, I think. And he still calls mom every day, just to check we're all okay. Anyway, Morgan and I moved in, freeing up space for the stream of seals who still kept coming to see us. 
and I stayed home with the family, resting for two weeks, during which time Mom fought a fierce running battle with the Pepsi bottle bug, trying to get some weight on me. Scott Whitehead's boys had thought of everything. They even had the house phone wired up in my new residence, and the first call I received was a real surprise. I picked it up, and a voice said, Marcus, this is George Bush. I was 41. Jesus, this was the 41st president of the United States. I knew that real quick. President Bush lives in Houston. Yes, sir, I replied. I very definitely know exactly who you are. Well, I just called you to tell you how proud we all are of you. And my son's real proud. And he wants you to know the United States of America is real proud of you, your gallantry, and your courage under fire. Hell, you could tell he was a military man right off. I knew about his record. Torpedo bomber pilot in the Pacific, World War II, shot down by the Japanese, distinguished flying cross. The man who appointed General Colin Powell as chairman of the Joint Chiefs, victor of the Gulf War. Are you kidding? I'm George, 41, calling you to let you know how proud we are of you. That really broke me up. He told me if I needed anything, no matter what, be sure to call me. Then he gave me his phone number. How about that? Me, Marcus. I mean, Jesus, he didn't have to do that. Are Texans the greatest people in the world or what? Maybe you don't think so, but I bet you see my point. I was thrilled President Bush had called, and I thanked him sincerely. I just told him at the end, anything shakes loose, sir, I'll be sure to call. Yes, sir. By mid-August, still being in the U.S. Navy, I had to go back to Hawaii, SDV Team 1. During my two weeks there, I had a visit from the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Mike Mullen, direct from the Pentagon. He asked me to come over to the commanding officer's office and promoted me right there on the spot, made me a petty officer first class, no bullshit. He's the head of the U.S. Navy, and that was the greatest honor I had ever received. It was a moment I will never forget, just standing there in the presence of Admiral Mullen. He told me he was very proud of me. And it doesn't get a whole lot bigger than that. I nearly cracked up. Perhaps civilians might not appreciate why an honor like that means all the world to all of us. That sacred recognition that you have served your country well, that you have done your duty, and somehow managed to live up to the highest possible expectations. Even though it may seem like a strange ritual in a foreign tribe, kind of like Loke, probably, I hope y'all get my drift. Anyway, he asked me if there was anything he could do for me, and I told him there was just one thing. I had with me the Texas patch I'd worn on my chest throughout my service in Afghanistan, fighting the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. This is the patch that bears the Lone Star. It was burned from the blast of that last RPG, and it was still blood-spattered, though I'd tried to get it cleaned. But I'd wrapped it in plastic, 
and you could see the star of Texas clearly. And I asked Admiral Mullen if he could give it to the President of the United States. He replied that he most certainly would, and that he believed that President George W. Bush would be honored to have it. Would you like to send a brief letter to the president to accompany the battle patch? Admiral Mullen asked me, but I told him no. I'd be grateful if you'd just give it to him, sir. President Bush is a Texan. He'll understand. I had another request to make as well, but I restricted that to my immediate superiors. I wanted to go back to Bahrain and rejoin my guys from SDV Team 1 and ultimately bring them home at the conclusion of their tour of duty. I deployed with them, and I want to come back with them, I said. And my very good friend Mario, the officer in charge of Alpha Platoon, considered this to be appropriate. And on September 12, 2005, I flew back to the Middle East, coming in to land at the U.S. Air Base on Muharraq Island, same place I'd left with Mikey, Axe, Shane, James, and Dan Healy, bound for Afghanistan five months ago. I was the only one left. They drove me out over the causeway, back to the American base up in the northeast corner of the country on the western outskirts of the capital city of Manama. We drove through the downtown area, through the places where people made it so plain they hated us. And this time, I admit, there was an edge of wariness in my soul. I knew now, firsthand, what jihadist hatred was. I was reunited with my guys, and I stayed in Bahrain until late October. Then we all returned to Hawaii, while I prepared for another arduous journey, the one I had promised myself, promised my departed brothers in my prayers, and promised the families whenever I could. I intended to see all the relatives and to explain what exemplary conduct all of their sons husbands, and brothers had displayed on the front line of the battle against world terror. I suppose, in a sense, I was filling in a part of me which had missed seeing the outpouring of grief as one by one my teammates returned from Afghanistan. I had missed the funerals, which mostly took place before I returned, and the memorial services immaculately conducted by the Navy for my fallen comrades. For instance, the funeral of Lieutenant Mikey Murphy on Long Island, New York, was enormous. They closed down entire roads, busy roads. There were banners hanging across the highway on the Long Island Expressway in memory of a Navy SEAL who had paid the ultimate price in our assault on the warriors of Al-Qaeda. There were police escorts for the cortege as thousands of ordinary people turned out to pay their last respects to a local son who had given everything for his country. And they did not even know a quarter of what he had given. Neither did anyone else. Except for me. I was shown a picture of the service at the cemetery graveside. It was held in a slashing downpour of rain, everyone soaked, with the stone-faced Navy SEALs standing there in dress uniform, solemn, 
unflinching in the rainstorm as they lowered Mikey into the endless silence of the grave. Every one of the bodies was flown home accompanied by a SEAL escort who wore full uniform and stood guard over each coffin, which was draped in the stars and stripes. As I mentioned, even in death, we never leave anyone behind. They closed Los Angeles International Airport for the arrival of James Sue's plane. There were no arrivals and no takeoffs permitted while the aircraft was making its approach and landing. Nothing until the escort had brought out the coffin and placed it in the hearse. The state of Colorado damn near closed down for the arrival of the body of Danny Dietz because the story of his heroism on the mountain had somehow been leaked to the press. But like the good citizens of Long Island, the people of Colorado never knew even a quarter of what that mighty warrior had done in the face of the enemy on behalf of our nation. They actually did close down the entire city of Chico in Northern California when Axe came home. It's a small town situated around 75 miles north of Sacramento with its own municipal airport. The escort was met by an honor guard which carried out the coffin in front of a huge crowd, and the funeral a day later stopped the entire place in its tracks. So serious were the traffic jams. It was all just people trying to pay their last respects. The same everywhere. And I am left feeling that no matter how much the drip, drip, drip of hostility toward us is perpetuated by the liberal press, the American people simply do not believe it. They are rightly proud of the armed forces of the United States of America. They innately understand what we do. And no amount of poison about our alleged brutality, disregard of the Geneva Convention, and abuse of the human rights of terrorists is going to change what most people think. I doubt any editor of any media outfit would get a reception like the SEALs earned, even though these combat troops had achieved their highest moments in the enforced privacy of the Hindu Kush. Perhaps the media offered the American public a poisoned chalice and then chugged it back themselves. Some members of the media might think they can brainwash the public anytime they like, but I know they can't. Not here. Not in the United States of America. Certainly on our long journey to visit the relatives, we were met only with warmth, friendship, and gratitude as representatives of the U.S. Navy. I think our presence in those scattered homes all over the country demonstrated once and for all that the memories of those beloved men will be forever treasured, not only by the families, but by the Navy they served. Because the U.S. Navy cares enormously about these matters. Believe me, they really care. The moment I suggested to my superiors that the remaining members of Alpha Platoon should make the journey, the Navy offered their support and immediately agreed we should all go, and that they would pay every last dollar the trip might cost. We arrived back in San Diego and hired three SUVs. Then we drove up to Las Vegas 
to meet the family of my assistant, Shane Patton, who died in the helicopter crash on the mountain. We arrived on Veterans Day. They made us guests of honor at the graveside for the memorial service. It was very upsetting for me. Shane's dad had been a SEAL, and he understood how well I knew his son. I did the best I could. Then we flew to New York to see Mikey's mother and fiance, and after that, I went to Washington, D.C. to see the parents of Lieutenant Commander Eric Christensen, our acting commanding officer, the veteran SEAL commanding officer who dropped everything that afternoon and rushed out to the helicopter, piling in with the guys, slamming a magazine into his rifle and telling them Mikey needed every gun he could get. I think it was Eric to whom Mikey spoke when he made that last fateful phone call. I told Admiral Christensen, his father, that Eric would always be a hero to me, as he was to all of those who died with him on the mountain. Our CO was buried at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. We went to Arlington National Cemetery afterward, to visit the graves of Lieutenant Mike McGreevy Jr. and Petty Officer First Class Jeff Lucas of Corbett, Oregon. They both died in the helicopter and were laid to rest shoulder to shoulder in Arlington, as they had died in the Hindu Kush. Next, we flew back across the country to visit the huge family of Petty Officer James Sue. Everyone came to the cemetery to say a prayer for one of the most popular guys in the platoon. Chief Dan Healy is buried in the military cemetery at Point Loma, San Diego, not far from Coronado. We all made the journey to Northern California to see his family. Then we drove to Chico, and I told Axe's wife, Cindy, how hard he had fought, what a hero he was, and how his final words to me were, Tell Cindy I love her. Danny Dietz was from Colorado, and that's where he was buried. But his family lived in Virginia, near the base at Virginia Beach. I went to see his very beautiful, dark-haired wife, Patsy, and tried the best I could to explain what a critical role he had played in our team, and how, in the end, he went down fighting as bravely as any man who ever served in the U.S. Armed Forces. But grief, like Patsy suffered, is very hard to assuage. I know she felt her loss had smashed her life irrevocably, though she would try to put it together. But she sat with Danny's two big dogs, and before I went, she said simply, just know there will never be another man like Danny. No argument from me about that. As the year drew to an end, my injuries improved but remained, and I was posted back to Coronado. I detached from SDVT-1 and joined SEAL Team 5, where I was appointed leading petty officer, LPO, to Alpha Platoon. Like all SEAL platoons, it has a near clockwork engine. The officer is responsible, the chief is in charge, the LPO runs it. They even gave me a desk, and the commanding officer, Commander Rico Lenway, instantly became like a father to me, 
as did Master Chief Pete Nashik, a super guy and veteran of damn near everywhere. But it was a very reflective time for me, returning to Coronado, where I had not lived since Bud's seven years ago. I walked back down to the beach where I'd first learned the realities of life as a Navy SEAL, and what was expected and what I must tolerate. The cold, the freezing cold and the pain, the ability to obey an order instantly, without question, without rancor, the bedrocks of our discipline. Right here, I'd run, jumped, heaved, pushed them out, swum, floundered, and strived to within an inch of my life. I'd somehow kept going while others fell by the wayside. A million hopes and dreams had been smashed right here on this tide-washed sand. But not mine. And I had a funny feeling that for me, this beach would forever be haunted by the ghost of the young, struggling Marcus Luttrell, laboring to keep up. I walked back to my first barracks and nearly jumped out of my boots when that howling decom plant screamed into action. And I went and stood by the grinder where the SEAL commanders had finally offered me warm wishes after presenting me with my trident where I had first shaken the hand of Admiral Joe McGuire. I looked at the silent bell outside the Bud's office and at the place where the dropouts leave their helmets. Soon, there would be more helmets when the new Bud's class began. Last time I was here, I'd been in dress uniform, along with a group of immaculately turned out new SEALs, many of whom I had subsequently served with and it occurred to me that any one of them, on any given day, would have done all the same things I had done in my last combat mission in the Hindu Kush. I wasn't any different. I was just, I hoped, the same Texas country boy who'd come through the greatest training system on Earth with the greatest bunch of guys anyone could ever meet. The SEALs, the warriors, the front line of United States military muscle. I still get a lump in my throat when I think of who we all are. I remember my back ached a bit as I stood there on the grinder, lost in my own thoughts, and my wrist, as ever, hurt, pending another operation. And I suppose I knew deep down I would never be quite the same physically. Never as combat hard as I once was because I cannot manage the running and climbing. Still, I never was Olympic standard. But I did live my dream, and then some. And I guess I'll be asked many times whether it had all been worth it in the end. And my answer will always be the same one I gave so often on my first day. Affirmative, sir. Because I came through it, and I have my memories, and I wouldn't have traded any of it. Not for the whole world. I'm a United States Navy SEAL. Epilogue. Lone Star. On September 13, 2005, 
Danny Dietz and Matthew Axelson were awarded the highest honor which either the United States Navy or the Marine Corps can bestow on anyone, the Navy Cross for Combat Heroism. I was summoned to the White House to receive mine on July 18th the following year. I was accompanied by my brothers, Morgan and Scotty, my mom and dad, and my close friend, Abby. SEAL Team 5's Commander Lenway and Master Chief Pete Nashik were also there, with Lieutenant Drexler, Admiral McGuire's aide. Attired in full-dress blues, my new purple heart pinned on my chest close to my trident, I walked into the Oval Office. The President of the United States, George W. Bush, stood up to greet me. It's an honor to meet you, sir, I said. And the president gave me that little smile of his, which I took to mean, we're both Texans, right? And he said, a little bit knowingly, it's my pleasure to meet you, son. He looked at the cast on my left wrist, and I told him, I'm just trying to get back into the fight, sir. I shook his hand, and he had a powerful handshake and he looked me right in the eye with a hard, steady gaze. Last time anyone looked at me like that was Ben Sharmack in Afghanistan, but that was born of hatred. This was a look between comrades. Our handshake was prolonged, and for me, profound. This was my commander-in-chief, and right now I had his total attention, as I would have every time he spoke to me. President Bush does that naturally, speaking as if there is no one else in the room for him. This was one powerful man. I remember I wanted to tell him how all my buddies love him, believe in him, and that we're out there, ready to bust our asses for him anytime he needs us. But he knows that. He's our guy. Even Shane and his leopard-skin coat recognized our CNC as... A real dude. President Bush seemed to know what I was thinking, and he slapped me on the shoulder and said, Thank you, Marcus. I'm proud of you, son. I have no words to describe what that meant to me, how much it all mattered. I came to attention, and Lieutenant Drexler read out my citation, and the president once more came toward me. In his hand, he carried the fabled Navy Cross, with its dark blue ribbon that slashed down the center by a white stripe, signifying selflessness. The cross itself features a Navy ship surrounded by a wreath. The president pinned it directly below my trident, and he said again, Marcus, I'm very proud of you, and I really like the seals. Again, I thanked him, and then he saw me glance at his desk, and on it was the battle patch I'd asked Admiral Mullen to present to him. The president grinned and said, remember this? Yes, sir. Did I ever remember it? I'd hidden that baby in my Afghan trousers just to make sure those Taliban bastards didn't get it. And now, here it was again, right on the desk of the President of the United States the lone star of Texas, battle-worn but still there. We talked privately for a few minutes, and it was clear to me 
President Bush knew all about the firefight on Murphy's Ridge, and indeed, how I had managed to get out of there. At the end of our chat, I reached over and picked up the patch, just for old time's sake. And the president suddenly said in that rich Texan accent, Now you put that down, boy. That doesn't belong to you anymore. We both laughed, and he told me my former battle patch was going to his future museum. As I left the Oval Office, he told me, Anything you need, Marcus. That's anything. You call me right here on that phone. Understand? Yes, sir. And it still felt to me like two Texans meeting for the first time. One of them kind of paternal, understanding. The other absolutely awestruck in the presence of a very great United States president and my commander in chief. Afterward by Patrick Robinson. In the fall of 2006, Marcus Luttrell was redeployed with SEAL Team 5 in Iraq. At 0900 on Friday, October 6th, 36 of them took off in a military Boeing C-17 from North Air Station Coronado, bound for Ar-Ramadi, the U.S. base which lies 60 miles west of Baghdad. A notorious trouble spot, of course. That's why the SEALs were going. The fact that the Navy had deployed their wounded, decorated hero of the Afghan mountains was a considerable surprise to many people, most of whom thought he would leave Spec Warcom for the less dangerous life of a civilian. Because even after more than a year, his back was still painful, his battered wrist was less than perfect, and he still suffered from that confounded Afghan stomach bug he had contracted from the Pepsi bottle. But the deployment of Marcus Luttrell was a personal matter. He alone called the shots, not the Navy. His contract with the SEALs still had many months to run, and there was no way he was going to quit. I think we mentioned there ain't no quit in him. Marcus wanted to stay to fulfill his new obligations as leading petty officer Alpha Platoon, a position which carries heavy responsibilities. To me, he said, I don't want my guys to go without me, because if anything happened to them and I wasn't there, I guess I would not forgive myself. And so Marcus Luttrell went back to war. The C-17 was packed with all the worldly goods of SEAL Team 5, from machine guns to hand grenades. On board the flight was Petty Officer Morgan Luttrell, Bravo Platoon, a new posting not absolutely guaranteed to delight their mother. Marcus had a new patch on his chest, identical to the one on the president's desk in the Oval Office. That's who I'm fighting for, boy, he told me, my country and the Lone Star State. The last words to me from this consummate Navy SEAL were, I'm out of here with my guys for a few months, God help the enemy, and God bless Texas. Never forget. Tonight, like most every night, I lie here with the TV on, watching the same movie I have seen at least 50 times, if not more. 
The TV now serves as my safety blanket that glows all through the night, letting me know that I am back home safe in my bed. My days are relentless. I think about Afghanistan hourly, playing the scenario over and over in my head until I am on the verge of insanity. I would give anything to have my friends back, and life the way it used to be, seeing their faces, hearing their voices, watching their mannerisms, and hell, even the way they smell. I know that may sound trivial to a lot of people, but it's the little things that I miss the most about all of them. It was my greatest honor to serve with these men on and off the battlefield. They died doing what they loved, protecting this great country of ours. And in my eyes, there is no greater sacrifice than that. Operation Red Wing has taught me a lot about myself, the men I work with, and the people of Afghanistan. The people in that Afghanistan village put their lives in jeopardy just to save mine. And I have never seen a more selfless act in my life. No matter what you think or have heard, there are good people out there in this world. And I am living proof of that. To the ODA and rangers who came into the village to get me out, there is nothing I can say or do to ever pay that debt. So I guess a thank you from the bottom of my heart will have to do. Thanks, guys. And lastly, I would like to thank the Dietz family for their support through all of this, as well as the Axelson and Murphy families. To the friends and family of SEAL Team 10, as well as the 160th, I would like to say thank you for your ultimate sacrifice. As long as I have air in my lungs and a heartbeat, I will never give up on the memory of those 19 men who lost their lives on the mountain that day, because they never gave up on me. Marcus Luttrell, January 2008. P.S. Mission accomplished. Acknowledgements. Many thanks to my co-author, Patrick Robinson, whose admiration and respect for the SEALs is reflected in so many of his novels. He understood I had made a solemn, private vow to the guys that I would somehow get out and relate the story of their gallantry and unending courage. Patrick made this possible, beyond my hopes. I could not possibly have done it without him. I also owe thanks to the 160th Helicopter Squadron, to the senior commanders of Spec Warcom, who granted me permission to tell my story, in particular to Admiral Joe McGuire, to our Judge Advocate General, Captain Joe King, and to Captain Barbara Ford, who helped me through the network of naval administration prior to publication. My skipper in SEAL Team 5, Commander Rico Lenway, and Master Chief Pete Nashik unfailingly understood my requests for latitude during the long process of writing the book. As their leading petty officer, Alpha Platoon, I owe them my thanks, not only for their cooperation, but also for their certainty that the story of the guys on the mountain should be made public. 
I would also like to express my appreciation to ex-Navy SEAL Dick Couch, author of the excellent book The Warrior Elite, the story of the training of Bud's Class 228. I, of course, was there and appear in his book from time to time, but I referred to Captain Couch's well-kept log of events for accurate times, dates, sequences, and rate of dropouts. I had notes, but not as good as his, and I'm grateful. And many thanks to Pete Bell, Randall Thompson, and the Cotton Corporation. Thanks are also due to my friends and family, and especially to my mom and dad, David and Holly Luttrell, for so many things. But especially, in this context, for sitting down and relating, chapter and verse, the extraordinary events that took place back at the ranch in the early summer of 2005 while I was missing in action. Finally, my fellow SEAL and twin brother Morgan, who came storming into the ranch within hours of the battle for Murphy's Ridge, swore to God I was alive and never stopped encouraging everyone. Devastated by the death of his great friend, Matthew Axelson, still too upset to talk about it, he was nonetheless there for me, helping to correct and improve the manuscript still with me, as he's always been, and I hope always will be. Just like we say, bro, from the womb to the tomb, and no one's ever going to change that. Marcus Luttrell This has been an Ashet audio production of Lone Survivor, the eyewitness account of Operation Red Wing and the Lost Heroes of SEAL Team 10. Written by Marcus Luttrell with Patrick Robinson. Read by Kevin T. Collins. Produced by John Clem. Directed by Suzanne Torin. Recorded by Tommy Heron. Post-production by Gabino Reyes. Lone Survivor is also available in print and as an ebook from Little Brown and Company, a division of Ashet Book Group. Text copyright 2007 by Marcus Luttrell. Audio production copyright and published 2012 by Ashet Audio. All rights reserved. In accordance with the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, the duplicating, uploading, and electronic sharing of any part of this audiobook, without the permission of the publisher, is unlawful piracy and theft of the author's intellectual property. If you would like to use material from the audiobook, other than for review purposes, prior written permission must be obtained by contacting the publisher at permissions at hbgusa.com. Thank you for your support of the author's rights. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.